uh, arrange meeting in the afternoon and in the uh, after my lunch time. That that is what I usually do for my uh, business meetings too. Yeah. So anyhow, anyhow mm. do we need mute? Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I have to fix the Twitter account because now we have the Twitter stream going. Oh, oh yes, my. please drink some water, clear your throat, I... and make sure you have a lovely voice for recording. Hold on, I gotta unpin the previous tweet. We had over 500 viewers of the last show just on Twitter alone. An extra Ooh. 500 folks watched the tweet live stream, the last one. So I gotta unpin that one and now repin the one that's live streaming now. So it's now it's pinned. So the yeah. top. So this is. This is actually good enough, right? We do not really need to do Twitter space now, right? I think this is very good. We can have the best of both worlds. Well, funny you ask, because our friend Jane from Hong Kong, Jane Wong from Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. she just got the hallway. (laughs) Twitter space doesn't yet have a hallway. It does, Mm -hmm. but for only very limited people. And now our friend Jane now has the hallway, and, and she's been added to the beta testers who have the hallway in in her app. Mm-hmm. And so that means it's pr- probably coming very soon. And in fact, that makes sense because I was in a Twitter Spaces room recently with the Twitter Spaces team, and they said it's like a week away, and that was about a week ago. So mm-hmm. it looks like their version of the hallway will come soon, which means mm-hmm. anyone using Twitter will have this extra button at the bottom of the screen. Mm-hmm. And when you click it, you'll see all the Twitter Spaces. Thailand. Yes. Random mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Remember when we talked about a few months ago about the monetization and how to apply and all that other stuff? Is that is that monetization open to everyone? Because it's like they they had the requirements, and I know that some people I know applied, and it's sort of still in pending status. Is there something Re- of the reason why it's they're still in pending status? What? Give me give me the question again, please. Um. Okay. Inside Twitter. You have the option to monetize. Remember back in the day? Option Uh, to monetize. Yeah, like on the left-hand side. Tip jar, tip jar. You mean the tip tip jar? Yeah, to turn it it on. Like Uh basically, remember you said you had the beta of it? Not even, yeah, you can still do it now. You can go to my Twitter account or even the Tech News Twitter account and not, you can do tip jar, including in Bitcoin now. (laughs) Yeah, but this is interesting because the monetization, you, you commented on that it was only in the beginning open for certain people. That verified account. Verified account. No, I think it's open to everybody now. No, it's open to I everyone. I don't think so. It is open to everyone because that's what I'm asking the question on. So do you Tyler, have it? That... Ami, so do you Tyler, have it? To, to go back to the question that I'm trying no, to ask. Ami, do you have it? I'm trying to ask a question to so, Tyler. So you don't have, right? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what a comedy show. And May's trying to ask me a question, Cheryl. Let her ask the question. Go ahead. Thank you. The top left-hand corner, when you go to your profile, the bottom, the second or third to last is monetization. And when you click on it, you do fill out the application for it. And you, you, they did open it up to everyone is what I was trying to say, Tyler. So you're correct. They did open it up for everyone. Uh-huh. And a m- bunch of my friends that have been on there for a while in the tech space as well, they applied and coaches as well, right? Just, you know, health coaches, uh-huh. they've applied. And they're, they've come back to me a couple of times and be like, yo, I thought it was open to everyone. Do you know when it's going to come through? Because all of the status of the applications are now pending, which is why, is it in fact open to everyone or are they using some sort of other criteria to approve those accounts? Because if Twitter wants to do 
lightning network and they want to make this inclusive, then that I would think that would have to be open to everyone, not just people that are verified or people with super followers, because then it's cherry picking who gets it. And that isn't a lot of people in Twitter's ecosystem. Wouldn't they want to be able to give it to as many people as possible so they could test it out? Well, yeah, they always they always do a beta test and then when they're ready, they roll it out. Got it. So that's why I was asking the question, because clearly you said that it was already opened up for others a bit ago. And yeah. I noticed it because a bunch of people I know that are health coaches, let's just be specific. Let's say the health coach folks and the yoga people's folks like me, we also applied for it. And we it put it submitted the application and everything. So we met the criteria, but it just hasn't been turned on. Okay. Um, Monica has it, right, Tyler? I don't know. Yeah, Monica has a tip jar and her, her account is verified. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So. Can I what? ask another question? Yeah, Messi, what's up? Um, so this clip thing, I have been trying to look around. Is that like, does it work only if I have a room that I opened myself? I don't see it anymore. No, I, so... I, I did see it. We I did, did some... see it when I was. Oh, uh, we, we kind of fucked up. We should have had that guy <laughs> open the room for us. So it turns out you the way that clips. Guy? Yeah. Well, not, not, not. I don't even think that the person with the account named Clippy, I don't even think they can do it. But um, there's a few clubhouse creators who have been selected. And those few creators currently, when they open a room, as long as they open as long as it's a public room they have the option to allow clips to occur in the room and if they turn it on for the room then every single person in the room can do clips of that room even if they the creator of the room leave the room the clips have been turned on for that room but they're the only person who can turn it on for the room when they create the room so you have to go to a room that has clips enabled by a person who's been approved to enable them, which is currently very few people. However, I suspect next week I will have them on because kind of for the first time ever, one of the key people from Clubhouse reached out to me and said they, they are big fans of tech news and they want to have a call. So I said, great. And they want to know how they can help tech news and blah, 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 blah. Great. Turn on clips. That's super cool. Congrats. Tyler, well, Tyler's going to Tyler's going to ask for 15,000 and he's going to complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask uh, as a follow up. Um, so do you like did they choose themselves or um, as a co-host or a host of a club? Do I apply for it? Because I, I, I was a co-host in the Good Morning Africa room and I think that's where I saw the clip. But then I couldn't see it again ever. So right. I just thought. So the person who actually created that room is is has has been chosen to enable clips in rooms. So the clubhouse people actually just randomly chose or whatever yes. criteria they used. Okay, okay, thanks. Yeah. So, so Tyler is the chosen one that we're being ordered to cows. Well, let, let's hope. I mean, that's going to be my request when they say, "Hey, how can we help you?" I'm going to say, "Hey." Turn on clips. And if you if one thing I think that could really help all of Clubhouse and, and particularly um, all the creators and Clubhouse more generally is 
I have a feature request. And the feature request is give me a cute little way when I create the room, I can turn on clips, which I'm going to do, and give me a, another little toggle button and a little to record a short little intro welcome greeting, which can be, I don't know, up to 20 seconds long or something. And in that welcome little greeting, of course, I'm going to say, hey, you know, hey, welcome. Here's the rules, you know. So we don't have to keep doing room resets all the time, you know, just raise your hand. It's a, the, I can describe the format of the room. I can say ladies first. I can say all kinds of stuff. I can remind you to join the club as you join the room, whatever. But more importantly, I could have an affiliate deal with, by the way, there's websites that, you know, where anyone can go get affiliate codes for every app on the interweb. Most apps these days Will will help will incentivize you to promote them. For example, Airbnb still to this day gives you a code if you go to them and ask for one that's unique to you that you can share. And if somebody signs up for an account and books a room, you get something like a hundred dollars. So um, I could go to a different website each day and get a new code each day for a different website each day. And every day when people come in the room, I go, hey, here's today's code for, you know, please please support Tech News Around the World by simply going to, you know, whatever, club, uh, go to Dropbox and sign up for their, you know, free trial or go to Airbnb and sign up for an account or go to this website and sign up for an account or Uber if you never have or the Cash App and download the Cash App and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that could be, a way for room creators to monetize. And once there's a way to monetize in this app, you're going to notice an incredible increase in the, in the number and quality of rooms, which does it be more practical to go towards like once this whole, you know, option things are going to be opening up, why not let's just go for something like a playlist thing where you actually do like a DJ style, what happens on the radio stations or the actual TV stations that you have like a preloaded, um, you know, playlist. And then you have a live segment in between. Okay. And then you can line it up everything pretty much. Because what I'm describing would take a developer 10 minutes to make. What you're describing would take a team six months to do. <laughs> and Clubhouse doesn't have that. They might add that eventually five years from now. They could add what I'm asking for tomorrow. And I'm very focused on incredibly simple things that they could do tomorrow that would have tremendous impact. But you could just record a spot as an MP3 or whatever and just play it through this. This file I'm playing right now easily could be a recorded file of me saying anything I want, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. What? But yeah, you're right. No, because every every person. When I don't know when to play the file. I don't know who's been in the room since last time I played the file. I don't know if you've listened to it three times already or twice already, or if you came in the room and out of the room and never heard the file. That's idiotic. What I'm describing is what's called genius because every single person who enters the room hears the file once. Tyler, help me understand this. So let's say we're... By the way, there's 1,000 people who enter this room every hour. So... If I want to make sure all 1,000 people all hear the file one time and not twice and not three times and not four times because we often are here for four hours. 
Yeah, that is an elegant workflow, Tyler. You're right. Thank you for sharing that, Tyler. I was wondering, since I heard about the clips, that how many times it's going to get repeated. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, Tyler. Yes. I got you the answer. For now, Twitter has enabled tip jar for a limited group of people who use Twitter in English, which which includes verified creators, journalists, experts, and non-profit organizations, ah. not coaches. Thank you. Okay. So the are we we're going to do the big news first and then we're going to get into all the fun juicy tweets. As as per usual, and happy Saturday. Welcome back everybody. Happy August, October 2nd. Q4. Do you does it feel like Q4 already? <laughs> oh yes, it's October. <sighs> Yeah, it's a, that's a good month in Japan, by the way. Yes, yes, if, yes, if, it's lovely. If you but ever, just passed. if you're if you're ever thinking of going to Japan, you want to go in April or October. So, um, and they're and you could go to both. They're totally different. Like those are two very different times of the year, and they're both very very lovely. So, the biggest news story on this Saturday, October second, is from the New York Times, and they say they have sources that emergency meetings continue inside Facebook amid the Wall Street Journal expose, which, they, which the Wall Street Journal calls the Facebook files, this series of leaks from an internal leaker who's going to appear tomorrow on America's biggest news uh, show called 60 Minutes, and they're going to leak, they're going to reveal the leaker. And... They will that leaker is also going to appear before the Senate in a Senate hearing on Tuesday. And then we'll really know who the leaker is, because at 60 minutes, oftentimes the people are hidden and they use they change their voice or they only, you know, use the camera from behind. They don't sometimes they hide their face and their voice and whatnot. So um, anyway. Back to the article here. New York Times says they have sources that emergency meetings continue inside Facebook amid the Wall Street Journal expose as some research staff decry Facebook's public response in chat groups. Im implying that some of the researchers at Facebook are leaving comments in their internal chat groups that say they don't agree with how Facebook's responding to the Wall Street Journal's articles. And that makes sense. Not everyone agrees on everything, even at the same company. So let's see what this says here. It says the social network has been all hands on deck as it grapples with revelations that it knew the harmful effects its Instagram photo sharing app was having on teenagers. And let's be more specific, shall we, New York Times? It's female teenagers and it's uh, actually more like a, a harmful effect, not really harmful effects. It's more singular. It, it was very specific. It was about young female Instagram users who felt they said that they felt that Instagram, some percentage of them, about 30% of them feel that Instagram um, gives them a lower body self-image. 
Uh, Let's be specific about what this is. And I I understand we want to beat up on big tech and big tech is the bad, big, bad people. They're evil. Okay. I, I get that. The tech journalists from practically all of them, with the exception of Wired and a, and a few others, are on a are are on a crusade. They've got pitchforks. They're on a witch hunt to take down big tech. And boy, do they have their their pitchforks aimed at Facebook at the moment. And they're all jumping on the train. And here's the New York Times supporting their friends at the Wall Street Journal to try and stick it to Mark Zuckerberg. So they're going to take a little liberties and stretching it out beyond what was known from their own internal data. We saw the slides. We saw the data points ourselves. And so when we read this headline from the New York Times, it says the social network has been all hands on deck as it grapples with the revelations that it knew the harmful effects its Instagram photo sharing app was having on teenagers. Yeah, it does know. And it's it's not effects. It's one particular effect. So be New York Times, you really owe it to yourself to be the, you know, on the dot with these things and not exacerbate the, you know, the rage uh, unfairly. So there, you, we can have outrage. There's plenty to be outraged about, but it, it does us all a disservice when we start uh, extrapolating that rage beyond the boundaries of of what's of the reality. So. And we don't need to. There's plenty to be upset about. So anyway, over the past few weeks, top Facebook executives assembled virtually for a series of emergency meetings. In one gathering last weekend, half a dozen managers, including Adam Masseri, head of Instagram, and Nick Clegg, Facebook's vice president of global affairs, discussed pausing the development of an Instagram service for children ages 13 and under, said two people briefed on the meeting. Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's chief executive, weighed in to approve the decision the people said. The meetings continued this week with a larger group that included Facebook's strategic response teams, which are overseen by Mr. Clegg and Ms. Cheryl Sandberg. The chief operating officer, the people said, the executives debated what to do about internal research around teenagers and Instagram, they said, and decided to publicly release some information but annotate it to add context, which they did, which we shared here on Friday. Facebook has been in an uproar over the past few weeks, which the meetings were held to quell. The the tumult began over the Wall Street Journal published a series of articles last month that showed Facebook knew about the harms, actually harm, of its services, including teenage girls saying that Instagram made them feel worse about themselves about their body image, New York Times. you Come on, be fair here. Yes, it did make them feel worse about themselves in a very specific way. And it made them feel better about themselves in 11 different ways. And it made them feel worse about themselves in one out of the 12 ways, New York Times. Stop becoming part of the problem here. Because this is going to turn around and bite you in the ass. If you keep playing this funny game where you're trying to demonize Facebook unfairly like this. you got to be really straight. As I said, there's plenty to demonize Facebook about fairly. Uh, you don't need to kind of be clever with this. You know, be very specific and don't try and extrapolate beyond what is the actual facts here. The articles were based on a trove of Facebook documents, 
which were leaked by an unidentified whistleblower who will be revealed tomorrow. The revelations immediately set off a wave of criticism from regulators and lawmakers, many of whom moved swiftly to call the company to account. As scrutiny mounted, Facebook delayed the Instagram service for children. On Thursday, Antigone Davis, Facebook's global head of safety, was questioned for more than two hours by lawmakers about the mental and emotional toll its services could take on kids. Inside Facebook, top executives have been engulfed by the crisis, with the fallout spreading through parts of the company and disrupting its quote-unquote youth group, which oversees research and development for kids' products like Messenger Kids, according to interviews with dozens of current and former employees who were not authorized to speak publicly. To navigate the controversy, Mr. Zuckerberg and Ms. Sandberg have approved decisions on how to respond but have deliberately kept out of the public eye, said two people with knowledge of the meetings. The company has leaned on its quote-unquote strategic response teams, which include communications and PR employees, which I believe our friend Michelle is part of those teams, actually. She's part of the, uh, or maybe she's marketing. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, but she she's she definitely dabbles in that in that area. So to the next bit, the effort has been so time consuming that several projects due to be completed around this time have been postponed, said people with knowledge of the company's plans. But some of Facebook's containment has at times backfired with its own workers. This week, the company downplayed the internal research that the journal had partly based its articles on, suggesting that the findings were limited in limited and imprecise. That angered some employees who had worked on the research, three people said. They have congregated on group chats to decry the characterizations as unfair, and some have privately threatened to quit. In one group text message chain shared with the New York Times, Facebook data scientists and researchers discussed how they were being embarrassed by their own employer. On a company message board, one employee wrote in a post this week, they are making a mockery of the research. Facebook's UX research team is one of the best in the industry, said Sahar Masachi, a Facebook engineer who worked on election integrity and left the company in 2019. Instead of attacking their employees, Facebook should be giving integrity researchers the authority to more fully do their jobs. The fur, the fur is unlikely to die down. The, uh, the Fuhrer is unlikely to die down on Sunday. The whistleblower who leaked the internal research and is a former Facebook employee is set to reveal her identity and discuss the documents on 60 Minutes. She will then appear at a Senate hearing on Tuesday to testify about what she discovered while conducting research at Facebook. Kevin McAllister, a Facebook spokesman, said the company has been under intense scrutiny and it, it only makes sense that we've built teams to streamline internal and external responses as well as for those teams to help fast track fixes in areas where we need to improve. Since the journal articles were published starting September 13th, Facebook's strategic response teams, which have handled many crises in recent years, has grappled with the responses. The teams led by company veterans Tucker Bounds and Molly Cutter Cutler and acting under the direction of Mr. Clegg, sought input from Facebook's top researchers, the people said. Facebook then pushed back with blog posts that said the journal articles were inaccurate and lacked context. Executives also convened to discuss the future of research at Facebook. 
said two people briefed on the calls. Some questioned whether the social network should continue conducting research on its own products because they said companies such as Apple did not do similar user studies. Mr. Clegg supported continuing the research, the people said, and others ultimately agreed. Mr. Masseri also reached out to employees to, that's the boss of Instagram, to assuage fears about the company's products for teenagers. In an internal post last month about the about teen well-being on Instagram, he said he was proud of the that the company did the research featured in the journal article and added that we invest heavily in safety and integrity. But some employees said the post, which was shared with the Times, did little to ease their concerns. If Instagram can cause 3% of our users to report strongly negative thoughts, I think that's a problem worth looking into, one employee wrote in a widely circulated internal note. Our policies of covering up this kind of research are creating difficult political, regulatory, and legal problems for the company. Mr. Zuckerberg and Ms. Sandberg were both briefed on and approved the decisions made over the last few weeks, but have been publicly absent to keep away from negative press said to employees. Mr. Zuckerberg posted a video last week of himself fencing with Olympic gold medalists, shot through the frames of his new sunglasses that Facebook and Ray-Ban worked on together that can record videos. On Wednesday, Ms. Sandberg posted a story about small businesses in the United Arab Emirates on her Facebook page. Some projects have been tabled while executives deal with the fallout. An initiative, an initiative to introduce an election oversight committee has been delayed, said two people with knowledge of the effort. On Wednesday, after the meetings with the strategic response teams and other executives, Facebook publicly released two research reports that the journal had partly based its stories on ahead of the Senate hearing on Thursday. Facebook annotated the reports, appearing to downplay the results. Next to, next to one slide, in the research that said teens who struggle with mental health say Instagram made it worse. The company added that the headline was imprecise. Instead, it wrote the headline should be clarified to be teens who have lower life satisfaction, more likely to say Instagram made their mental health or the way they feel about themselves worse than teens who are satisfied with their lives. After the annotations became public, Facebook researchers messaged one another in disbelief, said to employees. Many felt that their notes through them and their methodology under the bus, the people said. Facebook had also moved to stem future leaks. One Facebook researcher said a colleague was contacted by the legal team in the past week and was asked about a research report that he published more than two years ago. The legal team appeared to be hunting for any potentially incriminating research that might be shared with reporters, he said. His manager had advised him not to run any queries searching for specific terms on his old work or do anything that could appear suspicious, he said. Now, he said he was told was a good time to take a vacation. End of article. So the the drama train rolls on over there. And I think it's kind of goes without saying that Facebook's having internal meetings <laughs> about the Wall Street Journal articles. But it's interesting to, uh, uh, it's all rather, I think, I don't know that there was too much revealed. I think everything that was said in this article, I think is, was what, at least I was assuming personally, uh, anyone else uh, surprised by what the New York Times article is confirming here? Or at least for me, it's simply confirming everything that I assumed. I'm just surprised, like on, would the Senate be a right, uh, you know, forum to actually take this and discuss all that and, you know, take the senator's time to actually 
look into these matters. I'm just like, you know, this whole saga is just like, doesn't make any sense to me. The Senate asked for it. The Senate saw the Wall Street Journal articles and said, hey, Facebook, we would like to have a chat with you. So yeah, but there are like tons of like more important issues going around the world, like where Senate should be actually paying attention to more so that what is heading towards iceberg, like by mid of next this month, actually. Yeah, economically, yeah. There's a lot of important things happening at on the Capitol Hill at the moment. Um, yeah, how social media, how much impact social media has on America at the moment is quite interesting, especially if it uh, is the result of disinformation campaigns by, you know, as Facebook claims that Russia and China have been running disinformation campaigns um, for quite a very long time. So, well, they they acknowledged it. It was others who who made the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, to kind of push back on is this the most important thing clearly china thinks this is super important right <laughs> clearly, clearly the world oh is, boy is Where's... falling apart right in front of our eyes we have actually seen how had we you know this is clearly becoming a a point that's affecting our ability to come out of this crisis um you know uh the economics uh of disinformation or something that people aren't talking enough about. Like there is a real reason why America is heading towards this iceberg. And it's because our, you know, our windshield is completely fogged up with disinformation. And I just, you know, I, I agree with, with Kurum that there are bigger economic things, but you know, there's a really good way to make people not notice that. And it's to put uh, TikTok ah. videos of BS that keeps them distracted while the whole world is falling apart. Well, I would agree with that. Like, I mean, they can spend all their time as they like, but at the end of it, what's going to be the result of it? If the result is going to be that below 18 years of age won't be able to actually access, you know, (laughs) that Insta and all that, then fine, be it. But if it's going to be something like you're going to be just bashing the, you know, the Mark Zuckerberg and all that and putting some sort of like a regulation, then it's not worth their time. I mean, just leave it to the regulator and take care of it. Um, that's uh, what it is. The, the, the regulator it itself may not have enough power to do this because Facebook is is large enough that it can push back. It can, you know, tie things up in court. Um, that should, I mean, the regulators should be doing what they can do and it's unclear how well they will be doing this, doing that. So part of this is congressional oversight of that process. But, uh, additionally, uh, when that is backed up with congressional hearings and legislation that can push things it more forcefully. Isn't that also like, you know, a compilation of many things like the 2016 election interference by, you know, uh, fake accounts from Russia or whatever might be, but the meddling of elections in many, many countries worldwide here in Ethiopia, you know, coming up with uh, their own social media or, or, you know, many countries also shutting down Facebook when they run elections. Uh, because there is already, you know, a concern. Um, 
sometimes like you know the amplification of false information and other things so i think it, it, it is because it is hiding up um you know from other issues and this probably is the last trigger right well this, yes. this is this is the the text and the subtext is the election meddling which by the way you know the the director of national intelligence reported on while facebook was still trying to downplay it even though there were employees who were very concerned about it and uh you know other examples like facebook's role in the genocide of the rohingya and um you know this is it, it it unfortunately the way our political system is uh we need to get people emotionally concerned about what is tech doing to our kids uh in order to get enough momentum behind dealing with issues like like the ones that i just mentioned look the point is they'll deal with the insta right now what's going to happen to the tiktok would they be able to actually put some sort of mechanism for the tiktok no so i mean this whole exercise half the time when i actually look at the hearings it seems as if they are you know calling all these people in the tech sector to just get educated that was going on in the tech sector so let's grill them and that's how they get educated i mean so Karam, not... have you watched have you watched a prosecutor you know execute a case ever uh, you know if you have you see what they do is they they start building the case one stack at a time and that's what's happening right now and remember who's who's really behind this in the senate uh are a great senator from uh the great senator klobuchar from minnesota i will tell you she is one of the hardest prosecutors out there if you ever watched it'd be really fun if you just google you know any of her cases especially there's a few few of them that have become very public and you watch the methodical way this is something karam there is no american that has a child that is not against that does not recognize that this is a problem and when you're building a case you start from commonality that's what's happening everybody agrees that this is having an incredibly bad effect on children like is there anybody here that disagrees does anybody feel like instagram is good for people for young kids and young women I, I, I don't think so. Look, you know, so Karam, let me just finish my point. My point was like, mm-hmm. I think this is where they're starting. It's really hard to get Americans. Emo- and I, th- I think Eli was kind of alluding to this. It's very hard to get Americans emotionally invested in, in antitrust cases, in, uh, in cases around, uh, you know, uh, disinformation, because then it becomes political. But we can all agree that a woman that feels awful about her self-image or a young man who, uh, you know, or even, you know, uh, people across, uh, you know, across the board starting feeling, you know, feeling like, hey, you know, I'm uh, feelings of failure because of toxic positivity. Everybody recognizes that these are real problems. And so now we can all get along and get behind this. And this is the beauty. I will, I will remind people that the person that's truly behind a lot of this is, and this narrative is Amy Klobuchar, who is one hell of a fucking prosecutor. Look, there's no way I'm actually questioning the outcome of it or the premise that it shouldn't happen. There's, I have three, um, you know, kids in teens, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I totally agree with that. My problem is, would there be an outcome of that? 
would there be a situation where we're going to be actually going towards the, what Chinese have done, that actually restricting the time, time on the actual social mm-hmm. media? Is it going to be some sort of outcome of that? No, it's not going to be. Well, there, uh, there could well, be. So I'll give you an example. It, we read a headline, gosh, three months ago. Norway passed a regulation specifically on Instagram, and it was essentially geared towards precisely this. If you think very carefully about what they did, is they are telling the Instagram women generally, all of the photos that they used in the articles about this showcased women, that young women will need to reveal if they've edited their photos to enhance their beauty precisely to address this issue because what's happening is Instagram makes it now very easy that you have these little side apps and little features to tweak to make your cheekbones bigger and make your face slimmer and your you know make you more beautiful in an unrealistic way and so what that's doing is is it's causing the ladies who are the young ladies who watch Instagram to feel oh shit I I'm not as beautiful as I thought I was you know, everyone else is more beautiful than I am. And it's not it's not reality, you know, because this is being, you know, these are enhancements done by apps. And so Norway says, ah, if you do that to your photos, you must reveal it. So this is a very interesting way to address this particular issue of body self-image, of negative body self-image of young ladies. But a very clever approach. I think an even better approach would be uh, all images need to say by default this image has been enhanced <laughs> until you can prove that it wasn't and then if it isn't then you can have that removed and then people will go to kind of lengths to show that my image was not enhanced in any kind of way and so i'm pr- i i want to get that warning off of my photo because it looks bad when it's on there but people should be trained to just assume that these photos are enhanced so that they can um it's just it is the reality that the vast majority of these uh, uh, young ladies on Instagram are editing their photos to enhance their beauty, for lack of a better word. It, it probably won't happen, but I think that if if instead we could see both, I mean, we this the the enhanced one displays, but if you could see also the unenhanced one, I think that would actually be a positive thing. That'd be fantastic. I think the prosecutor will be able to articulate very precisely what the problems are. And I think that kind of disclosure, at least from the parents' perspective and the children, I think a lot of us are unaware of all of the various tricks and mechanisms that are not not only addictive, but also toxic. The, the term that Dinesh used is toxic positivity. I think that's a term that escapes most people nowadays and a prosecutor doing this kind of investigation and going through the court system, I think that will allow more people to become aware of this. That's a very important detail here. So I'd like to make a, a, a couple of points on this, if, uh, if that's all right, Tyler. Okay, um, one, Carl, go ahead. One, one to what you were saying <laughs> was, uh, I'll try not to soapbox. Um, <laughs> I know what I can get like on this topic. Tyler, uh, bring Ken out. Okay. To, to your to your point, Tyler, of what you were saying, um, if you if you have a platform, if you provide a, a platform, and everything is is it's equally shared on this. If I if I make a website where people can post things on there, and that's the extent of my interact my involvement with it, 
then I could easily argue that I'm not responsible really, apart from providing that hosting area, I'm not really responsible for the content that's on there and what is done on there. The moment you start algorithmically pushing the content to certain people to monetize it, you are then responsible. And I think that's the clear delineation here of what, like what you were just saying there, where how do you argue where the line of responsibility is for Facebook? It's if you are algorithmically pushing the content and controlling the narrative of who sees what and how often, then you are responsible for the content and you are responsible for the result of that, whether it's positive for people or negative to people. So they can't stand back with their hands up and say, well, you know, whatever's happening on here, it's, it's not our fault. Second point is the a lot of the individuals that we're really talking about, younger individuals, don't even have the mental capacity to internally reflect and self there are parts that like Dr. Dinesh, you were saying some of this, there are certain parts of the brain like empathy and self-reflection that aren't even developed at the younger ages. So even if you have a question pop up on the screen asking you, has, how, do you feel this way? Do you feel that way? You may not even know, like some of these questions, because I've been going through the slides over the past couple of days, some of these questions are very abstract and can mean very different things to different people. Okay, so that, that taints the data right there. Um, even if they do know that, I think a lot of people would actually be hesitant in telling Facebook, yes, I feel suicidal, yes, I feel down. You know, because if that was to pop up on my screen, the first thing I'd think of was, hold on, why am I being asked that and where is this data going to go? Like, is this, you know, is this going to be represented on my feed somehow? Is this going to affect me somehow? I want to keep these internal problems that I have internally. And the last thing I want to point out is that Facebook's got, you know, between two and three, uh, two point something billion users, uh, 2.9 billion users, I think. Yeah, active about, users. about three billion, yeah. Yeah, almost 3 billion, okay? The study was done across seven different districts, including like Turkey, uh, uh, North America, et cetera, et cetera, yeah? Um, on 27, 22,000 users. So out of almost 3 billion users, they chose 22,000 users between the ages of 13 and 65, which comes out as 0.007% of their user base. So for them to be doing a, air quotes, serious study of how their platform affects people with their, the, one of the largest tech companies in the world, with some of the greatest algorithms in the world, with some of the most performant tech stacks, server stacks in the world and data analysis tools in the world, with the smartest people in the world, putting out this automated, randomized uh, piece of research, and they chose to limit it to 0.0007% of the possible data collection sample size. It's, it, I, I don't understand why that decision was made, and I can't see how, and this is what really worries me, because the narrative, that the, even the language that we're using in this room and the language that we've seen is Facebook, oh, Facebook was accused of proving that Facebook is bad. Like, no, they didn't. Facebook did some internal research that had this results, their own research. They haven't released the exact data of how they chose people. Um, they've, they've received released a summarized, but they haven't done what a peer reviewed paper would need to do. So their, their slides do not prove that it was harmful to children. It doesn't prove that it's beneficial to prove. What it proves is that their internal research they took these results from it. But until the wider community can get their hands on raw data, it yeah. doesn't prove anything. Correct. And the, the, the language now is, the language now is, oh, they were proven, they, were, they have proven this and they have proven that. No, they haven't. They haven't proven anything. They've, they've proven nothing until the wider world gets 
peer reviewable access to the raw raw data and that's a massive difference in narrative carl you, you can bet amy klobuchar will be subpoenaing that right but carl makes a great point which is this was all very subjective uh user surveys of how they feel and the user says well i feel this it, they can't what they think they, that doesn't it doesn't it, it doesn't hold up in the court of science that that is actually the fact so there needs to be as carl's making the point actual real research not just this was surveys that in the result you know these were users responding how they think this app makes them feel about themselves which might not be accurate actually which might not be True, you can't necessarily draw conclusions from what users think this app makes them think or it makes them feel. Yeah, Tyler, this is actually an area that it's called categorical-based measures and it uses something called item-based theory. Uh, it's psychometry, and they have not used any of those uh, theoretical bases uh, to, to be able to conclude anything. So I totally agree with Carl has said there, and uh, there's some really good research out there what really is going on with uh, with this. And it's, there's actually, out of that research, they've created something called the Body Project Collaborative that I recommend everyone to look at, where which is actually based on some real real stuff instead of kind of these, uh, the medial kind of hoopla going now, on right now. Now, one other interesting thing to draw out here that we have not done with this article that we just read from the New York Times, basically what's happened is there's a new development is there's now an additional leaker inside of Facebook leaking the internal uh, brouhaha inside of Facebook to the New York Times and showing them screenshots of those tension-filled conversations between the researchers and the senior leadership and leaking those screenshots to the New York Times. And the New York Times said in that article, as you know, as seen by the New York Times, they they saw it with their own eyes. These screenshots of these chat—I assume they use Facebook Messenger internally—and that researchers were, you know, um, not happy about how their bosses were coming hey, to their making their own statements so about. Yeah. Can, can I? Alhamdulillah, I love my baby. That's all I'm gonna say. All can these I add people a... that like you know the Instagram. Stuff like that. There's new data, internal research from Facebook that they increased their the Instagram and toxic positivity on Instagram. Don Donish, are you talking to us or somebody else? <laughs> he was talking to someone else. <laughs> That's right. Uh, who was uh, John? Wait, John. John. John was next. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I want to add a little fact. Was that a hot mic? Yeah, that was a hot mic. Yeah, I, I want to add a little factoid, and I'm going to anonymize the source because it was in a private conversation. But one of the earliest pioneers in research on social media, extremely well published, extremely highly regarded, told me about five or six years ago um, that he uh, abandoned all research on Facebook because in the early days, he was given pretty much unfettered access to data. And in the two years before his quitting all research in Facebook, every single call he had with Facebook that he had previously a very good relationship with was attended by at least 
several lawyers. And the overhead and obstructiveness to his research became such a burden, uh, he just he just pulled out altogether. And this is five or six years ago. So just a little factoid. Good tip. Anybody else on this one? I just think it's interesting that Facebook has a whole other separate issue. And then not just Facebook, Apple does too, as we've seen in recent days. And, and we can name the others that um, internal employees, when a company gets to this size, big tech has a problem. When your company gets to 100,000 employees, all it takes is one set of loose lips to blow a hole in the side of the ship. And that's what essentially has happened with Facebook this week with this uh, whistleblower who's going on uh, America's biggest show tomorrow, 60 Minutes, and going to speak before the Senate on Tuesday. All it took was one person who's upset. Apple has Ashley Gjovic. Facebook has this whistleblower that we will likely know the name of on Tuesday. This is a a mathematical reality. When your company gets to the size of 100,000 people, you're going to get one really um, disgruntled employee who, you know, wants to sink the ship. You know, actually, I'm going to push back on that. I think it it is that um, we have seen it in the whole week um, newspaper that the employees actually did give feedback to Facebook and to management to like some of the things that they felt they were doing wrong and give them the opportunity to fix it, right? This is part of the reason the CFO resigned, um, that he didn't want to be part of that type of stuff. Um, I don't even know why it took him long because the complaint was that even even we all read it. When you read one of the, the, the papers, it said, Facebook is not doing what we say we are doing in public. That that that's giving the opportunity for management to do the right thing, or at least that's the the feeling some people are giving from the inside. And when they are not doing anything, or even giving the inclination that they were trying to fix it, then you know these people will come out. So there are. I feel like Facebook was given opportunities. So it's not really an happy employee, but you know it could be an employee that has conscience and that Facebook wasn't listening to fix these problems internally. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm not saying the person doesn't have a point. Uh, and Am- we, we can add Amazon as well. We had a headline in the past few days that Amazon just settled with two former employees. You guys remember the article from this week. Uh, they d- d- didn't quite get into the details of the settlement. But fa- Amazon just settled with two former employees who also became rather kind of like activists internal at the company too. Clearly, uh, and they, and they, by the way, those Amazon employees, we should get their names. Uh, because we'll likely, you, there's a pattern here. You have the two Amazon employees who got settled with this week. You have Ashley Govic at Apple, and you have this whistleblower at Facebook. It's something very interesting in, in between the two Amazon employees who are up in Seattle and Ashley Govic, who's in the Bay Area at Apple, both Ashley and the Amazon employees, of which it was two women, by the way, all four all four women, and just a coincidence perhaps, but the interesting coincidence between Amazon and Ashley is they both uh, rather quickly, oh, and by the way, we can add Blue Origin to the list, which we're going to get to this headline 
we should jump into it next. Actually, it's right on the same. And there, there's a a lady who just left Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos's rocket company, who did a TV interview yesterday, which I watched. And oh boy, is she on a rampage! And she, the lady from Blue Origin, the rocket company, Jeff Bezos's rocket company, and she's accusing the company of sexism and discrimination. And that it's not safe to fly on the rockets. And we're going to get to this headline next. I'm going to bring it up here in a second. So Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's rocket company. Amazon, Jeff Bezos's uh, e-commerce company. And uh, Apple with Ashley Govic. In all three cases, all three women all did the same thing, which is they started a signature collection. All three. They all three said, I'm upset. I don't like this. Hey, team members, who's with me? Sign, sign, co-sign this with me. By the way, Activision Blizzard had the same thing as well. You had the, and that was women as well who started that, which was Activision Blizzard uh, started a lawsuit uh, based on uh, sexual harassment and discrimination. And the first thing they did was a signature collection. Very interesting. Some, the, my, the point I'm trying to make here is, is there's a clear pattern of what's happening with these big tech companies. Uh, there's there's a grievance. And step two is uh, let's let's get everybody who agrees that there's a problem here to all co-sign together. This is a really interesting uh, similarity between each of these cases big, of, how, you know, what's going on with big tech at this moment. So let me find. Give me if you'll indulge me. If someone can make a comment well, to give me one minute. Yeah, to find, I, yeah. yeah. The thing is here that we also had this uh, guy that were employed by someone uh, who had uh, ten years ago written something in a book or was it a blog post that he actually get sacked for before he even started his work. I don't remember exactly the scenario, but it was one of the big techs as well that they had a list going out, and we will, don't want him to to begin here. Make him go away. You are done. Okay, so I found the article. So <laughs> it's lots of people covered it. It says the headline says Blue Origin employees say they wouldn't feel safe riding the company's rockets, and it's lucky nothing has happened. Twenty-one Blue Origin employees published a whistleblowing open letter on Thursday. Some employees said they wouldn't ride the Blue Origin rocket due to safety concerns and said it's lucky nothing has happened. No federal agency regulator, no federal agency regulates passenger safety on private space flights. In a scalding open letter, a group of current and former Blue Origin employees said they would not feel would not fly aboard the company's rocket because they don't think it's safe enough. Jeff Bezos, who founded the company in 2000, launched to the edge of space aboard its new Shepard rocket in July. Since that flight, Blue Origin has opened ticket sales and four customers are scheduled to launch on October 12th. But the new letter says that Blue Origin's leadership has ignored employees' safety concerns in favor of making progress for Jeff and accelerating new Shepard's launch schedule. The only named author on the letter is Alexandra Abrams, who used to head Blue Origin's employee communications. She published the essay on the website called Lioness on Thursday, but says that 20 other current and former Blue Origin employees co-wrote it. None of those co-authors were named, but CBS News has spoken with five of them. The letter also 
made claims of a culture of sexism, harassment, and intolerance to uh, dissent at Blue Origin. New Shepard, the rocket, has flown successfully 15 times without people on board and once with passengers with when Bezos himself went. The rocket has an emergency system that can jettison the passenger capsule away from failing rocket if necessary. However, the letter said, in the opinion of an engineer who has signed on to this essay, Blue Origin has been lucky that nothing has happened so far. Many of this essay's authors say they would not fly on Blue Origin vehicle. Two former Blue Origin employees confirmed to CBS News that they would not feel comfortable riding a Blue Origin spacecraft. In a statement emailed to Insider, Blue Origin said that Abrams, the lady who wrote the letter, was dismissed for cause two years ago after repeated warnings for issues involving federal export control regulations. Abrams has denied that she received any such warnings. At least 17 top engineers and leaders have left Blue Origin this summer, many of them in the week after Bezos's space flight, CNBC reported in August. (laughs) The reasons for their departure aren't clear, though Glassdoor ratings suggest that just 19% of Blue Origin employees approve of its CEO, Bob Smith. That's compared to 92% approval rating for SpaceX's Elon Musk and 77% for United Launch Alliance's Tory Bruno, Blue Origin statement also said, we stand by our safety record and believe that New Shepard is the safest space vehicle ever designed or built. But the open letter said that safety was the driving force behind the decision to punish it for many of its co-authors. It also said that in 2018, when someone new took over one particular team, the manager discovered that the team had documented more than a thousand problems more than 1,000 problem reports related to the company's rocket engines. None of those reports had been addressed, the letter said. What's more, the letter added that Blue Origin has frequently denied requests for additional engineering staff or spending while adding more responsibilities to teams that are too small to handle them. Employees are often told to be careful with Jeff's money, to, (coughs) to not ask for more, and to be grateful, the letter said. Careful with Jeff's money. What a fucking asshole. <laughs> and so to your point earlier, it's not just the the size of the company, you know, making it likely that there are going to be leakers. But just like, you know, if you're on the Internet, don't say stuff that you would feel awful about being on, you know, on the front page of The New York Times. You know, don't do these awful things uh, as you run your company in the first place. My, my so, point, my point is statistically, kind of mathematically, the bigger the company gets, the more likely that you you'll ha- eventually hire somebody who uh, might become a, a, an activist whistleblower of sorts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly, well, certainly, that's, but that's uh, not Tyler, where the problem that's is. Really too... Sorry. Go ahead, please. Sir. Go ahead. I, I was just saying that that's not where the problem is. The problem is are, are I agree. in these egregious things. But please go go ahead. Well, yes. However, no, how, however, <laughs> however, I, I, from what I understand, three percent of people are the dark triad of narcissists, uh, uh, passive aggressive, uh, sociopath, psychopaths. So uh, at, after a hundred thousand employees, you're going to have. 3,000 such dark triad personality types who are prone to killing their own babies. So how exactly do you, do you defend for that? 
Well, Tyler, I think I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna disagree on that. I think I'm with Ellie that um, that's not the, exactly the problem, right? Uh, it's not having a big number of employees, but I think Facebook had a problem. It, any tech company. I'm just pointing out a, a, a mathematical weakness in very big companies, which is why all big companies right, eventually right. lose to startups. Yeah. Yes, but, I agree with you. You will have like uh, as you get bigger, you will have those. But if you don't have a problem that's big and that you're not listening to your employees where they see some problems, especially if you are soliciting uh, a feedback from your employees, and if those employees are giving you good feedback and, and that problem should be fixed, right? It's not that they didn't know about it. So I agree with you that as you get bigger, you will have those problems, those disgruntled employees. They may even make up a story, but this is not a made up story. This is actual problem that the company should be able to fix. And sometimes it's because it was actual problem the company believes in, and that's why they settle. If they don't believe it is actual problem, they don't settle, you know. So I, I, I'm not sure it is the employee complaining that's a problem, but I think the company itself had a problem that it, it should have addressed. On that note, one thing, one thing I wanted to mention was that to a messy thing, you know, there are ways that these organizations could have enabled these employees to have this discussion internally first, no? Like, uh, is, the, is the, the, and that's what's concerning is. Some, well, could, Donna, you, somebody made a brilliant point last week uh, related to your point, which is, is it a coincidence that this is happening now, uh, you know, a year and a half into remote working, where previously a lot of this disgruntled behavior was discussed in the lunchroom or at the coffee machine? Exactly. Uh, right. And there was a there was a venting process called the coffee machine or the lunchroom or what have you. And now that that's gone, now the venting is happening in the chat rooms at, remotely. And that's what's it, hence the screenshots that the New York Times themselves said they saw. Normally, it, the, it, normally those screenshots would not exist for them to see because it would have been a conversation at the coffee machine. Yeah. And, Carl and, and Karen, Karen, Karen Swisher's interview with uh, PBS that I mentioned the other day, in that she's she's really very um, friendly to uh, the CEO as a whole. But one of the things she said is that he has a serious problem dealing with dissent uh, inside the company. Um, who, Jeff? Bezos? No, I'm what, sorry. What that we we're on the on the whole thread of on the whole thread of dissent and corporate um that that was a reference to facebook sorry oh and, oh okay and to carl's what carl really brought up and it really has resonated with me is you know you're now in your own home this is your castle and you're now being put you know um pin, pinned in a corner sometimes by your boss and you're not you know you your fight or flight response doesn't work the same way because you're now emotionally and mentally where you're supposed to be in a safe place and you now are attacked, you know? And I think that was a brilliant, um, brilliant piece to bring into the discussion and the mindset of what's going on at the work from home. Um, but to this, the point of, you know, the blue origins versus SpaceX, I mean, what people don't discuss, and I'm very, very proud of not that I'm a SpaceX anything is that Elon has a female running that company. You know, it's a lady named Gwen Shotwell 
Yep. He's the reason why that company sends 30 rockets a year into space and into orbit. And you don't hear these issues is because she's created a culture that fosters positive discussion. And, 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 you know, Elon is like a trickle down CEO. He, he, he writes these checks and he just makes sure that his executive team can, can cash them, you know, and cash them efficiently. And that's what I really like about that setup. And I, again, I'm not inside, so I don't know what actually happens, but from the outside, it seems like there's just a different culture there. Context yeah. and mission is king here, right? This is, it's all kind of the same thing. The reason why you know, we're talking about Apple a lot at the moment is that the, the mission for Apple is that, that what they put out is quality and privacy. And then the moment they start failing on that, um, we, everybody goes from zero to 100 straight away so they get hit pieces and we talk about it a lot here and then when you're talking about elon musk and spacex anybody if you look into the past and history they did some shady shit like they were they were rolled they were down in central america complying to zero safety regulations on an absolute budget money was being thrown left right and center but not in the correct direction for, for things staff were treated crap but the reason why people stuck around and made it a thing was because of the context of the mission, because the point of it all wasn't to raise money. The point of it all wasn't to become the richest man in the world. The point of it all was to get to friggin' Mars. Now, whether or not you agree with the fact that we'll ever do that and whether that's an insane mission, that is the mission. So when shit hits the fan, you look at it in context of, okay, who are they? What are they doing? And, and yeah, mass media controls the narrative a little bit, but it's always in our minds. It's like, who are we actually moaning about here? Who are we, who, what is this hit piece about and who is, who is it about? And this is the problem that Amazon have got because with Blue Origin is because what is the context and what is the mission? And the mission is that Bezos is a greedy son of a bitch who wants his finger in every pie. And it, that is evidence, the fact that his whole mission for doing Blue Origin is based and focused solely on the finances of him making money. Because if it wasn't, he wouldn't be trying to fucking sue NASA, who have been struggling to fund space exploration for the past 40, 50, 60 years almost struggling to fund and he's trying to sue them because his rocket that's only flown 20 30 times now hasn't even reached orbit can't actually be reused successfully was beaten out in the bidding process by spacex who have literally gone to space who can fly astronauts who are supplying the international space station that can reuse the rockets and aren't just on their first iteration but they're actually on their second generation of reusable raptor was, engines carl so it was also half sorry. the uh, spacex was also half the price on that bid half the fucking price exactly half the for price. civilians for civilians for charity not some publicity exactly event. exactly and this is the point here is the fact that if you keep doing shady shit it catches up to you in the end and one day you're going to be stood there stamping your feet and wondering why nobody is helping you and, and bezos can personally fund blue origin personally he doesn't even need the investment from nasa it, let's not forget situations ridiculous. Yeah, let's let's not forget the comment that Elon had when uh, Blue Origin didn't quite make it into orbit. He's like, "Oh, you just can't get it up, eh?" He had like all these pretty funny uh, tweets with like meme level, meme lord level kind of uh, taunts. But the but the main thing that I actually respect about Elon is that he cuts through the bureaucratic management bullshit. That if there is a problem, you can go directly to the top. That there should not be this process of having to go through 20 filters of management because that just introduces friction, that introduces cost, and that slows things down. So 
the the way that Elon has evolved the SpaceX model, it's actually quite impressive. I was very skeptical at first, and now I actually model a lot of the work that we do by the principles that he has, you know, uh, discussed in public to the people and everything. So he's actually much more open, much more transparent, and I think that there is more than enough room for all those disgruntled Blue Origin employees at SpaceX. so I think, I think many have gone. Out. In fact, it was reported, we read a headline, uh, when it when the decision was made to give the lunar land, the lunar base contract to SpaceX, the next day there was a whole bunch of people who resigned from Blue Origin on that part of Blue Origin who were the, the team that were uh, essentially assigned to that particular project. And we assume they went over to SpaceX because they won the contract. And then there's uh, Elon just did a sit one hour sit down interview with Kara Swisher in Beverly Hills this week. I watched the whole thing. He had in two really uh, brilliant quips in that interview where she asked him about this. And he said, uh, you know, reg regarding Blue Origin, that you know you can't sue your you can't sue your way to space regardless of how good your lawyers are and that also that the low earth orbit uh kind of pr stunts that uh jeff and uh, um richard branson did he says going to actual true orbit is two orders of magnitude harder meaning a hundred times harder not ten a hundred so and he, and he explained why. He says you need 10 times the fuel to get there, first of all, and you need a special designed ship because when you re-enter from orbit back into the atmosphere, you're coming in hotter than a fucking comet. So you need all of this heat shielding, which is in the hardest part of the engineering to do. So what they were doing is essentially kindergarten compared to a PhD program in difficulty. And, you know, and he says that's why you can you know, you can get away with having such a small rocket as uh, Jeff Bezos has. And hence another clever little joke that he made there. But um... Tyler, it's worth pointing out that so I don't necessarily disagree with everybody, but it's worth pointing out that this is for the lunar lander. This isn't for um, the rocket. Yes. So I, the, I'm just making I just wanted to share uh, that a couple of interesting points that Elon made out of that uh, interview. But so, so qu quick point, ahead, um, this is kind of like the elephant in the room on yeah. this for people who know the history. Um, when, when engineers are concerned about safety and you have, you know, the bra the, the business side brass, you know, just trying to, to keep them quiet and keep the train uh, running on time. Uh, we, we've had that before. That was the engineers at Morton Thiokol uh, raising objections about the Challenger launch and Ronald Reagan wanting uh, a glorious accomplishment to talk about in his uh, State of the Union speech. Mm. So the lady who wrote the letter about Blue Origin did an interview. It's like a 20-minute interview. I watched it. She made the claim in her interview that basically Blue Origin was plodding along. And then when uh, Richard Branson was getting ready to do his Virgin Galactic, Jeff Bezos went into hyperdrive and was adamant about wanting to, you know, beat his launch date. You know, and there was only a week. He ended up launching a week after, if you guys recall the, the kind of chronology of this and that he was 
she claims, of course, that he was, uh, you know, walking a bit of a tightrope and making safety um, decisions that uh, some people didn't feel safe about. And that's kind of all related to her letter that we uh, discussed a bit ago. So I agree, Tyler, there's a point Dr. Garcia was making last week that it's a totally different environment beyond lower Earth orbit and how human cannot endure that unless we do some kind of genetic modification and human factors are far beyond understood in those environments. So, yeah, whatever they're saying is far from the reality and we need a lot of uh, research uh, to even think what could happen when we go beyond certain distance. Yeah. I want to make one more. I have one more interesting hot take to make real quick one, which is I would assume I'm not interested in working for anybody, but if I was going to work for the likes of Jeff Bezos on a project like Blue Origin, I would assume that he considering, uh, you know, I, I assume most billionaires are psychopaths. Okay. So I'm going to take the psychopath argument and flip it 180 degrees. And my default is, unless I know the person, I'm going to, if you tell me there's a billionaire, I'm going to assume they're a psychopath until proven otherwise. That's just based on my experience with billionaires. But I, if I were going to go work at Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, and I've not met those individuals, I would go into that environment assuming this is a, a hyper, hyper, hyper... um kind of crazed individual who's launching rockets and going to space and doing all this, you know, making billions of dollars. And I'm, I realize I'm going to go into an environment that is not like working at the post office. It's not going to be totally germane and boring and uh, Herman Rockwell and uh, Muzak. It's going to be wild and crazy and totally beyond screwy. And so I think what happens is, is some people get that find themselves working for Jeff Bezos at Blue Origin, and he's a, a crazed, hyper-competitive, insanely competitive, some, one of the most competitive people the planet has ever known, like Genghis Khan-level fucking competitive. And I think people who go to work on those projects and in those teams with those Genghis Khan-like characters... Maybe they, I, I'm not blaming them for not knowing. I, I think the companies need to, and I did at the companies I worked with. I said, listen, you are signing up uh, to a job that I would never let any of my best friends or family work at. And I have best friends and family who need jobs. I'm not going to employ them here because this is, you're going to go home crying every Friday night. I guarantee you that. And if that's what you want to sign up for, I'm just letting you know now. And it kind of blows my mind that I, I assume other people are not doing this because me, my having done that when I was hiring dozens of people, sometimes dozens of people every week, by by being totally transparently open kimono about that, um, we never had any complaints, even though we, you know, we were running a totally crazed environment. Right. But I was more than transparent about that at the beginning. And when they came in for the interview, I would bring in another employee who had just started working six months ago. And I say, you remember when you sat in this chair where this person is now sitting six months ago? 
and I told you that you were going to go home crying every day on Friday and it was going to be like being deployed to Afghanistan with, and fighting the Taliban. And I told you I wasn't exaggerating. Let me ask you now that you've been here six months. Was I exaggerating? No, you were not. OK, thank you very much. So I say to you, the new person who's now sitting in the chair who might be here in six months. It is like going to Afghanistan. You just heard, you just got verification from somebody who's just been through it and you will go home crying. And uh, I don't know if you actually really want to sign up for this. It's going to be insane. It's truly. It's a, so why aren't companies doing this? Why aren't I, I think because they they're setting be. themselves up for failure when they don't set the right expectations? Because Je but I'm just telling you right now, oh, Blue Origin, Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos is the fucking Genghis Khan of, you know, the tech world. He's a crazed, lunatic, hyper competitive sociopath. I don't know that for a fact, but I would assume that if I was going to work there. And if you go into that project, that assuming different. that this is like working at a fucking, uh, you know, sweatshop no not a sweat, like a normal super boring corporate job it is not going to be that it's going to be a whole lot it's of crazy there's going to be people are going to be having sex time. in the broom closet there's going to be people doing coke in the bathrooms at lunchtime there's going to be all kinds of crazy crazy shit going on and i feel like people need to be warned about that when they go into these types of high high ambitious projects and i think they do i i think you know a, a lot of these people are um, setting themselves up for that risk. And there are people that can have an appetite for risk. But here's the thing. It's when those people signed up with their own um, risk profile and said, okay, fine, you know, I, I can handle this. I've, I've, I've got the constitution. I've got the, the guts to handle this. Right. But when they have to put other people's safety mm -hmm. um, at risk, mm -hmm. that's a whole magnitude of order yeah. difference. Great point. And that's where the problem lies. And um, and in a sense, you know, there, there is a thread in a, that runs through almost all of the, the stories that we've been talking about. And that thread, you know, whether it's the Facebook thread, you know, um, moving moving very fast and breaking things. Yeah. Um, but that thread is about safety. And we've seen this with Uber. We've seen this with um, with the um, with um, delivery. Uh, vehicles. We've seen this um, probably with uh, automation and all sorts of things. And yep. and 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 that's where it is. And yeah. and there are people now working in this industry that are actually saying, you know, you know, we have to raise a red flag when it comes to safety, and particularly safety of other people, safety of of girls, you know, with 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 respect to Facebook and Instagram, safety with respect to you know people in in, in space, etc. Okay, so let me let me one second, John. Uh, you raise a great point by mentioning gorillas and this ten-minute, twenty-minute delivery war right. that's going on around the U.S. with DoorDash and you know all, Deliveroo and all these deliveries, fast, rapid delivery companies are in a race for the future. They are just going berserk, and we've seen the disgruntled employees at these companies as well. And I would argue, you know, Amazon notoriously at their warehouses. You know, the people are working like uh, frantically beyond human capabilities and et cetera, et cetera. And to that, I say, and Facebook as well. And I think Facebook, is, I think Mark Zuckerberg is uber, uber, uber competitive. And he's uber competitive against TikTok. 
And so much so, and I think that the gorillas is uber, uber competitive. And the people who like Uber, the car company, uh, Travis Kalanick is crazy competitive. And these crazy competitive, never say die, win or death type folks who run these companies who end up winning. The ones who end up winning are these kind of psychopathic, uh, sociopathic-like individuals. Steve Jobs as well. Many, many people accuse Steve Jobs of being a psychopath. Many people accuse Mark Zuckerberg of being on the spectrum. And my point is, is uh, their, their proclivities, their wiring that drives them to be insane and such overly competitive and, and win at all costs uh, is also what puts them in these positions where they kind of are okay with uh, ha- having a few broken eggs to make the omelet. Where your normal person, and like Chris here on stage, normal dude, sweetheart of guy, he doesn't want to see a cup, you know, some eggs get broken to make the omelet. And you know what? I don't really want to be a billionaire that badly that I'm willing to throw a couple of human co-workers under the bus well guess what the 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 makeup of these founders who get to these you know hundred billion dollar trillion dollar valuations generally they're okay with a couple of broken eggs to get people uh to get to that trillion dollar valuation and by the way the guy the boss of instagram got a lot of shit last week in the press for saying almost precisely that he said that you know uh, net net, we are a positive, and he compared himself to car companies. And you would say that cars are generally good, even though some people die driving cars. But you would say net net, cars are good, right? We think of ourselves like that. We think of ourselves like cars, acknowledging that you're going to break a few eggs to make an omelet, and on your way to, uh, you know, unicorn land or you know, trillion dollar valuation land. I'm just bringing out the I'm just I'm just really driving home the point that. If you go work at Gorillas right now, uh, based out of Berlin, or these twenty-minute delivery companies, or these super Genghis Khan-like founders who you know want to get to the trillion-dollar valuation mark, you're signing up for a whole lot of crazy town. Um, so anyway, uh, John, John wait, when, Carl, Carl, I, I interrupted John, so I want to turn it back to John and then yeah, go, Carl. Yeah, very quick comment. Um, this is not unprecedented in human history. I've always looked at things like the pyramids um, in Egypt and uh, in in other countries, the similar monuments. I'm, I'm, wait, wait, wait. I can see the New York Times headline from 20, 2000 BC where there's a couple of disgruntled, uh, you know, Egyptians who helped build the pyramids. I can just see those headlines. I, I'm sure somewhere carved in, you know, cuneiform on the side inside of somebody's tomb. It's an account of, you know, some disgruntled slaves who helped build those fucking pyramids. You don't even know about that. Like, yeah, I'm not thinking so much gruff. about the disgruntled. I'm yes. thinking about the thousands who died in the quarries. Oh, the oh, OK. Well, okay. You got to so, people got to die to build fucking legacy monuments. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, like yeah. the Gothic architecture in Europe and stuff like that. Like, well, you, you, we don't even have to go that far. The, the the goddamn um, World Cup Arena in Dubai, people, fifteen people died building that. It happens. No, well, do, in do, the, 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 I don't know if you guys saw the headlines that people are dying of heat stroke working in Dubai building these, you know. Um, 
ambitious projects that basically, you know, are, are, you know, meant to be shining a great light on, you know, Dubai so they can host the World Cup or what have you. And, you know, uh, a similar, you, you could draw a comparison. Sorry to interrupt you, John. Yeah, yeah. The, the point I was trying to make is that there are things that are pure uh, ego plays, you know, monu- monuments to pharaohs uh, where deaths of thousands of people was not really relevant to their consideration. And then there are projects that are urgently needed to uh, for public good. And so um, I, I was just trying to draw the distinction around motive. In some cases, there's an urgent imperative to do something at scale where these kind of people can be very helpful. But when they're simply monuments to their egos, it becomes very, very, very toxic. John, we are linked. That's kind of the point I wanted to make, but I wanted to phrase it differently. There was an amazing room yesterday run by Cheryl and Tyler with Dr. Dinesh, and he was talking about founders and startups and his experience. And he said something so incredibly profound, which is obvious, but worded in a very clever way, which was focus on the problem and not the solution. If you do everything focusing on the problem, then you're going to succeed. If you focus on a solution, then you'll become attached to the solution. And what you're focusing on is the financial viability of a set of choices you've already made. And that's the difference. If you want to come back originally to the comparison and what John was just saying between SpaceX and Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin is that SpaceX operates and always has operated on focusing on the problem. Every decision that they make, every person that they piss off, every set of management that they burn through at one point, um, Elon Musk drove over to the headquarters and fired basically almost everybody who was on the the, the, the top management board because they weren't doing a proper job. All right, everything has been focused on the problem and decisions are made to solve the problem, whereas Blue Origin is focusing on the solution. So when you go there and you have Jeff Bezos screaming in your face, you're going to work on his solution to sell his solution that will make him money. You don't have the rapport, the deep personal connection that he has because he's not going into work every day to solve a problem that humanity has. That's not his focus. And then you as a worker who's getting screamed at, you are also, you have that that synergy between your causes. Yes, I'm getting screamed at, but I associate, I know why I'm getting screamed at because he wants to solve this problem. And I, in my core, want to solve this problem. So we are aligned and I can put up with this BS a little bit longer or a little bit more. And then when the public finds out about how I'm treated, maybe the, you know, the company will get a little bit of leeway because the, the public want the problem solved as well. And this is the core fundamental difference between the two companies companies because Amazon does not, Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos does not have that leeway because they're not focused on solving a problem. They're focused on selling a goddamn solution that nobody cares about. They don't care about his solution, whereas SpaceX is focusing on the problem. Tyler, to your point of view, wait, wait, Karam, ladies first. Sure. Thank you so much, Tyler. For anyone who's interested in the problems faced by human beings in space, I'm hosting a room today with Dr. Garcia and uh, other people who are specialists in human factors. And it's going to be an amazing discussion based on the recent data and samples that were sent back to Earth. Okay, Karam. Thanks, Aram. Um, Yeah, I used to think the same way. And thank you for bringing this point up because, you know, that's what my you know, this sort of like belief was so solidified that you have to be just, you know, egomaniac, uh, self-centered, most ruthless person you can be in order to actually get where these guys have actually got to. Up till the point when I actually started listening to Elon about like four or five years ago. 
And then I realized that no, there is an, uh, there is a path which you can choose and be a normal person and be have some empathy somewhere deep down in your heart and still you can actually perform. And I'm sure you would have actually come across a lot many in your journey. But what's your take on it? Is it possible? Or you have to be that, you know, Genghis Khan-like person in order to actually get there where they are. Uh, well, here's a point. So the largest market cap companies in the world at the moment are, number one is Apple, uh, with two over, they've passed the $2 trillion club. Microsoft, which is at the right at the $2 trillion club. Um, then Amazon at the 1.7 and then Google and then Facebook. <clears throat> so Apple, Steve Jobs, many people accuse Steve Jobs of being a sociopath, many, many, and, and a bit of a narcissist, but much more so a sociopath. So number two, Bill Gates, actually not that many people. I mean, Bill Gates gets accused of a lot of stuff, crazy stuff, but uh, not off the word sociopath isn't normally associated with Bill Gates. In fairness, Amazon, you know, uh, Google, no. The Google founders have never been accused of that. Facebook, yes. Facebook, well, more so Asperger's. But um, interesting that those are, in, you know, what... At what point, <clears throat> I, I'm just going to speak for myself personally here, At I can imagine having a tech company, it could be my absolute baby. I have a lot of friends who have become unicorns, and I've been friends with them before they started the companies. And I, it's really curious to me to watch them reach unicorn status and beyond. And at what point do you realize you have more money than you could ever spend, or your grandkids will ever spend, and... Um, you know, sh at what point do you shift gears and, you know, um, focus on other things other than the company, for example. So I, I don't, I think it takes a, a special quote unquote special kind of person to keep running a company for more than 15 years. That's worth more than, you know, a trillion dollars. It's, that's not a normal person not, not even close. So there's there's some kind of profile there uh, that it's uh, there's you know it's not necessarily um, always beneficial characteristics that that lead somebody to be able to do such a thing. But if you Can look at the, to, the what... Tyler, I was just also going to mention. I can't help but you know, look at some parallels. You know, I worked in the music business for most of my life. I was about to do the same. I, I, I was going to mention the music as well because I used to have a recording contract and I have friends who are some of the biggest recording artists in the world. And I can make the exact same point about the most famous I, musicians in the world. That's exactly where I was going with it. Yeah. I, mean, at one point, I was going to do the same. You know, at one point, you know, I... It's it's interesting because you know, I was actually in the audience, I was listening, um, and, I, and I just came up because I, I can't help but just look at some of the parallels, you know, looking at myself as a woman, I worked in the music industry, probably with some of the biggest names in the world for many years. And, you know, going on tour, we had, you know, at, the, at one point, 2025 of the biggest names in the world at that time going on. And we were, you know, considered an elite group of a machine of seven people only, let's say, for one of our companies. And there was this atmosphere of, you know, your privilege to work here. 
the whole world would want to be where you are. You're privileged to work here. And, you know, I'm assuming right now in the world of, you know, technology, you've, like you said, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, uh, you know, working with Elon, whoever's there, even if you're 100,000 people in compared to, you know, being part of a huge global uh, business and industry, you're you're gonna have that you're gonna have that attitude that you're part of a privileged group of people to be able to even work in this vicinity. Which means that usually you'll take what you can. I remember. I mean, God knows. I mean, Tyler, I can probably imagine that you would imagine the stuff that you know in the music business we had to deal with, and you know, just shut up and and as they would say, you know, everyone's you know wear your wear your grown up panties. You know, just deal with it. And you know, if you got to work twenty four hour days, do it. You got to go do this, do it. If you got to hear this from people, men, women, whatever, deal with it, move on. You know, there's a there's a job to be done. So with that attitude, you know, back in the day, I wouldn't complain. Whereas of today's generation and today's mentality, not too far, completely different topics, but not too far from what I'm hearing is almost like another version of a Me Too movement going on. And what is that? The Me Too movement was basically saying that the little person also has a voice and a couple of those voices get together can bring down a Goliath of a right. company. Great point. And, and, and that is what's going on. And that the little people, by the way, as Chris said, sorry to interrupt you, but a Apple, the uh, Ashley Govic's movement at Apple, they called it uh, uh, Apple two, I believe with a hashtag Apple two was the name of their right. whole signature collection thing. Right. To your point. And as Chris said, now imagine, imagine those people who feel that, okay, we're the little ones we're privileged, but now we are at our own homes and that the safety of our homes, we can actually communicate with each other and speak and also be emboldened by what happened with the Me Too movement that the little person can get together with a few people and, and they can actually bring down the Goliath. They can bring it down. And that is a, you know, hey, check yourself to the big boys or to the big girls or the big companies that are, you know, that are um, really just thinking about themselves more. And I actually just heard a conversation. I was part of a conversation this morning about what leadership is. And, and to me, you know, leadership would be that to look at what the incentive is, not just for you to lead a team of people and just make sure that you are, you know, you get to the top, but the incentive would be to make sure that everyone in your team sees something better for themselves and sees something that their incentive, that they're going to be better off in their future, having been with you and this experience. And if they don't see that, and if they don't experiment, experience that, and if they feel that something is being wrong, now granted, like you said, you know, before I heard you mention something like out of just the numbers game, you may have 3% of the people that are just going to, you know, kind of take the sideline and just, you know, be the complainers or the problems. But, you know, in regards to that, or despite of that, there's going to be, you know, what I'm seeing is that the little people are exercising their right and they've been emboldened by, you know, movements such as the Me Too movement. At some point, at some point, there has to be some kind of a, you know, I know that a lot of people took that and went way off with it and started doing things or, or trying to get, um, you know, their voices across that, that they really weren't in the right. So it could be used as a weapon as well. And we've got to be careful about that. And it kind of can actually uh, dampen the entire idea of what these movements are about. But really what's going on is that the little person has the voice. And like Chris said, these people are now sitting at home. They're emboldened because they're at their own houses. They feel more emboldened. They feel like they can say things and communicate without being under the watchful eyes, even as without being under the cameras, you know, the watchful eyes of the cameras and the in the atmospheres and their offices. So, you know, there's a culture, there's a new culture going on. And I'm not certain 
that it's a bad thing. It's going to get ugly. It's going to go through its, you know, it's going to go through its growing pains, just like a snake de-skins itself and it's going to go through pain before it comes out. And, and I'm hoping, looking at the positive side, that in the end, that this is actually going to be something that can work better. But it's also a, you know, hey, check yourself. It doesn't matter who you are anymore. And it doesn't matter how big you are. And it doesn't matter if you're a multi-billionaire boss. At the end of the day, a few people can bring down an entire company that you put together, you know, possibly with a snap being within a year or so. So I'm not sure if it's a bad thing. And if you have to yeah. look at it from different angles, here, I, I get it. I, I, I applaud your points here. And uh, from a from a similar but different perspective, in Japan in the 2000s, the, well, let's go back to the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was run by the salaryman culture, it was called. That's the word in Japanese, salaryman culture. And they would, after college, immediately get hired by a company that they would work at for the rest of their lives. They were permanently dedicated to that company until they retired. That was the norm. And my God, did they work uh, incredibly hard. Holy shit. Anyway, their kids who were getting jobs during the zero zeros decided we don't want to be salary in part of the salary man culture. We, they just revolted and said, we're not going to do that. And we're going to, we have a whole new shift of values totally incongruent with the salary man lifestyle. We don't want that. We're not, and, 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 and uh, we're going to have, we're going to have way lower incomes. That's fine, but we're not going to become corporate slaves. Essentially was kind of their argument. So, there's what we're seeing and Japan is always up uh, consistently about 10 years ahead on this cultural curve evolution that happens. And now I think we're starting to see the American Western version of this same concept where every, uh, Bill Maher did a, a fantastic monologue about it, uh, about the whole van life movement because of the uh, the lady, the young lady who got killed and the boyfriend who's, you know, ran away. And, how everyone wants to be an influencer. Uh, it's the, the most popular new job in America is, in terms of business registrations is a content creator, influencer. So my point is that uh, my friend, a friend of mine, Bjorn Larson at this group called the Foresight Group calls this the rise of the meaningful economy. That basically, he's, as his website says here, more than more people than ever before, uh, more people than ever before are seeking to live meaningful lives and expressing that in their economic decision making. It's no longer just the small privileged elite who can afford to do so. And so that basically both the consumer wants to participate in brands that have the shared same values that they have more so than, than just the price. And the employees want to join companies that where their life is meaningful. And the consumers want to buy from those companies who feel they are uh, having, you know, adding to this meaningfulness. So if this is true, and I believe it is, then if you are working at a company who's not only doesn't feel meaningful, I would say that SpaceX does for many people and Tesla does and maybe Blue, Blue Origin does. But then they realize, ah, this isn't about Blue Origin at all. It's about Jeff Bezos's, you know, you know penis shaped rocket and you know his ego, ego and right sad part. so that's where they realized ah shit we signed up for something that we this is not what we wanted at all we wanted to sign up for something meaningful and around a mission and i think elon does a very good job of um taking advantage of that and i think that's why their tesla has more people applying than any company on the planet and 
this is a huge advantage for every new company that's coming out now because Facebook and Google were built in an era where this wasn't the case. And now we're in a new kind of generational shift where there's a fundamental shift in values, just like happened in Japan, where now you can speak to this next generation who want to base their lives on the meaningful economy and consumers who want to base their consumption based on the meaningful economy. And if you embrace this kind of potential new reality, you, you, you have an asymmetric advantage. I'll just say one thing. I'll just say one thing about that, Tyler. I'm, I'm living that. I have eight top notch teammates and, you know, except for me having to pay for a nanny, none of us have taken a dime after being funded. And you can't do that for 18 months unless you have a mission that you really believe in. And that's all I have to say. Okay. So let's get into the second headline of the day. Tyler, just, just short, because you, you, you put me on the stage. Thank you for that. Sure. And sure. I want to make a, a general uh, comment okay. because I think it's about the 21st century, which, which maybe is only starting now. Exactly uh, the purposefulness or um, the meaningfulness is something which is discussed uh, yeah, in, in the domain of uh, foresight for a while and about millennials and so on. And I think uh, what I experience, what I perceive of you is an over-identification, which sounds so much like 21st, uh, 20th century. You, you uh, don't like, um, no, you, you like loyalty to the corporate, while the corporate, uh, when it has, has a certain size, it's really a big corporate. You're talking about uh, what, what you said in your narrative, being totally uh, passionate and be prepared for a battle day by day, week by week. Yes, that's what you told us, uh, not, not the first time. And I understand this is passion. But maybe this time is over. Yeah, because I could tell you another narrative that uh, these are not disgruntled employees, but very courageous employees with a conscience which risk their, uh, not their life. This would be exaggeration. Some might be uh, attention addicts or what, but I think most uh, employees are intimidated and would not do such a thing because they're indoctrinated to be super loyal while the company typically is not loyal to them. So. These are just people like you and me, if you allow, and I would not, um, I would not attack them like you did half an hour ago, uh, with your narrative, uh, so so much exposing um, them as being pathologic or something. While it is a necessity, as Eli said, for instance, the Challenger catastrophe. It's not about only some toxic psychopath, but about a toxic board and a toxic system in a way. And I want to have uh, capitalism survival. I, I like capitalism. It works, it works uh, really well, I think. And most, uh, mostly <laughs> it, it, we should have not too much regulation. So we are maybe on the same page. But on the other hand, if you let it uh, run so wild and you have no, um, yeah, you have not really a voice for the scientists of Facebook, but you, uh, you, um, you make some, suspicious that they have their own agenda or something that I, I cannot, I really cannot stand it. Yeah. And I, I just say it, it's like the 21st century is beginning now uh, in the, in the twenties. 
with a new culture maybe because the planet is now uh, really at risk and people say what should i do with a big bank account when my planet is fucked off yeah and so it gets um, it gets a kind of new narrative for the younger uh, em employees uh, which say no this time is over this was what i wanted to say okay thank you, thank you will you go to mars so well said <laughs> The next one, article number, that was our very longest first article, an hour and 40 minutes. So the number two article <laughs> is from Fast Company, Amazon Astro Review. So people have now had a chance to play with the new Amazon Astro Home robot that was launched on Tuesday or Wednesday. And now we're seeing the very first reviews. Actually, this is the, in fact, the very first review is from Fast Company from someone named Caro Milanesi, and let's see what Caro thinks of uh, playing with the Amazon's new home robot. As a technology analyst, I often have the opportunity to test devices before the general release. Sometimes they fall into well-established category, meaning I know exactly what they're they are meant to be doing and how I would like to use them. Other times, I get to try something that's one of a kind. For instance, this past August, I was one of a hundred of testers selected by Amazon to use its new home robot, Astro. And before receiving the robot, I had to tell Amazon about the size of my house, whether there were stairs or sunken rooms. That's actually very revealing, by the way. I imagine she doesn't have stairs in her house. <laughs> Based on articles we read this week uh, from engineers on the team who said this thing's going to break itself down the stairs. And if we had any ceiling to floor mirrors or glass doors, and I bet she doesn't. I bet Amazon was cherry picking for homes that don't have stairs or uh, ceiling to floor mirrors. Factors that impact the robot's ability to initially map a household. We do have a sunken room and ceiling to floor mirror, but my bigger concern was that the fact that we have two large dogs and three cats, how would Astro fit into the menagerie and most of all survive our dogs? And when it arrived, it felt a little bit like we went through with a new puppy as part of its setup process. Astro creates a map of the house, watching Astro go through the rooms, going back to the charging station. Um, it's a very, it's quite a long review. She says, ultimately, I was unsure about how I would use Astro in my daily life. Mostly, that's because we have an Echo or a Google device in every room already. So I don't need Astro to follow me around playing music or wait for me to say, something to Alexa. Actually, I wanted Astro to have its own voice rather than just offering access to Alexa. Reading the messages on the robot screen was not always the most practical thing to do uh, because it's low to the ground. What did my dogs think of Astro? They discovered that it's sturdier than it looks. And they also learned that as cute as it was, Astro wasn't going to take their place. Um, so that's her quick summary at the end of her article. That seems like a level review, right? Not, not any uh, overemphasis or any any extra negativity. Just very real. Yes, <laughs> fair, yeah, and which are those are becoming quite rare. And but also we know that Amazon clearly has a list. We know this for those who don't know. Amazon has a database of journalists who write favorable or unfavorable articles. Uh, you can rest assured, none of those. <laughs> journalists or publications who wrote unfavorable articles were invited to beta test their new home robot. So uh, clearly Caro and uh, 
yeah, not not a surprise that so, she gave a very balanced review like that. Yes, what's, Shane. What's John? disappointing? What's disappointing about that uh, piece um, is that the inquiry into do you have stairs? Do you have a second floor? Do you have full length mirrors? Mm -hmm. Didn't just first say what's your mailing address and then check with their Alexa database, and they already know if they have stairs and mirrors and everything else in their house mm -hmm. because of the data collected by uh, Alexa. So it's kind of interesting that there isn't a reveal about how they could use the data they already have to answer those very questions. Uh, so she she took to Twitter and she says, happy to answer questions starting with, no, Astro did not fall down any stairs. No, Astro was not in our bedroom at night. So I'm retweeting that. And she took some photos in her home of the device playing with her um, big mastiff dogs and um she says i think bigger houses would do best as right now it is a single floor at a time operation i would definitely consider giving one to my mom so i could find her in the home rather than having her go to a screen to talk or check on her and um yeah so i just tweeted that one out to the tech news twitter account so the next article me to that. We lost that tab. Here it is. Is that Apple rolls out iOS 15.0.1, which just means it's a little bug fix. And yep, it has bug fixes for multiple issues, including unlocking uh, your phone with your Apple Watch and maybe more vulnerabilities that they don't want you to know about. The next article is from TSMC Chairman Mark Liu on the U.S.-China tensions, which he is right smack dab in the middle of. Oh, my goodness. More than anybody on the planet, TSMC is the powder keg standing in the middle of the U.S.-China tensions because it's in Taiwan. It happens to be Taiwan's most valuable company. It happens to be all about the best semiconductors in the world. My goodness, could you be more in the crosshairs of this U.S.-China tension? No, you can't be. Um, yeah, so the it's from Time magazine. TSMC chairman um, on the tensions, the push for semiconductor localization in the U.S., which he says will not improve supply chain resilience and more. So it's... Let's see here. Copy link, tweeting it out. There is. If I could just add, there was actually, uh, uh, I think, a, a group of uh, security specialists, I believe it was yesterday, they were talking about, um, I think it was Jonathan Data, I think is his username on here. He was actually talking about uh, several vulnerabilities in iOS 15. So I'll post a, a link to his tweets in reply to the previous story for anyone who wants to check it out. All is not as it seems. So. So what does he say here? We always say that it's like building a high rise. One TSMC section manager tells time pointing to how his technicians diligently follow instructions dictated to them via tablet. You can only build one story at a time. TSMC is just absolutely critical, says a semiconductor specialist at Bain. They basically control the most complicated part of the semiconductor ecosystem, and they're a near monopoly at the bleeding edge. Okay, looks like a good article. Next one from CNN. President Biden to convene a 30-country meeting this month to try and ramp up global efforts to address the ransomware threat. The White House will 
host the meeting this month to try to ramp up global efforts to address the threat of ransomware to economic and national security. The question is, which countries will be there? Uh, and and it's the the big big quote in this article is all of, the first thing it says is skeptical about Moscow, which naming the elephant in the room or the the hacking uh, country in the room because these ransomwares are disproportionately uh, coming from Russia. So uh, the article says, in addition, President Joe Biden said in a statement that they're going to host this thing. Here's the quote. Cyber threats affect the lives and livelihoods of American families and businesses, says Jake Sullivan on CNN. Sullivan said the administration would continue to build on our whole of government effort to deter and disrupt cyber attacks. The goal of the alliance will be to accelerate our cooperation in combating cyber crime, improving law enforcement collaboration, stemming the illicit use of cryptocurrency, and engaging on these issues diplomatically. The announcement follows a series of ransomware attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure firms in recent months. The first meeting of the multilateral initiative will be held virtually. It's part of a recurring effort to cut off revenue for ransomware groups and figure out ways to prosecute them, according to the White House. In bolstering U.S. cybersecurity, the federal government needs the partnership of every American and every American company in these efforts, Biden added. Okay, next up, from the new tab design in Safari 15 for Mac OS makes usability worse and shows a complete disregard for the familiarity users had with Safari's previous tab design. It's so terrible. It's so terrible. You go click the tab thinking you can search in the tab or something and it just doesn't work. You got to move up to the top tab to to do a new search. It's really bad. Like I think they screwed up on this, on this release. Hmm. Uh, If you use Safari, if you use Safari, like, you know, the way they've structured the tabs, you the brain thinks you can just type in the tab to change the url but you can't so you have to like move up to the top so it's weird they have it they have the the url bar up top and then the tabs are set below and so your mind goes to the tab thinking like that's where you can navigate within that tab but it's not i i I don't know maybe i'm i have a weird mental loop but i agree with whoever this author is because it's it's done it to me many times already it's the most unpleasant change I've experienced. I think they've. I think they just fixed it. So there's a new Safari 15.1 beta for Mac OS. Hopefully, okay, this, cool. it says hopefully this fixes the mess that is Safari 15. When Apple originally released Safari 15 earlier this month, everyone was both cautious and optimistic about its new tab redesign. Over the course of the developer and public beta, the company listed listened to a lot of customer feedback and implemented some noble changes to make an experience better. What people weren't expecting when they tried Safari 15 was for the browser to constantly crash when trying to complete seemingly mundane tasks and whatnot. So download the new uh, Safari 15.1 beta and see if that fixes uh, the issue. Okay, next up is... Uh, from Bloomberg, online used car dealers have seen record sales over the past year as the pandemic and chip shortages upended the U.S. auto market. Absolutely true. 
car makers can't make cars without the chips. There's a huge chip shortage, so used cars are skyrocketing in value. Next up, from Vulture, South Korean show named Squid Game, topping Netflix charts in 90 countries. Here comes South Korea as the new Hollywood, and I'm telling you as someone from Hollywood, um, South Korea is is the Hollywood of Asia, and um, and interesting to see it spread beyond that. The top show in Netflix in more than 90 countries from South Korea vindicates Netflix's strategy of creating franchises using content from around the world. Makes sense. Uh, as the next one is Amazon's new PC game, New World is a hit uh, with hundreds of thousands on stream playing it at any given time, representing a leap for Amazon's gaming ambitions. And we read it. This is very interesting because we read a headline about two weeks ago saying that if Amazon doesn't, if this isn't a hit for Amazon, uh, shit's hitting the fan with their whole gaming ambitions, that they're overly reliant on this game being a hit you guys remember that i do because i got one of them weird memories for headlines but the the headline is that it's a hit so here it is next one um a bangalore-based on-demand healthcare platform raises 48 million dollars at a half billion valuation microsoft details office 2021 Features and pricing ahead of its October 5th release coming this Tuesday. Office Home and Student will cost $150 and Office Home and Business will cost $250. With a whole bunch of new features. And what else do we got here? Uh, Monica is on stage. Oh, hey, Monica, anything, any headlines you've seen this week you want to share? Any unicorns? I haven't actually heard of any more unicorns, but uh, just been following up on some of the fintech news, which is making uh, businesses in India untenable. Um, what the RBI has done is they have reduced and uh, taken off a mandate, which allows recurring payments on your credit and debit cards. So that actually means that people will need to authorize this payment every time. So, for example, when you make a Netflix subscription, uh, every month you'll have to say that, yes, you are willing to make the payment. So this is leading to a lot of churn. It started out on October 1st. So this is the biggest headline, I think, right now, which is grabbing some headlines on my side. Okay, thank you for that. And Hey, Tyler, yes. I had one from India that was really interesting. Go ahead. Um, uh, it was Plum. Monica, did you, uh, did you guys already talk about this a little bit? There's, there's talk right now about Plum, which is uh, an Indian health insurance startup uh, that's backed by Tiger Global. There's a lot of uh, rumors and there's a few articles and I can tweet one out soon. Um, I just heard about it this morning that they might be potentially uh, an acquisition target for an American insurance company, mm -hmm. uh, unnamed. Mm -hmm. And it, it speaks to how uh, global health insurance, uh, which, you know, has been a, a pipe dream of some of these insurance companies, especially, uh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, I think uh, it does speak to how some of the, and I, I don't know the name of the insurance company and i don't think it was publicly announced monica if you know something about that that would be really helpful but there's been an, a, some acquisition leakage or or conversation about plum specifically okay 
So the next one is that the global consumer spending on mobile apps has reached 33.6 billion in the past three months, uh, which is up 15% from a year ago, with App Store spending up uh, 13%, uh, and the Play Store up 18%. Okay. And the Wall Street Journal says they have sources that the Biden administration is considering ways to impose bank-like regulation on stable coins, including prodding them to register as banks or, or the stable coin issuers will need to register as banks. And Coinbase says a threat actor stole cryptocurrency from 6,000 customers from March to May using a vulnerability in its SMS authentication. Google scraps plans for mobile-first bank accounts, which they called Plex. Sources say it's because of a departure of a Google Pay executive who was sort of the internal champion of the project. But that was going to be Google's kind of neobank, mobile-first bank accounts. That's a neobank. So Google Plex was going to be Google's neobank and it got scrapped because the main champion of the project left back in April. Okay, those are your popular headlines that your cousins and coworkers will talk about next week. Uh, But there's far more interesting tweets that we've all been tweeting that we can get into now, like this one from Ken from Yahoo Finance, that Tesla loses the China fraud case in the latest setback for Tesla in China. And indeed, this is potentially a big deal. A Chinese driver has successfully sued Tesla for fraud over his purchase of a secondhand Model S adding to a run of setbacks for Elon and team in China. What's going on, especially in light of the fact that the courts in China are not exactly kind of run by the law like they are in other parts of the Western world. It's a little more run by the government. So government perhaps sending a little bit of a message to our friend Elon that they're ready to, uh, they want to see their own Tesla competitors kind of uh, take over the show, the EV show there in China. To be continued, the next one from Kami. Uh, Honda, another car company based out of Japan. You probably heard of them. Honda prepping AI robots, intercity electric air travel, and lunar technology for 2030. Honda announced a range of efforts for the coming decade that include travel to the moon, AI-powered robots, and vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And so we can now add Honda to the list of about a dozen companies, all including Hyundai, who's actually one of the leaders in electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And there's a whole bunch of players getting, they're essentially flying cars is what they are, but they don't need a runway. They lift off vertically. So it's kind of like a helicopter. Kind of like a drone. And Honda's getting into that race, which is fantastic. I cannot wait to get a vertical takeoff and landing electric vehicle. So Honda's getting in on that one and the uh, robots and the moon. Boy, everyone's going to the moon these days. And BB sends in this one from Nikkei Japan that Microsoft is going to launch 
cloud gaming service, kind of like um, several other players. Apple has their own kind of cloud. Uh, several folks have Google has their cloud for games. And now Microsoft getting into the cloud gaming service, and they're going to announce it uh, today, I'm, basically, I'm, right now. I'm just wondering what what what's going to be the regulations i mean how the how the government is going to actually tackle the, those flying cars i mean you're just going to actually take off from the from the backyard and nobody's going to actually you know regulate that in terms of the licensing in terms of the actual you know yeah. <laughs> the the framework of it it's like by by itself is a panora box yeah it gets very likely um, it's going to be heavily autopilot because you don't want people being able to turn their their vehicles into aerial missiles. That's going to be part of the the regulation. I'm pretty confident. Yeah, they're they're working out those problems here in SoCal, Eli. Um, you know, I know I've seen some TV shows where they talk about um, how they're really handling this. Um, you know, sub. You know, basically this com- civil civilian airspace. Uh, you know, because Normally, these are where pipers and stuff like that fly, and they're all under visual flight rules, and, you know, they don't have to file plans. But, you know, now we're going to have maybe hundreds, tens of thousands of these things in the air over Los Angeles. Um, I agree. It needs to be some automated or at least system-wide controlled. There's a Chinese one from Shenzhen that's operating in parts of Germany and Japan and China, and it is fully autonomous. And it's a two-seater. And I think you're right. I think the data is going to show that the autonomous ones are uh, the way to go. And, and you couldn't afford it in a rideshare situation because that pilot, you know, is running $100 an hour. And so, like, you know, if you want to really get into a rideshare where you may pay 20 bucks to go, you know, take a 20-minute flight from here to San Diego, you know, you, you can't have a pilot that costs $100 an hour. Right. So as taxis, uh, they're far more efficient. And then you've got, you don't need a driver to take up one of the two very valuable seats. So you can have two passengers instead of one passenger. So, well, if, if it's fully autonomous, I mean, even then, I mean, there has to be like a flight path. You cannot just simply, you know, just uh, from point A to B, you can just set the path, but then aviation has to actually be aware of that, you know, there's going to be vehicles, you know, flying in that certain direction. So, um, I mean, there's more to it. It's not just simply, you know, you get the car and then you start flying all over the place. So, yeah. Okay. So kind of speak, oh, Honda announces plans to build electric. I'm just tweeting out another version of that article. And artificial intelligence could help to predict the next virus to jump from animals to humans. The researchers' machine learning models could allow scientists to preemptively develop vaccines to protect against the most likely. And by the way, that's a really interesting concept that folks are talking about. And I imagine John might know a thing or two about this, where there's talk of preemptively creating vaccines for likely um, pandemics. Have you have you heard of such a thing, John? I have heard of such a thing. Can we program an AI to predict the next lab leak? <laughs> um, oh, and it was revealed. We covered this one a couple of days ago. Uh, one of my favorite from the week. The National Gallery in the UK 
and their prized Rubens painting is actually a fake. And it was discovered by an AI that was able to tell the difference better than any. I mean, the essential implication here that even the article doesn't touch on is that this AI algorithm was able to tell that this prized piece at one of these world leading, you know, museums is a fake. Well, it's been hanging there for a hundred years. And that implies that the best ex human experts in the world were not able to tell that it's a fake, but the AI calculated repeatedly from all different parts of the painting. You can take samples from any part of the painting. And every time it said 90%, this is a fake 90%. This is a fake. Oh, you're showing me another corner. Yeah. 90%. It's a fake. Why is an AI able to do better than art? Quote unquote experts have been able to do for decades. No confirmation bias, perhaps? Mm. Well, mostly because of um, just the way that people paint, right? Because there is um, lookalikes and there's a lot of great lookalikes, but the AI is most likely um, looking at the brushstrokes and how each, and the brushstrokes under brushstrokes and all the other layers that the human eye can't identify within like the final painting. So there's a lot of layers that go into making one of these, let's say, master's works, right? And that's the same way they identified um, the Salvador Mondi was a fake as well because of how the brushstrokes were identified, even though they're so close to um, what um, Leonardo da Vinci actually taught, which is from student by student, right? And and I believe it's a student's of a student's of a student's painting as well. So, and he, <laughs> it was, but um, the main point, point is, is that... Um, the AI from parts of the pain, like you said, from strokes on those parts, and you look at, you cross-reference all of what Rubens has done, then you can see that this is not the way that he would paint exactly. So, yeah, it's a really complicated process, and humans can't do that 100%. And also, it's uh, maybe uh, analyzing the molecular structure of the paint and the, you know, yeah. um, you know the fabric yeah. or whatever has yeah, been used uh, 100 years ago. I think a human could do that with a microscope. Most humans can do that. Yeah. yeah, most humans can do that. But when it's, yeah, there's layers underneath the pain and obviously you can't like scratch down the pain to what um what the canvas is. So there's so many like, ways to go and even people x-ray these paintings as well. So it's, and that x-ray portion is probably what the AI can do much, much better than any human could possibly do. Okay. So NASA awards $253 million to two companies developing electronic propulsion tech for aircraft. And next one here, smart TV adoption rose 56% during the pandemic. And here's an interesting, where'd this interesting one go? Oh, I'm just tweeted it. Let me tweet it again right now. You've got to see this. This is the first time I've actually seen we, we've, we've seen many still photos of what is expected to be this autonomous delivery, last mile, last meter delivery vehicle. Um, it's, a, it's an autonomous little half size delivery car. Looks like a miniature van for, for like a six-year-old driver. And Domino's Pizza is using these vehicles and now there's an actual video of the thing 
and it works exactly like we thought it would work. And you can now watch this amazing video. I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW of this autonomous, half-sized, quarter-sized delivery drone, autonomous van. It's super cute looking. It looks like a little six-year-old is going to pop out <laughs> as the driver or like a five-year-old. But there's no driver. And it's a Domino's pizza delivery vehicle that drives right up to your front door. And then you open the little top and there's your pizzas. And it can hold multiple deliveries simultaneously. And there's now an actual video of it. So you can watch the future right here. So what's what's amazing about this is how many people are delivering stuff all over your town like all of these uh this big battle of these 20 minute delivery companies that are employing hundreds of thousands of people which need to make salaries which cannot work 24 hours a day 365 days a year um so this is going to get really crazy interesting and by the way this will perhaps uh, have a significant uh, price reduction in the cost of goods and make e-commerce even far more superior to traditional commerce. This will greatly amplify e-commerce even more because now it's uh, there's essentially zero cost in the delivery. So it's uh, and the speed of the delivery will likely go up tremendously as well and because they're narrower more can fit on the road at some point right so you think they're probably going to be um delivery service lanes on the roads yeah you got to see the video that i just tweeted it's like this is like i'm amazed why did it take so long for someone to make a video of this thing it's the neuro right yeah they've been advertising them here in the states but they didn't show much detail they just show like a picture of the uh, neuro showing up and then someone grabbing a pizza but it wasn't like it was it's like a four second clip <laughs> yeah anyway fantastic video so the next one i'm tweeting out now from evan the headline reads tech media has turned anti-tech what are you what's going on here the media is going anti-tech guys I, I thought of you with this article <laughs> did you <laughs> why did you think of me huh well you have a particular perspective that now Yes, exactly the headline of that article. Yes. The reaction to the metaverse is more revealing than the concept itself. Oh, great point, Gavin Hayes. You nailed this one. Facebook wants you to join them in the metaverse. The metaverse is the company's next big thing. And where they see the internet going, an online world of total wraparound experience, a lot like the Lawnmower Man version than we have now. And for now, it goes to the likes of... Oh, but... But the money is not going to the coders. For now, it goes to the likes of Women in Immersive Tech, a company aiming to support women and underrepresenting groups working in virtual augmented and mixed reality sectors in Europe. The University of Hong Kong has been asked for a study on safety, ethics, and responsible design. At the same time, the National University of Singapore will be given money for a study on privacy and data use. Oh, and this is... Facebook is giving out all this money to all of these groups to help them make a, uh, a a metaverse for everybody, where everybody's going to be part of it. 
So in short, the beautiful transhuman future of tech is presently dominated by HR departments. This level of defensiveness may seem paranoid until you watch how the tech press has reacted to even these distorted, stolen sorties. The tech industry Bible Mashable headlined the story. Facebook announces $50 million distraction as it plots metaverse. It's Valley Equal, The Verge, went heavy on the air quotes when it said Facebook is spending $50 million to quote-unquote responsibly build the metaverse. While Verdict announced that Facebook assigns 0.0006% of revenue to the metaverse safety. Mark Zuckerberg's quote-unquote metaverse is a dystopian nightmare, mumbled the left-wing online magazine. And... Far from embracing Facebook's capacity to map out a future that California Democrats can get behind, the media is nothing but pessimistic. This is a striking phenomena of modern times. We now have a tech press that doesn't like tech. In part, this is because increasingly the new media companies are not peopled by the nerds of old, but by some problematizing classes. As the tech itself has become more user-friendly, so too the tech journalist has become the kind of person who might be happier at the Vipassana retreat than the code camp. Oh, that's such a great line. And so incredibly true. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, as a writer myself, yeah, that's fun. Oh, great. The journalists seem to say more tech. Oh, wow. Crucifying these folks. Peter Thiel. The PayPal founder has a hobby horse he likes to get on about, the Great Stagnation. We've given up on bold dreams, Teal says. The 1960s generation of innovators has never been replaced. Whatever happened to flying cars? What happened to electricity too cheap to, to meter? Boldness has its own genius, and we no longer have such boldness. The reaction to Facebook's metaverse explains why. We've learned over the last decade to no longer view technology as our ultimate liberator or a tool for utopian development. Now we only see it as a widget we must crank, emotional labor, something to be passive-aggressively tolerated, the spur to a thousand op-eds about privacy concerns or a, or a million about the absence of wom women in immersive tech. Perhaps we are wiser, but we are certainly not happier. I'm never going to forget that line about they'd be happier out of a pass on a retreat than at a code camp. This is such a great point. I've hosted some of the world's biggest hackathons. In fact, I hosted the world's largest hackathon for women. And uh, the journalists are not there. They want nothing to do with it. Even the female journalists want nothing to do with it. What's up with that? Female tech journalists wouldn't get anywhere near it. What the fuck is that about? You rant and rave endlessly about inclusion and you can't even be bothered to show up at the world's largest hackathon for women. 500 meters from your fucking house. You're a fucking joke. Just to get the proportions, how many did attend? 900. Where's the clip feature? God damn it. Wow. That, that, <laughs> was, actually, that was actually a, a quite a large hackathon and again. The... Yes. Even for men, that would be one of the world's largest hackathons. We, we, here's, here's, you want, it gets worse. We missed breaking the, I, I have to be totally honest with you. 
There was the University of Virginia has been doing it for uh, four years in a row. And when I read that they had, yeah, it was that about was like the most Daisy anniversary yeah, ever. Yeah, let's do it. But I'm not going to wear Daisy. Okay. <laughs> Donna's unmuted. But the, yeah, the, the, the total was around 900. I thought we could break this. We got super, super close. We pushed right up to the end. We actually didn't manage to break the record. We missed it by about 36 people, right? In our first year of attempting it. And they, they took them four years to get to that level. So in, in true, in, to be very honest, we didn't break the world record. But, in, you know, incredibly close on our first year attempt. We certainly would absolutely smash it on the second year, especially, and most particularly interesting, is while we were, we knew it was going to be incredibly close as we got right down to the wire, like 48 hours before. So 48 hours before the event, I reached out to every female tech journalist in Scandinavia to say, hey, could you help support this? We're get, we're gonna, it's going to be right down to the wire. It's going to be incredibly close. Not only did none of them cover it, after it, we didn't make it, they wrote the headline that we didn't make it. Wow. <laughs> they are not getting any more free tickets there. What the fuck is that? It is the Swedish unbelievable totally just wow so um did you check the hand raise okay i can check the hand raise thank Thank you you. uh i nobody of interest there (laughs) but uh so Thank you for that one, uh, Evan. I just tweeted that out. Tech media has turned anti-tech. Absolutely true. We see it here every day. I rant about it endlessly. Next one is from Wired, one of the few remaining pro-tech uh, publications that actually employs geeks to write the actual articles. God bless them. And this one from Wired says, soon your Google searches can combine text and images. With the help of AI, you'll be able to take a picture of a shirt then ask Google to find socks with the same pattern. Love that. A brilliant example there. And that's that's the power of having a geek writing the article because they can actually give you examples that actually make sense like that. So the next one is from uh, Apple News. Philippines defense chief says they were urged by China to drop review of U.S. pact. China has opposed a Philippines-led push for a review of its 70-year-old defense treaty with the United States, Manila's defense minister said on Thursday. Yeah, of course, because China and the U.S. are scoring off militaristically at the moment. And the next one, also via Apple News, why mysterious supply chain issues are still popping up from The New Yorker. Why more than half a half a, more than a year and a half into the pandemic do strange shortages keep popping up in so many corners of American life? From the New Yorker. So just sending that one out. And then we covered the Blue Origin meltdown. And then David Crace sends this one in that in the face of neurotechnology advances, Chile passes neuro rights law. Chilean lawmakers on Wednesday approved a law establishing the rights to personal identity, free will, and mental privacy, becoming the first country to do so because they know what's coming next. 
is your thoughts are no longer your own. You're going to sign. You're this gonna, is long overdue. You're going to click the I agree. And inside of that thing that you just agreed to, you just gave away the rights to your fucking thoughts. <laughs> because the the Google Apple device is going to tap in. The, what it's going to be is this cute little device you're going to wear on your head. And you're going to be able to use your thoughts to control your computer or your phone or whatnot. And you're going to think this is great. But you didn't read the thing you said, I agree. Because to as part of that agreement, Apple and Google's lawyers are going to say, we need to have control of your thoughts to be able to control this device. Hence, we need control of your thoughts. And all everything you ever think is now property of Apple and or Google and its lawyers and et cetera, et cetera. So that's just how these things work. So... Uh, Chili preemptively is getting a jump on that. Pretty smart. We've already seen the devices. We can already imagine what the end user license agreements are going to be to use those devices. So we won't be able to say metaphorically that we are owned by our devices. We are literally going to be owned by our devices and their manufacturers. So Evan found one here from Futurism that corporations are sending huge mining machines to the bottom of the ocean. Let's find out why they're sending mining. A number of companies from, are moving. Juicy data to juicy metals. We need those EVs. Oh, it's for lithium and whatnot. Uh, probably more like cobalt and other things that go into batteries and motors. Let's see. The there, was, there was a great backstory on that uh, decades ago. The Glomar Explorer was this celebrated ship that had this uh, barge that could be lowered to the bottom of the ocean to collect these uh, nodules of nickel and cadmium and, and zinc and uh, lithium. And after 10 years of it being celebrated, it was revealed that the, it was actually built to retrieve sunken Russian subs for uh, state intelligence and had nothing to do with mining those nodules. Not, not only subs, they used it to p pick up uh, missiles, launched missiles, test mi missiles and test uh, launched uh, torpedoes and other things as well. So the China maybe. The uh, the article, just as you say, it's for uh, battery minerals, uh, dangling the possibility of widespread electric vehicle adoption by securing the resources necessary to manufacture more and better batteries is certainly tantalizing. But scientists told The Guardian that getting those metals from the seafloor, especially with machines that would cause a poorly understood environmental impact in an area that's nearly impossible to monitor or regulate would come at too great a cost. Here's the quote. There are some very significant questions being raised by scientists about the impacts of ocean mining, according to U University of California, Santa Barbara researcher, Douglas McCauley. How much ex extinction could be generated? How long will it take these extremely low resilient systems to recover? What impact will it have on the ocean's capacity to capture carbon? Great questions. So Honda to enter satellite launch business by 2030, Japanese car maker to apply autonomous technology to reusable rockets. They're getting watch out, Elon. Here comes Honda. And Cheryl sends in this one from Nikkei Japan that Japan races to hire 270,000 AI engineers. Oh, good luck with that. 
Japan has fourth largest number of IT workers, but in wrong disciplines. Already behind other countries in nurturing the IT profession, professionals indispensable to digital transformation, Japan in 2030 is expected to have 270,000 AI and IoT jobs that will be unable to fill. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and they're、in、not gonna... Japan is a lovely place. Welcome, Japan. Welcome to Japan. <laughs> the autumn is coming. Autumn foliage is lovely. <laughs> there's your there's your commercial right there. <laughs> oh, Cheryl. <laughs> oh. Okay, follow Tyler you, you... back to Japan. <laughs> and we were just Cheryl, and we were just talking about Kuroshi earlier. You have the best sidekick. <laughs> I love the tone in Cheryl's voice. Like the, you couldn't replicate like the, the, the insincerity, the the thinly veiled insincerity in her voice. <laughs> Welcome. I thought we were all supposed to go to Singapore. Now go to Japan. I mean, make 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 up your mind. Oh boy. They're not going to get these engineers. The AI engineers are not going to be going to Japan. It's unfortunate. Juan Cheryl, Tyler laughing that hard. <laughs> Cheryl, you have got the magic. Cheryl, actually, you can、uh, reach out to the Andela that just became a unicorn from、uh, Africa. That's what they do: outsource talent, African talent, especially software engineers. So there you、okay. go, a solution. DM me, DM me. <laughs> okay. The, well,、uh, kind of speaking <laughs> to that point, Vinay just sent in a headline. Vinay, you want to? We have to share this one, Modi. Which is the the big boss over there in India launches AI for all aims at training one million Indians in artificial intelligence in a year. You gotta love genius India's approach to this. Rather than try and import them, you grow them domestically, internally. You need yeah. So yeah, this is actually a bit old news. So I tweeted this again because since Cheryl brought、yeah. it up,、uh, it's、uh, it's from July. But a lot of the top schools, like the Indian Institute of Technology, the Indian Institute of Science,、uh, have launched since August uh, uh, programs, uh, degrees, certificates in deep learning, AI, and they're all full, filled up. There's、uh, loads of them getting in. Uh, so companies are sponsoring them as well. Companies are putting in some of their employees and reskilling through AI. So I think the target of one million will probably,、uh, the way at the pace it's picked up, will probably get done in less than a year. I love the approach. Japan needs to do the same. They, they're not going to be able to import them. You got to grow them domestically. There's too much. No, 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 no,、yeah. no, 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 no. Sorry. The India-Japan thing is,、uh, Cheryl, we're sending you about two hundred thousand Indians. Don't worry. <laughs> We've got we've got plenty to spare. <laughs> yeah, I, good、uh, job. That the the that sounds good on the surface.、Uh, I adore Japan. It's my if I if I could, you know, I'm surprised I'm still not living there. I'll put it that way. I would love yeah, to live there. Many, there. Yeah, there are many Kale houses. However,、Japan. I speak、okay. Japanese.、Uh, so if you don't speak Japanese. Uh, it doesn't really work out that well. 
<laughs> living in Japan. Japan's not interesting that enough. Interesting enough, Tyler, there's a lot of Japanese schools that have opened up in India. Uh, Japanese, Mandarin, and Spanish. Great. They're the top three languages. I love Japan. Learning I love Japanese. I love, I'm a Japanophile. I love everything about Japan. I love the people. I love the country. I love the food. I love the language. I love everything about it. However, Cheryl and I both know that it's, it's not the easiest country to immigrate to. Not the hardest, but definitely not the easiest country to move to i mean even just getting an apartment and the the whole key money thing and the rent and this and that and just the the cultural it's a different very different culture that you have to adjust to and not everyone can adjust to it and the work style and it's just and the 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 pace and the stress and it's just it's uh it's very challenging not the easiest place to adapt to that's why i buy my own house Oh, I was going to ask you, Cheryl, that you don't also give any citizenship at all, right? People Messi, work this is a great point. Japan is incredibly kind of homogeneous and it's, you know, you don't get put into the book of official citizens, you know, of Japan, even as a foreigner. So it's like, you're right. They're, it's, they're not that, um, they're not really built for immigration they're, and they're not, the culture isn't that. Yeah. great at uh, assimilating non-Japanese into Japanese culture. So to yeah. answer to Messi's yeah. question, if you are, if you <laughs> live here for more than 10 years, if you are willing to give up your name and your country's passport, then you can become a Japanese national. You need to change your Japanese name. And uh, they also have permanent residency. Uh, if, if, of course, it depends on how much uh, and how long you stay here. You can apply, but it's not that easy. Hold no, on. What that's... do you mean by you have to give up your name? Like they give you a Japanese name? Yeah, like you an have... actual... Yes, yeah. you have to give. Basically, yeah. they want more Japanese people. Yeah. In, in Japan, general. you cannot have dual uh, dual passport, so you can only choose one. If you want to be Japanese, you have to give up your passport to become a Japanese, and you need to have a Japanese name. Right. If you they have yeah, a book have a... of all the people, oh. and it's incredibly accurate. So if you want to be part of, if you want to be Japanese, you need to be in the book. And if you're in the book, you're Japanese. And that means you need to have a Japanese name. Yeah. And you have to that defeat a samurai in combat. <laughs> <laughs> no. and, and, and all those songs lied. The whole turning Japanese was a lie. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's... I, yeah. I, gonna, I knew someone. I was going to friend to that. Oh, no, one thing I was going to say is that there's actually been a movement here in the U.S. also, not specifically around AI, but around full stack. Everybody knows there's a huge uh issue with access everybody wants a full stack developer everybody wants people that can do development work right now and um you know we've been interviewing like a ton at my company and i kid you not we've started seeing like this huge wave of this sounds ridiculous but high schoolers that are incredible and apparently behind closed doors there's been this huge movement from certain states to really push high schoolers to get into hackathons and full stack development and we even have a few data science candidates and you, you know i've been very surprised honestly and I, I don't know if it's a very government sponsored thing but i can imagine uh america's trying to follow suit from japan and india i don't know i don't know if we're going to see sort of this movement towards american tax dollars going to to get you know to have our own million march i guess okay but don't hang, hang yes I think Anna Marie and Rose is here. Okay, thank you. So, yes. Um, 
before don't go anywhere donish I, I want you to go next on the one you sent about trump and then vinay sent in confirmation from nikkei japan that uh nec one of japan's big tech companies um nec app helps japan recruit indian tech engineers that there you go japanese technology group nec uh, have partnered to provide an app-based service that will match corporate Japan with Indian tech engineers. There you go. So he wasn't joking. Japan is projected to face a hiring gap of 800,000 IT engineers. And uh, boy, where are they going to get them? Apparently India. So, Donish, doctor... Uh, this do- is just a real quick comment yeah. on that, really quick. So this is the challenge that I've talked about before. Like if, like we're hiring also right now, but if we are to find someone from India or another country, we're struggling with things that are quite annoying on how to incentivize them um, to stick around and right. be with us uh, because it's the legal issues. And again, if there's someone who knows answers around how to incentivize, uh, you know, when it comes to stock options and stuff like that, it's, it's really tricky. Because some of these guys, you know, maybe in India or wherever, they just want to they want to stay where they're at, but they still want the benefits of, you know, stock options or whatever. So all these these kind of legal the governance stack of the startup needs to be solved, I think, from a global level. Yes. Okay. Um, so, by the way, um, yeah. by the way, um, just an additional information: a Paystack, um, the Nigerian-based payment processor that was acquired by um, uh, Tyler, just <laughs> poked my mind. The one that uh, the payment, the the number one American payment. What was that? Oh, I kind of forgot the name. Um, that are even adding uh, I, um, KYC on their uh, you mean processing. The buy now, pay later company no 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 the payment processor um the payment stripe uh, stripe stripe they're actually from ireland but yeah paystack that was a paystack was acquired by um stripe (laughs) there you go stripe for 200 million just i think in june of 2020 the nigerian based payment processor they just added in their service um apple pay um, you know, Africans can get actually paid in, in payment transfers from, if I'm not wrong, hundreds, hundreds or something different countries. So that might a little bit ease the payment uh, methodology. Mm-hmm. And Vinay just sent in another article that Japanese recruiters turned to India amid a talent shortage. And then uh, Dr. Donish sends in this one that Donald Trump's lawyers are begging a federal court in Florida to force Twitter to restore his account. Please clap. It's it's wonderful, uh, Tyler. The one thing I loved about it was just the the actual filing itself. Uh, I don't know if you have the text in front of you, but yes. in the filing, it was so great. The, they alleged that Twitter exercises a degree of power and control over political discourse in this country that is immeasurable, historically unprecedented, and profoundly dangerous to open democratic debate. And then they use the Taliban <laughs> as, as part of the argument saying that over the weeks that followed, Twitter allowed the Taliban to tweet regularly about their military conquests and victories across Afghanistan 
The Taliban's Twitter account is active to this day. Fascinating. Didn't they also say Trump was addicted to Twitter and hence it wasn't his fault? There was something about, you know, he he couldn't control himself or something. It was really bizarre, hilarious. The thing is here that they actually posted on an internal mail an investigation or or rather a poll about this, and that was not the case. Everybody agreed on it. He was not insane. He was uh, just as he should be, you end up. Okay. But I think that's a valid comment, the Taliban thing. That, that'll be interesting to see how the judge rules on that. I, I've already heard Twitter's response to that, where they said, uh, because the Taliban, is they, they don't, it's based on individuals. So Twitter's policies apply to individual accounts. So despite the fact that a bunch of individuals collectively call themselves the Taliban, they look at each individual. And if an individual's comments... Uh, violate their policies, then they ban them. They don't care if you're what group you're part of or not. So um, they said, well, find us a tweet of somebody, you know, that uh, violates our policies. And then that that's how they handle it. And by the way, nothing, they only care. And Twitter's kind of interesting in this regard. Twitter will only penalize you for things you do on Twitter. Things you do off of Twitter aren't relevant. So, um, if you did something off of Twitter, that doesn't apply. It's it's only based on what you actually say in actual characters on actual Twitter that they police as part of their policies. So it's, uh, it, you know, the Taliban might have done all kinds of bad things, but in, until they actually say something that actually is a, a violation of their policies, then they let that individual continue to have their account. Tyler, what's confusing is why are they going through the courts on this like what is the because as long as they're they've published their guidelines and he's violating their guidelines is this just for show or what do you think that there's actually a a point to be I, made here I do think, you think that they could reverse it no i, I don't think they can but i think it's I, th- I think trump has a very long history of in, being in you know handling things through courts <laughs> so uh, so so is, Twitter, is Twitter saying you can create your YouTube as toxic as you want and then tweet out the link to the YouTube and you're good? In theory, that does work for Twitter, yeah. Okay, just just calling it out. The, the reason why Trump is using the courts despite the First Amendment, he's got a novel theory that because of uh, Section 230 and the way that the government has given liability protection, that the government's now involved itself in, in how this stuff it gets done. So therefore, even though they're a private company, that there are First Amendment issues. And that, that's his, theory, his thesis. That, 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 is a, to... that is a public utility of sorts? Uh, yes. Okay. So are we ready for a bunch of more headlines? Oh, there's a new <laughs> rendering from Honda of their virtual... Uh, vertical takeoff and landing air taxi. So I just tweeted that one out. And then we've got this one from Evan from CNN that it's official. China's manufacturing industry is in trouble. Factories in China are struggling at a time when the world's second largest economy has to contend with yet another concern, a growing power supply issue. And if they can't produce stuff, it's going to get, it's a slippery slope. They are now on. They are sliding on moss-covered rocks. Let's hope uh, 
it works out. The next one, also from Evan, that Havana syndrome cause wasn't microwaves. Oh, snap, Chris, here we go. A declassified State Department report says microwaves didn't cause Havana syndrome. A declassified State Department report dismissed the theory that microwave weapons are behind the mysterious neurological injuries in diplomats worldwide. It should say U.S. uh, diplomats worldwide. Noises linked to mysterious injuries among U.S. diplomats. There, now it says U.S. U.S. diplomats in Cuba were most likely caused by crickets. Get the fuck (laughs) out of here. Get the, no. get the fuck out of here. We need the uh, cricket sound. We need the cricket sound now. Not microwave weapons, according to a declassified scientific review commissioned by the U.S. State Department and obtained by BuzzFeed News. The State Department report was written by the Jason Advisory Group, an elite scientific board that has reviewed U.S. national security concerns since the Cold War. It was completed in November of 2018, two years after dozens of U.S. diplomats in Cuba and their families reported hearing buzzing noises, and then experiencing puzzling neurological injuries, including pain, vertigo, and difficulty concentrating. The report um, was originally classified as secret. It concluded that the sounds accompanying at least eight of the original 21 Havana Syndrome incidents were most likely caused by insects. That same scientific review also judged it highly unlikely that microwaves or ultrasound beams now widely proposed by U.S. government officials to explain the injuries, were involved in the incidents. And though the report didn't definitively conclude what caused the injuries themselves, it found that psychogenic mass psychology effects may have played a role. No plausible single source of energy, neither radio nor microwave nor sonic, can produce both the recorded audio-video signals and the reported medical effects. The Jason report concluded. We believe. Wait, the... uh, this, this this was by the Jason. Yes. Oh wow! Yeah, and I I've spent I spent a couple of weeks with the Jasons, and they are the smartest polymaths on the planet. I think they may have missed something though. What about microwave emitting crickets? Yep, got it. <laughs> we believe the recorded sounds are mechanical or biological in origin, rather than electronic. The most likely source is the Indies short-tailed cricket. War against the crickets now. The report's findings fly in the face of medical report commissioned by the State Department and, and published by a National Academies of Sciences panel last year, which found that microwaves were the most plausible cause of the symptoms. That panel was not provided with the Jason report as part of its assessment. The uh, we're grateful to the Jason Group for their insight, which, while coming to no firm conclusions, has assisted us in an ongoing investigation of these incidents, a State Department spokesperson said, emailed. The spokesperson declined to answer questions about why the panel's findings were never made public. The 2018 Jason report, which was commissioned during the, late, the last administration, is not aligned with the Biden-Harris administration's understanding of AHI, anomalous health incidents, which is what they're calling Havana syndrome. And and it has not informed our response, says a senior administration official in the statement. Because of the acknowledged shortcomings of previous studies, this administration has 
purposefully established a new panel of experts from across the intelligence community, academia, the private sector, with access to a full range of information available to the government to help us determine the cause of these incidents and generate new insights that can help protect our personnel. You know, it could be possible, Tyler, uh, that it could be a both and, no? Like, what if there is some external source, but it gives you maybe hyperacusis or like this uh, very sensitivity, very high sensitivity to sound. I mean, couldn't that both be true? Uh, or are the Jason saying that there's what the, this is truly mass hysteria? Or is that what they're claiming? That it's mass hysteria? Uh, it says from China to Washington, D.C., around 200 possible Havana syndrome incidents have been reported worldwide since the initial cases described in the Jason report. More cases have surfaced since U.S. intelligence agencies began conducting a review of what are now called anomalous health incidences, AHIs. And after the Defense Department asked its personnel worldwide to report suspected cases in September, in recent weeks, cases have reportedly struck an intelligence officer traveling with CIA Director William Burns in India, led Vice President Kamala Harris to delay a trip to Vietnam and because her parts of her entourage were in Vietnam were hit by it and triggered the recall of a CIA station chief in Vienna. On Tuesday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 427 to zero to pass a Havana Act bill compensating CIA and State Department personnel affected by such incidences. News reports have widely blamed Russian spies randomly targeting CIA and State Department personnel with microwave weapons and attributed this view to senior U.S. officials. The Jason report provided a far less elaborate explanation, <laughs> to, put it, to put it mildly. The team was given eight recordings of incidences linked to injuries and performed an extensive analysis of two cell phone videos, two cell phone video recordings from one patient. After extensive comparison with recordings of various insect species, they concluded with high confidence that the sounds in the case came from particularly loud species of cricket. Two academic researchers who ran a similar analysis in 2019 using a recording provided by the Associated Press also concluded that the sound was caused by crickets. The Jason scientists offered another low-confidence theory that the sounds could have been caused by nearby concrete vibrating machine with worn bearings. The review ruled out pulsed microwaves and ultrasound as culprits, in part because the Wi-Fi and other electronics in the house where the noises were first recorded, worked fine during the incident. And by calculating the power required for such attacks... This is bullshit because microwave operates in the 950 megahertz band as well. So this is bullshit. 2.4 is Wi-Fi. 950 is RF. Yeah, I I haven't seen the report, um, but it, it sounds like we're at risk of conflating. Is the Havana syndrome real? from an unknown cause and the recordings of noises that were attributed to um, whatever force there was involved uh, to something. And the Jason's report, what you've read so far, just says that the sounds were those of crickets. It does not say the Havana syndrome does not exist so far from what you've read or that there isn't an electromagnetic field uh, uh, related to it. Precisely. Sorry to get the, so the cricket. They use that to rule it oh, out. Uh, they they're not coming from a level of, of, of technical truth. 
is my point. Well, it's obfuscation. It seems like a coincidence, kind of. Oh, look, they heard crickets. Obviously, well, that's the crickets are, are running distraction. Well, what exactly, I mean is, they literally. say, "Oh, the Wi-Fi works, so it can't be microwave," and that's not the truth. Microwave is a licensed okay. band, and they choose to use two point four. Yeah, I just think so, there's, um, some, there's some real significance. There's some real significance of this finding, um, and and I trust that it's true. And that is when diplomats are in foreign embassies and they hear crickets, they shouldn't head for the hills thinking that that is a, a signature of uh, the Havana syndrome energy. So uh, just to be clear, they were using eight recordings and some of the most prominent physicists in the world, uh, like Jason is not a group to stop at, um, did the best uh, null analysis as well as the most, uh, like the most scientifically rigorous thing you can do is try to disprove something. So they attempted to disprove it and uh, they, they arrived at a set of possibilities for those eight recordings they were given. Now, is that separate from the other data that they did not guess or did not see? That's, that's a separate matter. Exactly. There's a hot mic, Tyler. Uh, Amy has a hot mic. Okay. She muted her mic. Somebody else is up there. Uh, no. no, it's it's still Amy. Amy. At the bottom. Yeah. The doggy, the doggy. Yeah, I'm not able to click mute on her for some reason. Can you use Club Deck to mute all? Yes, but then that will mute everybody. Okay. Uh, I have to move her to the audience, I guess. I have that button. Okay. Yeah. okay. So um, let me add this one here real quick. Export audio effects. Okay. We've got, we've got crickets now. Here we go. Let's see. There we go. <laughs> Run for the house. Oh, That's nice. <laughs> Very calming and soothing. Yeah, very good. I didn't hear this for a while. Russian Greek. So the next one is also from Evan that psychedelics might reduce internal internalized shame and complex trauma symptoms in those with a history of childhood abuse. The use of psychedelics is associated with lower levels of complex post-traumatic stress symptoms and internalized shame in adults who suffered childhood abuse. Fantastic. Iron battery breakthrough could eat lithium's lunch. Iron flow technology from ESS is being deployed at scale in the U.S., according to Bloomberg. And is this the, those uh, rust batteries, I guess? An update yeah. on this one? Yeah. The world's electronic grids are creaking under the pressure of volatile fossil fuel prices and the imperative of weaning the world off polluting energy sources, a solution might be at hand thanks to an innovative battery that's cheaper alternative to lithium-ion technology. SB Energy, a U.S. renewable energy firm that's an arm of Japan's SoftBank, is making a record purchase of the batteries manufactured by ESS. The Oregon company says it has new technology that can store renewable energy for longer and help overcome some of the reliability problems that have caused blackouts in California and record high energy prices in Europe. The units, which rely on something called iron flow chemistry, 
will be used in utility scale solar projects dotted across the U.S., allowing those power plants to provide electricity for hours after the sun sets. SB Energy will buy enough batteries over the next five years to power 50,000 American homes for a day. Long duration energy storage like this iron flow battery are key to adding more renewables to the grid. Says, uh, said a battery expert and associate professor at Carnegie Mellon. ESS was founded in 2011 by Craig Evans and blah, blah, blah. The deal for two gigawatt hours of batteries is worth at least $300 million, according to ESS. And says the, said the genius of this unit lies in their simplicity. The battery is made of iron, salt, and water. Unlike lithium-ion batteries, iron flow batteries are really cheap to manufacture. Every battery has four components, two electrodes between which charged particles shuffle. As the batteries charge, then discharge electrolyte that allows the particles to flow smoothly and a separator that prevents the two electrodes from forming a circuit, a short circuit. Flow batteries, however, look nothing like the battery inside smartphones or electric cars. That's because the electrolyte needs to be physically moved using pumps as the battery charges or discharges. That makes these batteries large with ESS's main product sold inside of a shipping container. What they take up in space, they can make up in cost. Lithium-ion batteries for grid-scale storage can cost as much as $350 per kilowatt hour, but ESS says its battery could cost $200 per kilowatt hour or less by 2025. Crucially, adding storage capacity to cover long interruptions at solar or wind plants may not require purchasing an entirely new battery. Flow batteries require only electri- extra, extra electrolyte which in ESS's case can cost as little as $20 per kilowatt hour. This is a big, big deal, says Eric Toon, science lead at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which has invested in ESS. We've been talking about flow batteries forever and ever, and now it's actually happening. The U.S. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, otherwise known as NASA, built a flow battery in the early 1980s because these batteries use water. They presented a much safer option for space application than lithium-ion batteries developed around that same time, which were infamous for catching fire. Still, there was a problem with iron flow batteries. During charging, the battery can produce a small amount of hydrogen, which is a symptom of reactions that, left unchecked, shorten the battery's life. ESS's main innovation was a way of keeping any hydrogen produced within the system and thus hugely extending its life. As soon as you close the loop on hydrogen, you suddenly turn a lab prototype into a commercially viable battery option. ESS's iron flow battery can endure more than 20 years of daily use without losing much performance. That's amazing. At the company's factory near Portland, yellow robots cover plastic sheets with chemicals and glue them together to form the battery cores inside the shipping containers. Vats full of electrolyte feed into each electrode through pumps, allowing the battery to do its job of absorbing renewable power when the sun shines and then releasing it as it gets dark. This is as the guy says, just it could be an absolute game changer. Wait, um, have you retweeted the article, please? Yeah, here it comes. The the hard part is we don't know where to get salt water or rice <laughs> or, 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 or iron. <laughs> well, actually, actually, the the real hard part, um, at least last I looked at this, was that the round trip efficiency isn't uh, as good as say lithium batteries. Yeah, that and uh, there are too many losses in the system and there's electrode degradation. So the coatings that they're mentioning, that's probably their proprietary tech. So the hydrogen production is happening because um, instead of it, um, 
acting as a battery, it's causing electrolysis of water, which is separating in hydrogen and oxygen, which is not a good thing if you don't want an explosion, <laughs> which is why uh, these weren't pursued. Um, is there any word on Professor Donald Sadaway's uh, bat like uh, molten rock batteries? Uh, yeah, we heard a little bit about that a couple weeks, like two months ago. Um, you're talking about about molten salt rock type battery technology. Yes, um, these are these are extremely high temperature uh, molten rock uh, chemistries that uh, Professor that Donald Sadaway at MIT he was uh, pioneering way back when. So I'm not sure if it's his, but I do know there is some technologies that are using thermal energy storage in rocks. Um, the the this you know the the salt based um, approach does sound like a molten salt molten sulfur molten salts do sound like a much better approach. So I'm excited. You know that kind of stuff is really going to add a layer to the thermodynamic efficiency of of combustion. You know like if we're running down around 30% and we can get an extra 20% through some kind of cogeneration or energy recovery method thermally, like that's a big deal. So I'm excited. Okay, next one. I think one of the main things is that we can actually get power from more than one source now. So it, we, we like um, have a better a chance of like just not degrading what the earth is on different places and stuff like that. I find that super important that we can basically be anywhere and get energy. So Tyler, mm. um, I have something from the New York Times that's related to climate. Okay. Um, Go is ahead. now a good time? Yep. So um, uh, we all know how climate-driven disasters have been exceeding expectations, and the IPCC report uh, delivered a grim forecast, uh, which is closer to a best-case scenario because they left out uh, climate feedbacks like permafrost thaw and forest fires. Um, David Keith, the founder of Carbon Engineering, which aims to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, wrote a New York Times op-ed uh, on October 1st yesterday about the need for solar radiation management to slow the rate at which things get worse because carbon removal and getting to net zero may take more time than we have. Uh, everyone should understand that this goes against the business interests of carbon engineering. Uh, but unfortunately, some of the methods that he is uh, proposing, especially sulfate aerosol injection to the upper atmosphere, uh, are not without their own risks like ozone degradation and acid rain. When the IPCC now, this is about some of my stuff that's connected with with this. When the IPCC report came out, um, I reached a similar conclusion that we need to reduce how much heat is coming into the climate system to counterbalance anthropogenic radiative forcing due to carbon dioxide and uh, changes in uh, reflection from the Earth into space. But um, playing around with atmospheric chemistry is... Uh, dicey in my opinion at best. So I've been taking a fresh look at uh, past proposals for space-based solar radiation management. Uh, and in my estimation, it could be accomplished sooner than most people would guess. Coincidentally, before I knew about uh, David Keith's op-ed, I scheduled a room here on Clubhouse uh, in the Small Steps and Giant Leaps Club, uh, which is about space, um, for uh, 6 p.m., uh, October 6th 
on specifically space-based solar radiation management. And there should be people from uh, NASA and from uh, the space industry. And I'm trying to get some climate scientists uh, in as well to discuss this. And the goal or my, my hope for this is that we can form a working group to come up with a proposal ahead of COP26 uh, because uh, solar radiation management was not part of IPC, IPCC AR6 um, so that we can get something that can wind up formally on the agenda for COP27 and also work on, on developing things in the meantime. Cool. And, uh, okay. Um, next one up is from... RCC in the audience, and he sends this one in, that the world's fastest EV charging station promises a full battery in under 15 minutes. ABB will open the first station in Europe by the end of the year. Next year, it will expand to the U.S. and around the world. And it will do 100 kilometers in three minutes. And the next one, also from RCC, Clubhouse Chats were once top secret. Now it wants them to be recorded and shared. <clears throat> Which is basically... Wait, they thought it was top secret? Well, this is just, again, this is what happens when you have non-geek tech journalists sensationalizing the, the concept that uh, Facebook, or sorry, Clubhouse just uh, is now going to allow you to keep uh, recordings of your rooms. Did but, they think Clubhouse was goodwill and you could just then? Yeah, it's, this just tech journalism is just a joke in 2021. So that's just when this is my point is when 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 you read a headline about something you know intimately about, like Clubhouse and the way that that headline sounds ridiculous. Every headline is ridiculous when you know what's actually going on, and the the articles themselves are just, uh, you know, kind of uh, almost too much to bear. Um, so that's just part of tech journalism in 2021. So that's why we have to do this room. So the next headline from BB from Nikkei Japan, who actually is one of the last remaining good uh, news sources that just reports actual news. It says Apple supplier Foxconn, who builds the iPhones and a lot of Apple devices, is acquiring its first EV electric vehicle plant in the U.S., could this be the Apple car um, scaling up here? Deal with startup gives the Taiwanese company its first auto foothold in America. So maybe the car would be a partnership between Apple and Foxconn. Makes sense. This is Apple's number one manufacturer for its products. Very interesting. The next one is from Jay that some Axie Infinity players amassed fortunes. Now the Philippines government drive to tackle a problem plaguing officials worldwide how to tax new forms of online income. It's a, it's a video game slash virtual real estate uh, app where people buy and sell virtual real estate using like a, an Ethereum-based coin of sorts. It's almost like a virtual currency, like a, a currency in a game, like Facebook coins and shit like that. So, but people are making real money because the people, the, the value of the perceived virtual real estate is going up and up and up, and people can cash out for real money. So, people are making real money. And so, countries are thinking, how do we tax this stuff? So, 
Vinay sent this one in, I believe, Af- from AP News. Africa Internet Riches Plundered, contested by China Broker. It says, outsiders have long profited from Africa's riches of gold, diamonds, and even people. Digital resources have proven no different. Millions of Internet addresses assigned to Africa have been waylaid, some fraudulently, including through insider machinations linked to a former top employee of the nonprofit that assigns the continent's addresses. Instead of serving Africa's internet development, many have benefited spammers and scammers, while others satiate Chinese appetites for pornography and gambling. New leadership at the nonprofit Africa NIC is working to reclaim the lost addresses, but a legal challenge by a deep-pocketed Chinese businessman is threatening the body's very existence. The businessman is Liu Hang, a Hong Kong-based arbitrage specialist under contested circumstances. He obtained 6.2 million African addresses from 2013 to 2016. That's about 5% of Africa's total (laughs) internet addresses, more than Kenya has. The internet service providers and others to whom Afra NIC assigns IP addresses, IP, IP address blocks aren't purchasing them. They pay membership fees to cover administrative costs that are internationally kept low, that left lots of room, though, for the grift or the graft. So, uh, yeah, and I, I, and I don't know if you guys have noticed. I mean, at least I've got a few at my mailbox from, uh, you know, the, the traditional scam, the prince and all of that stuff. But they're all coming in. Now they're saying we have somebody in Hong Kong wants to get their money out, but they have Africa IDs. They're... Uh, it's sort of really, really interesting, and it threw me off for a while. That's why I started looking into this, and I found this article. Wait, yeah, this is the name. I didn't hear that completely. This is actually my arena. This is where I play my daily work. Yes, you are correct. Uh, we see an extra, uh, an extraordinary amount of new attempts with the old Nigerian scam letters, but originating from Switzerland. Germany, France, UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, same scheme. Actually, usually the same text as well. You are done. Okay. Yeah, and I, so I'm a Swedish prince. I'm a Swiss prince. I'm a. You know, it's kind of weird when you see those coming in. Yeah, it's very, very common that they have some kind of terminal illness in the form of cancer. Um, etc. Um, yeah, they, they are frequent. Same scheme, same text, new new illnesses and new countries they originate from. Okay, so Vinay just sent in one from India that the Ola, which is making these uh, electric scooters, uh, just raised $200 million in funding with a valuation of $3 billion, led by SoftBank. And we covered the seafloor mining. Visa working on blockchain interoperability hub for crypto payments. If you can't beat them, join them. Visa's new blockchain interoperability project is designed to serve as a network of blockchain networks. They're going to they're gonna bear hug the blockchain. And virtual reality isn't all fun and games, is the headline from Axios. While we're waiting for the metaverse, VR is already being used for virtual job training. Yes, it is. And that's one of the great use cases. 
And P.T. Yoder sends in this one from AP News that the military units track guns using tech that could aid foes. Determined to keep track of their guns, some U.S. military units have turned to a technology that could let enemies detect troops on the battlefield. Oh, that's a problem. And this is an interesting unintended consequence of using tech that could be hacked to in government, especially in the military. And the military needs to be incredibly careful because basically everything can be hacked, which means... Yeah, the government needs to be insanely careful about any kind of tech that they're using. For example, even having a smartphone, even military personnel having smartphones is a huge vulnerability because they are uh, coordinated around military bases, many of which are not known to the outside world. And if they're hacked and, oh, what do you know, all of these, you know, men that are all, you know, 24 years old that all fit the military profile all are living in this on a map where google maps doesn't really reveal much of what's going on there i think we found a hidden military base i think that that this happened right with uh, strava yes with with fitbit uh putting maps of where people were running for exercise and just centered around bases yeah, it's kind of uh, an interesting point. Like, And then if you start using technologies to track the, the weapons and the guns, that shit can get hacked. And next thing you know, your, uh, your foe uh, you know, knows where all of your weapons are. It's just it could get really crazy really quickly. So um, there's this open source technique, open source intelligence technique called yacht spotting, that's, uh, which is actually how... Um, people like Bellingcat ended up doing stuff like finding the FSB agents who were trying to kill Navalny, as well as linking together all the different uh, oligarchs. So they would go through Instagram photos and uh, take this, find the selfies that are associated, that were taken on yachts or near yachts by young women, for example, or the rich kids of Instagram. And then they would start to link them together based upon incidental signs in the in the image so for example someone might have a coat with the yacht's uh with like a robe bathrobe with the yacht's name on it in in the photo um and they would then put it all together to start figuring out who owned which assets so this has been going on for some time and it's amazing okay next up is one from our friend cal patel and it's from A tweet from Brian Armstrong, who's the CEO of Coinbase. And he says, it's been one year since my mission-focused blog post. And what he's referring to is a blog post he made telling his team members just after the whole Black Lives Matter protests were going on that uh, we have Black Lives Matter is a mission for many people. But uh, we have our own mission here at Coinbase. And if if Black Lives Matter is your main mission, then we suggest you uh, go ahead and focus on that and step down from your role here at Coinbase because we have our mission here and it's not Black Lives Matter. We have our mission to bring cryptocurrency to the world. And uh, that's our mission. And we have a very singular focused mission. And if that's not what you want your mission to be, then get out of the boat. And here's a very generous severance package for you. 
So it was a very, the New York Times, and it went crazy over this. And um, they were getting ready for their IPO. And maybe they understood that whole scenario that's unfolding that we discussed when we opened the room today for an hour about how big tech companies have a lot of insiders who are value-based. And if their values don't fit with the company values, then they can rock the boat and blow holes in the ship. And that leading up to an IPO, that's a, a vulnerability you don't want to expose yourself to. So they did a little uh, spring cleaning and removed out people who might not share their same values and who might sabotage their IPO. And so now Brian Armstrong has taken to Twitter to say it's been about one year since my mission-focused blog post. It wasn't easy to go through at the time because the New York Times and everybody really tried to uh, distort the whole issue and make him look like an evil, bad, uh, white tech bro uh, for doing that, but offered incredibly generous severance packages to people who didn't want to share their singular focus. And so he says it was not easy to go through at the time, but looking back, it turned out to be one of the most positive changes I've made at Coinbase, and I'd recommend it to others. And then David Sachs, who I believe is an investor in Coinbase, uh, responds and says, exactly, companies can choose to be Coinbase or Apple. They can leave politics at the door and have a happy, productive workplace like Coinbase, or they can give in to boycotting mobs and be constantly roiled like Apple. So interesting comments there from some... Yeah, that's a bit loaded, but cool. Yeah. So the next one is somebody... Cheryl? No, did you see the article on the uh, 6,000 uh, wallets hack on Coinbase yet? Yes. Yes. Oh, that's good. Because you mentioned Coinbase, I remember the article. So shop, uh, Cal sends in another one from the BBC that shopping center clinics to help tackle NHS backlog. They will be kitted out with equipment to carry out x-rays, breast screening, ultrasounds, and scans in your shopping center. And what else do we got here? We got, believe it or not, still more than 24 hours worth of tweets to get through here. Emergency visa scheme. Oh, this is from you, Demolair, I think, from The Guardian, um, about an emergency visa scheme extended in major U-turn by Boris Johnson. Threats of Christmas being ruined by driver shortages force ministers to expand range and duration of visas. Was that from you, Demolair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I literally just saw that article maybe about five minutes ago, like literally as I sent it, and it was interesting considering um all of the supply chain conversations that we've been having yeah. um throughout the and the ones that I've been posting as well. So it's like a little um it's like a little update from all of the things that we've been seeing and you know, just it's as you can tell from the Guardian article, it is an opinion based article as well. So yeah. um it's a bit um the politics of the article is is different from what you would see but understanding that a lot of people don't understand Boris's leadership but at the same time it is now a little bit more dynamic where you know people are allowed oh trying to get through to Christmas and at least have this little runway as well so Boris is trying but at the same time um 
I'm not particularly sure about how much he's going to win the people over with this, but same way, um, there's a this designation to at least try to allow the U UK people to have a little bit more jobs and even um, the European people as well. So it's um, it's a super interesting update from that as well. So like with everything that's been happening with Brexit, it's yes, it's a ch it's a change in the slightest, but at the same time, I I'm, I don't really have much hope in this aspect. It's just politics for me at the end of the day. Okay. Well, you, you have another one here that the from the independent, the world's largest vertical farm to be built near Bristol. Company Bristol, build, yeah. Company building site says it hopes to supply 70% of the UK's fresh produce in 10 years. Indoor farm. Factory farming. And Dr. France, and then this one from Fast Company, that Apple's strategy to get people to buy more iPhones. In one chart, Apple started slow and simple in 2007, but since then has begun offering iPhones for practically every budget. I think that's their main strategy is they keep offering lower and lower and lower priced phones um, as they, as, with each new year. And then the next one, also from Dr. Fran from CNET, that DNA data storage startup expands into DNA computing too. Catalog believes chemistry is the viable alternative to electronic circuits. And David Crace sends in this one that the University of New Orleans launches an esports facility. The University of New Orleans has launched esports programming with the opening of a new on-campus esports facility as esports starts turning into real business like a real sport how long before esports and video games enter the olympics and tyler one thing with that is that louisiana about 12 years ago put in uh, digital media tax credits so we have several thousand employees from um, electronic arts and many other video game companies um, that are already domiciled in Louisiana because um, the state actually gives you, you submit a budget for your project and they give you 30% of your budget up front. So you get advanced funding on projects. So you can come in and say, I'm going to spend a hundred thousand on this game and submit it to the state and they write you a check for 30 grand. So uh, it's drawn a lot of companies into Louisiana. Okay. Thank you for the additional context there. And what else do we got here? Uh, JT sends in this one that Apple invents a VR headset input system to detect gestures on an Apple ring to initiate actions. I told you Apple was likely to buy uh, the Aura ring from Helsinki, Finland, this very popular ring that geeks wear. And Apple invents a VR headset input system to detect gestures, meaning your hand, finger, like you can, you don't need a mouse. You can click by just touching your thumb to your finger, like you're clicking. And inside of VR, moving a cursor, pointer, scrolling, panning, adjusting, controlling settings, making selections, etc., can all be done by simply wearing a ring. Because the ring would know what your fingers are doing. Even one ring on one finger knows what the rest of your hand is doing. Very clever. Some clever geeks over there at this Apple, this startup. 
very smart startup they got there. That could they could be a big company someday. Tomoko sends in this one that want to live forever. There's no theoretical limit to human lifespan. New study suggests. Let's hope they're right. I agree. Yep. And Evan sends in this one that doctors uses iPhone 13 Pro's macro camera to check patients' eyes. Donish, can you you have a comment on that one? Oh, I haven't seen that article. What are they doing, Evan, with that? It's just are macro they... photography. The, the new iPhone uh, 13 camera is amazing. You can do really basically close-up photography, so they're using it as a you know, ultra close camera. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I think the, it, I'd have to look at it. Maybe they're looking at corneal exams or something, but I'll take a look at it. Okay. Next up, we got this one that the cost of shipping between China and U.S. plunges. The cost of shipping between China and the U.S. plunged this week after hitting record highs in early September as the off-season approaches. A power crunch slows Chinese manufacturing and speculators rush to sell their hoarded shipping spots. An executive with Shanghai Freight Company said Thursday that the cost of shipping a 40-foot container from China to the U.S. West Coast dropped nearly half in the previous four days, going from about $15,000 to just over $8,000. The spot rate for shipping to the East Coast had fallen more than one quarter from over 20,000 to less than 15,000. Prior to, to the pandemic, the rate was usually around $1,500. Jesus, it's gone up 10x since then. My goodness. This uh, is what I was saying about the Baltic Dry going way up. Uh-huh. Uh, the cost of shipping has skyrocketed since the start of pandemic, and on the demand side... U.S. consumers stuck at home spent more on durable goods such as gym equipment and furnishings. However, congestion at ports around the world led to the dearth of containers and speculation by scalpers looking to make a profit from rising prices. In the last week of September, the shipping rate on a route from between China and the West Coast almost halved. Uh, Matson said it had nothing to do with the slump in spot shipping rates and the October 2 long-term rate for shipping a 40-foot container from China to the West Coast is reported to the Shanghai Shipping Exchange was up $200 from a month earlier. Yeah? You should be aware that we're still seeing the recoils after the evergreen ship in the canal as well. In Europe, we are still way, way, way behind. And by the way, uh, ever, the evergreen ship ever given is still carrying the same load due to they haven't distributed the cost for, for, for I should use the ransom, but, but that's not what the fee, the, the, the punishment they actually gave. So the ever given is still loaded with uh, groceries and other things uh, from, from, from last year, more or less, you went on. Okay. So the next one is Taiwan says nearly 60 Chinese warplanes entered defense zone over the past two days. As they can, I, I, how much, how much, They've been escalating for like two years now. And how much it's just with each passing day or week, we should say, to be fair, with each week, the number of Chinese warplanes uh, circling Taiwan 
is escalating. So a year from now, you will have hundreds of planes flying over Taiwan every day. At that point, you are basically doing a military. Uh, what will be the difference? How will you know that the war has begun at that point? I think they would put up a no-fly zone, right? Nearly 60 Chinese warplanes have entered Taiwan's air defense identification zone over two days, including 38 on Friday, a one-day record since the self-governed island began disclosing relevant information in September. According to the Defense Ministry, a total of 20 Chinese military planes, such as fighter jets and bombers, entered the area on Saturday. On Friday, 25 aircraft crossed into the zone in the daytime and 13 at night. Some flew to a area off Taiwan's eastern shore after crossing the channel, which separates Taiwan from the Philippines. According to the ministry, Taiwan military planes were scrambled in response on both days to warn the Chinese aircraft away. October 1 wasn't a good day. Taiwan Foreign Ministry Joseph, Minister Joseph Wu tweeted, The PLAAF flew 38 warplanes into Taiwan's ADIZ, making it the largest number of daily sorties on record. Threatening? Of course. PLAAF stands for People's Liberation Air Force. People Liberation Army Air Force. According the to the challenges, you know, mistakes happen. And, you know, it only takes one mistake to trigger a war, you know, in, it, unintentionally. So it's so, so crazy. BB is still in the audience. I'm just wondering how the locals feel about this. Okay. BB, are you here? There she is. Yeah, she's here, but yeah. raise your hand, BB. Yep. Uh, yes. Uh, so, actually, we we get used to this kind of news because it actually it happens every day. But um, if we have harder news, it won't be reported. Um, sometimes you found if there are other news related to, um, and I think sometimes you need uh some stories or articles to cover other news. So actually, it's, um, I think if you live here long enough, you'll see, uh, even you can check the records. Actually, there, there is a daily record of how many flights from China uh, across the middle line of the cross strait. Actually, if you, um, I'm not sure if all of you know, actually it's a virtual line. So, Basically, there is no real, real, like a um, real regulation or the national law about how to decide this line. But it's a historical thing that uh, both sides, I mean, the uh, the China government and Taiwan government agreed that the middle of the uh, Taiwan Strait is the the boundary of both flights. Anyway, so I mean, uh, although still there are some people, they, they think we should finally be a united nation, that means only one China, but since um, from 1949, when the Republic of China, that is of 
the uh, official name of a government was supposed to um, fled to Taiwan, if that's the way to see it, then uh, then it's so so we are always under the threat of war. But since no, the new generation, they never have that kind of war experience. So we here we call it the natural independence. That means they think we are Taiwanese instead. We are uh, the people of Republic of China. That means the RP, the Republic of China means uh, means very little to the new generation. So uh, I think this affects the new generation more about how to value ourselves. So for example, if uh, there, there, there is always this poll before the election, like, do you want, uh, will you fight if China uh, uh, attack Taiwan? Right now, um, I forgot the real number, but each year, each year, it get higher and higher. And another question uh, is often asked is about, who do you think, um, okay, what, uh, are, are you a Chinese or are you a Taiwanese? So the same, more and more think we are Taiwanese instead of we are Chinese, that means the, the citizen of Republic of China. So, it, but it's interesting to see the attitude of our government because we all know what what the people here in Taiwan want is peace and remain our economical achievements here. So nobody wants war, but if the government wants to win the election, they need to use this kind of threat from China to make people think we need to unite to fight China back. So it's, and, 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 and uh, our, also we have the, the, now the government is the DPP government and the, the opposite side is the one who are more, uh, in favor of China. So like they have the new chairman last week and the, the chairman got the uh, congratulation letter from Xi Jinping. So it's it's strange if China live, did, live land by themselves, then DPP because of the pandemic, actually they, they lost a lot of votes mm. because the and policy of the vaccines. So we don't want war. So we don't want most of people here think remain what we are is the most important. So, so, but, but China government always poke at the strange timing. That means for it, uh, for our last president election, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, it's her for a uh, second second term. So before that, uh, it was Hong Kong's protection against the national safety law. So it's an example that 
what China's gonna do, even after they promise we will keep one China two system. And in the end, they they promise that to Hong Kong for fifty years, but it's just more than twenty something years. Then they broke it. That means here in Taiwan, we also think, even even with trusting China in the first place, but in the end, you see. Oh, that means it won't happen in the end. So, uh, like, <laughs> I, know, I know Tyler. Tyler, I thank Tyler for you know, reporting, or or let let the world know how often this quarrel between China and Taiwan. And actually, I know TSMC actually is one of the most important asset here in Taiwan because uh, that assure at least the U.S. will protect their assets because um, yeah, most of the investors are not from Taiwan actually. The biggest investor is from U.S. Anyway, so okay, uh, is that too long? I mean, we don't want war, but we uh, the new generation, especially the new generation, are willing to fight if there's a war. So you can see if nobody, or no, I mean, no, no mad uh, leader is up on the both seats. I mean, the China's chairman or China's president, because um, CCP's chairman actually is bigger than the president of China. Then yeah, our president, if they, they can play this game, on the verge, safely long enough, you won't see a war here. And especially if we have um, US government support behind this. And now since we, um, US is trying to form the Quad, yeah, uh, in Indonesia, uh, India, China, and India, Japan, and Australia, um, then, and the AUKUS thing. So the Indo-Pacific uh, Alliance are, are in a new situation right now, but still, I think we don't want war. And so re keep the remain, I mean, the, keep the situation right now is what we want the most. So- Take this call. Yeah. Yes. Thank, yes. thank you, baby. That's it. Thank you. Alrighty. So, um, on the China front, somebody just sent in this one. Oh, Evan has this one from South China Morning Post that China's population could be cut in half in the next 45 years. Researchers say previous estimates may have severely underestimated the pace of the demographic decline. And Heyman sends in this one from VentureBeat that... Uh, it asks, are AI ethics teams doomed to be a facade? Women who pioneered them weigh in from VentureBeat. And it's the the ladies who were at the Google AI ethics team and other leaders discuss tensions surrounding AI ethics in big tech and what teams need to succeed. And they're asking, are, are, is this purely just uh, corporate theater, essentially, by even having these teams? Uh, do they even really sincerely have an interest in this? Or are they just, you know, kind of 
doing the equivalent of greenwashing or paying lip service to the issue. And they're questioning the sincerity of big tech's uh, AI ethics teams. And Netta sends in this one from The Verge that Samsung is bringing digital car keys to its phones starting in South Korea. So your phone will now, they're partnering with a lot of car companies so that your phone can unlock your car. And Merck's experimental pill to treat COVID-19 cuts risk of hospitalization and death in half. The drug Molnupiravir could be the first oral antiviral medication for COVID. And we were joking about the name of it when it was revealed about 24 hours ago. And Donish kind of broke the news here right as it was happening. And uh, turns out, because we were joking about the name, Dr. Donish found out the source of the name, this crazy fucking name of this crazy pill. You want to reveal it here, Donish? So hilariously, uh, I'm not sure how the story, the origin story of this, and you understand why I'm using those words specifically, but the origin story of the name uh, is still unknown. But the thought process behind it is it's actually named after Mjolnir, which is Thor's hammer. <laughs> and that's where the name actually came from. Uh, and I was joking with Tyler uh, on, on it, you know, I DM'd him on Twitter and I was like, I wonder if there was like this whole, can you imagine this corporate boardroom and everyone sitting around, they're like, man, the data looks really good here. I, I, I think we should name it after Thor's hammer because we're going to beat the crap out of COVID. And someone's like, John, you're a genius. What a great job. You get a promotion. Like, that's what it feels like. Like, who could possibly have thought that this was the right name for it? Probably the same one that thought Lucifiron was a good name for, its, <laughs> for the uh, <laughs> other stuff, right? I have a different theory, which is that they did some research and they were curious what, for the people who are anti, because this isn't a, a vaccine, right? It's a treatment. And so anti-vaxxers will take this because it's, it's, it's what they really hoped, uh, that ivermectin would be, which is a super effective treatment, cutting your risks of, you know, uh, really strong COVID in half, right? This is like the way, you know, obviously. This is what they thought ivermectin was. Actually. Right. So, <laughs> so this, this is the, the ivermectin crowd and the anti-vax crowd are going to love this. So this is really especially suitable to that demographic as such how do we make a name that speaks to them on a on a deeper level knowing their proclivity for conspiracy theories so um let's add in some interesting you know um metaphysics and so let's figure out what is their favorite movie what is the favorite film or or yeah character uh, what is the favorite film of anti-vaxxers? And somebody did some data analysis of what is the favorite film of anti-vaxxers, and it's, I'm assuming it's The Avengers. Oh. <laughs> and I think that's why they're naming it after Thor's hammer. But, yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Wow. <laughs> My clap for an amazing name. And that it has some magic, magical Thor-like powers <laughs> to fight COVID. Oh. 
Yeah, just a hunch. What What do we have to do? What do we really have to do? To I, I honestly, I this is way too personal for me. I'm sure Tyler and everyone in this room knows by now. I've lost family members to COVID. For God's sake, I lost my stepdad. It's just uh, my sister-in-law's mother. I, I don't get this. I don't get it. It's like even our own family member who just saw these people die still don't believe it. I don't understand this. It really kills me. So it's, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to get out of this, um, especially now, not only the resistance, but not also accessibility being in Africa. You know, it's like what the entire population in Africa is like, what, um, 3.5, only one dose. Um, and if you look out into double dose, it's, it's I think, about 2%. I'm just wondering how we're going to get out of this pandemic if we are It's going to be go these like oral that. antivirals, Messi. To, to your point, you know, the beauty of, you know, people always, I just want to say this because, you know, again, People have heard me on my soapbox. I will say this very quickly. The vaccine was a way out. We, as a collective, some of us decided not to use it because there was either misinformation, disinformation, or just fear. And the healthcare system, the way we have it right now, it's funny how if we had a healthcare system that was based around prevention and we had been talking about prevention for the past 15 years, had we said, hey, Here's another part of prevention, which is taking a vaccine, which, by the way, is technically a preventative step. But you can't tell people, not talk to people about eating healthy and taking care of their bodies and being ready for the worst case scenario. And then suddenly and, and then, you know, always be pushing drugs on them once they're actually sick. And then once in a while, when it's convenient for the healthcare system to say, hey, take a vaccine. It's hard. It, it, just, it just doesn't jive well. And so that's why people didn't trust us to do the right thing. People didn't have trust in the healthcare institutions because we were suddenly speaking a completely different term. Now, the reason why, you know, I know that, you know, a lot of the physicians and people around the world are like this new drug. And as Tyler, you know, yesterday when he was running through these, there's like, you know, 10 or, you know, there's like five or six different antiviral oral pills that are coming out from everyone and, you know, every one of these large pharmaceutical companies. This is. You don't have to trust us. Once you get sick, we'll take care of you. And that is unfortunately where healthcare is at its, you know, like the way we've set it up, we're at our best. Don't trust us before you get sick. Trust us once you're sick. And that's like where we've shined in the past. And, you know, uh, the, that's what's going to happen. So how are we going to get out of this? It's going to be drugs like this because we can't, we don't have a relationship with patients as physicians, but also as a healthcare institution where patients trust us before they get sick. They just don't. And, and that's what's happened. So the way we get out of this is by these kinds of drugs, allowing us to save them from dying once they do get sick. So, you know, anybody that ever says that my doctor never talks to me about prevention, you are not allowed to talk crap about vaccines because <laughs> that's literally what it was. Uh, but we just, you know, we just didn't do a good job, I think. I agree 100%. And even if you try to talk about these things, you're not paid by insurance and you're only paid by insurance when you're following the whole code, which is doing the test, writing the prescription, spending eight to 10 minutes. That's it. No prevention. 
you shouldn't leave out the fact that the mistrust is being driven heavily by uh, state actor uh, sponsored disinformation campaigns on social media. Yeah. That is a new thing. Okay, too I much just money wanted... is involved in medication, and too much money is involved in pharma companies and policymakers, and yeah, the healthcare system is not geared towards prevention at all. Okay, just some facts in, from Singapore. More than 82% double vaccinated. Um, the number of cases are doubling and they are expecting 5,000 cases in less than one week, in about one week and more after that. Doubling, doubling. What about, what about hospitalizations and deaths? Um, yeah, um, well, this 5,000 days, has, I mean, they expect it to be either asymptomatic or not so severe. Uh, I Yeah, the... The hospitals are still okay, but the, the cases are also uh, in, increasing, but not at such a high rate. So it's still manageable. Wow, the the Singapore chart is crazy. Yep. Uh, funny yeah. that the, in the past 28 days, more than 30,000 30, uh, infections, but only, uh, that means uh, more than 98.2% is without symptoms or just uh, very light symptoms. So it's they're, working. They're taking a different right? strategy now. They mm. are treating it as an endemic. So they are also opening bottles. So I think for, I think the past few weeks, about 1,000 tourists have actually, I mean, German tourists actually came into, I mean, not tourists, travelers came into uh, Singapore from Germany. Oh. But, but just want to confirm because, you know, Cheryl, I think the point you were making, which is fair, is that because they have such a high vaccination rate, despite the fact that cases are going crazy, Right. Uh, people aren't dying and they're not ending up in the hospital. And so that that's again, you know, speaking about prevention, you know, I the prevention strategy is get everybody super healthy. We never talk about that in healthcare at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the other one is getting everybody's immune system prepped and prepared, which is vaccines. We never we never really talked about that that much with our patients anyway. And mm-hmm. so now suddenly trying to have that conversation with patients. It's not going to work. So what are we going to do? We're going to do early treatment and this is going to become endemic. It's going to be like another flu that happens every year and we messed up. It's healthcare. It's, you know, and if we don't, you know, what's going to happen five years from now, we'll all talk about it. You know, we'll all be getting drinks and we'll be like, oh, you remember when we we went through like a two year pandemic, man, that was really tough. I hope that never happens again. And then we'll go back to our normal ways. And that's what the biggest, saddest thing about this entire experience has been for me, at least. Yeah, and, and yeah, I, I just all like the to add. Antivirals are coming out, and that's what uh, it's all about the medications. Yeah, the, the one thing I, I think... want to add to the discussion has to do with the Barrington Declaration um, that uh, Stanford professor who was in the White House and Sweden's policy. So, Sweden had three times the death rate of uh, adjacent countries. Uh, their presumption was, look, <clears throat> we're all going to get it. We might as well just get over with it and get herd immunity through natural infection. The consequences of that are three times the death rate, uh, massively higher uh, long COVID. And the smart strategy at that time was to bet on the emergence of both vaccines and therapies, which we now have. And so there are countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have died globally unnecessarily because of those signatories to the Barrington Declaration, including Nobel laureates who are not virologists or epidemiologists and policymakers who were willing to overlook 
the prospects of the benefits of being more cautious until such time as we had pharmaceuticals in the form of uh, vaccines and therapies, which this Merck drug really presents. So I just, from a historical perspective, I, I would just like to say the signatories of the Barrington Declaration should be hiding in the shadows um, because it's, it's absolutely tragic how many people died as a result of that misguided policy, including the Stanford professor who was in the White House advocating, uh, just let it roll and, and we'll get natural herd immunity. The thing we'll say that including the, like, the I, children, I, you know, the neurodegenerative impact on children and their growth and they are affected for the rest of their lives. All these children who are getting affected right now. Thing is, since I live in Sweden, I've been following this closely. I actually work with a journalist that have weekly reports regarding this one. The thing is here that uh, our uh, master of science regarding this with how to handle this pandemic. Uh, he said already in April uh, that, oh, we will reach herd immunity in May last year. Uh, uh, so we don't need to do anything because uh, this is uh, nothing more than a cold. And people were dying in droves during the first wave. So we thought that they, he might have learned something during the first wave. So when it eased up over the summer, he said, oh, see there, we were right. Nothing to worry, nothing to see. Everything goes back to normal. And then the second wave hit with, with another, an additional 7,000 dead. Okay. Everybody said, okay, this is for real. And he said, oh, we have no reason to anticipate a third wave during the spring of 2021. And boy, was he wrong. It went really, really wild. Look at the graphs over how Sweden's uh, rates of people hospitalized and death. We had 202 dead in the same day for a week in, in this spring. So, yeah, Sweden should be a really, really, really warning market for anybody else that, no, do not go on a socialist agenda when handling your people. You are done. So if I can go back to Messi's original question about Africa, Messi, I wonder if Africans have uh, a, a, a culture or their sort of their own way of uh, medicating, sorry, of taking care of their health without just resorting to the Western concept of the drugs, drugs to, after you get sick. For example, what about masking? Do you think uh, knowing that vaccine is not going to be easily available in Africa that quickly? Uh, is there a possibility to... Uh, encourage individuals in Africa to wear a mask in all cases, if, if at all possible, or some other ways of, for example, tracing or testing. Are those things that are possible uh, to help uh, protect Africans from uh, this this pandemic before vaccination is going to be uh, universally available there? Actually, it just I was I, I was really amazed. Um, most of um, most of the time when COVID broke, I was in the U.S. and I was stuck there because of the lockdown and the stuff like that. So I came when I came here um, in May, I think in May of this year, and I was really shocked how people are not actually wearing masks and everybody is running around. And I was just trying to understand how the hustle and bustle and it's just all those things that I love about being in Africa 
here in Ethiopia was was happening, and and I was just shocked. Um, even after I got off the airport. And one of the things is that I think the Ethiopian government in other African countries, um, they did look down and, and try to get even like, you know, the hygiene and the masking and everything at the beginning. But, you know, um, the daily lives of Africans is just became impossible. Um, I can tell you that 40% of Ethiopian small businesses are micro businesses that they they earn their daily, daily life by just running around and doing things. So it, it just they, those people weren't going to stay home. And I think they went back to normal. Uh, but the other thing is also, I wonder, is is the affordability. So the Ethiopian Health Ministry did try to do things, but I think it's just, I mean, it's just is too much, the capacity and things like that. It just is. Um, and even the culture to get them to start wearing masks all the time without stopping. And, and even some also resistant about it, that believing that the mask is going to be, um, you know, the the silver bullet is just um, is impossible. So I don't see it now. In fact, when I run around, I tend to be the sore thumb in town wearing masks because... Uh, I don't know, uh, even 60% of the people don't wear masks. They are just all running around. And, and even when they see people dying, family members dying, like I said, um, some people just don't believe that this COVID is for real and that there's any way to stop uh, wearing masks. So I think it would take a huge campaign like the HIV when, um, you know, in the 90s, there was a big campaign to convince people and to believe into that. So I think um, it will be. I think it, it is very important that the equitability of the vaccination just needs to come. Um, I, I would really, really recommend for everyone to watch what the South African president said at the UN meeting just a week ago. You know, I, I was just so shocked that, um, close to 6 billion doses have been given and um, uh, the top 10 developed countries have taken 82% of that and Africa barely has 2% of that. And to me, it's just inhuman and, and, and inacutable. How do I say that? <laughs> um, and that we need to just have a better way of distributing the vaccinations. One positive development, and I'll just shut up. I learned this from Chris, is that the um, a lot of funding is going to a South African pharmaceutical that's developing a vaccination for just Africans. So they just raised, I think, a month ago, about 600 million euros uh, from the European Investment Bank and the African Development Bank and others are, are really funding that pharmaceutical so that they could just develop a vaccination for Africans. Yeah, and that will be So one thing in all of this, Messi, is that... Um... Malnupiravir is actually going to be priced based on income uh, of the country and based on GDP per capita. And so uh, Merck is doing an incredible job, in my opinion. They're ramping up production right now. This is unlike the vaccines, which need cold storage and cold transport, which is a huge issue, uh, especially across uh, certain types of the mRNA vaccine specifically. Um, you know, this this is an oral pill that can be 
handled and transported and under normal conditions. Uh, and so, uh, uh, again, my, my sense, and I know that John and a few other people agree with me, like this is probably the biggest game changer in terms of how do we get people to, to survive this pandemic? I think this is effectively the first shot fired that will, that will lead this pandemic to become more endemic. And just to be clear for people, endemic just means it will be around, but it won't be something that uh, it will be around like the flu. Uh, that's that, sort that, of the, that is the something we, we can, we can debate, but uh, there, mm-hmm. I, I have something that's related to this. Uh, um, Akiko Iwasaki of Yale, who's, who's been doing really important uh, uh, research throughout the pandemic. Uh, her Twitter, Twitter handle is viruses immunity uh, tweeted out a paper about um, uh, how uh, vaccination uh, doubles the rate of remission uh, of from long haul COVID from long COVID. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news, though, if you look at the graph from the paper, uh, over 120 days, it's like going from 10% remission or so to 20% or so. So this is really serious. And uh, uh, I mean, treatments are great, but uh, not having large portions of the population even get the asymptomatic infections uh, that might not take them to the hospital uh, where they get these treatments, but they could still wind up with long haul COVID because it's only loosely associated with severity. Um, you know, this is this is a, a disaster of morbidity that's going to play out over years and years and years, and people are just fo- uh, focusing on on death rates, and that's only part of the story. Just really quickly on the possible good news that they have started uh, new clinical trials on nasal spray vaccination. So hopefully if that gets approved and uh, in the market quickly, uh, the storage, the availability of the vaccine is going to be a lot easier than the current ones, which requires uh, cold storage. So perhaps that would be uh, a a very good positive news for a region like Africa to make it available much quicker and much cheaper to the population there. So let's keep keep our hopes high. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd like to add on to Eli's point about long COVID. Um, at almost the same time that the CDC in late spring, early summer was saying, oh, you can take your masks off now. We're good. You're vaccinated. You're good. Um, the UK was experiencing their first wave of Delta, and it was affecting the children so much that they opened 15 dedicated pediatric long-haul clinics because of the number of children that, to Eli's point, were getting a serious long-term disability associated with the long-haul aspects of COVID. So again, looking, I mean, at the time, everybody I knew who understood this virus well was appalled at the take your mask off advisory um, because of what was clearly already evident in the UK. So um, there are so many um, uh, lessons learned with every prior pandemic that have that that were not heated in this pandemic, um, you know, premature declaration of success, as uh, was mentioned in Sweden, um, that occurred repeatedly in the U.S. Um, and coming from authorities, um, it seems to be a feature of pandemics because the political lens is so different than the scientific lens. And so um, I, I just, the reason I'm 
bringing this up is not for recriminations. It's going forward. The next time something like this happens, hopefully we'll have a little more of a memory trace and institutional memory uh, about how humble we should be about declaring success prematurely. And this long haul is the long tail of COVID that long after it transitions from pandemic to endemic, we're gonna have millions of people, many millions of people globally fighting this long haul syndrome, which is really disabling. Okay. For me, Go ahead. The last thing I would say is just a minute is, it's just is mind blowing and so, so disappointing. The developed countries are talking about a booster shot while other countries are not even having any yet. So unless we globally tackle this, we're not gonna get out of this. That's just my opinion. Okay, here we go. Um, from the independent, where did it go? Where is this one from? Lucast sends in this one, uh, from the independent in the UK, buy Christmas dinner now and freeze it. <laughs> Shoppers are being told army of temporary workers from overseas is unlikely to solve UK supply chain chaos because visas can't be processed in time, says immigration lawyers. So if you can find a turkey, buy it. If you get your Christmas turkey now, while you can. And that should yeah, be I think that's what the Boris Johnson um, repeal is trying to do as well. So it's interesting that that headline came through as well. But the UK is 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 in turmoil at the moment when it comes to this subject. You're starting to see it in the states too. The supply chains are starting to get thin. The shelves are starting to get pretty thin at your local, uh, you know, big box. Then yeah, Eric, like, like just on my little life um, where I live, like I'm seeing that the sweets that I usually get, I can't, I can't find like all of the candy that's usually there isn't there. So yeah, it's a lot different. And then Eric uh, Io sends this one in uh, of a video I just tweeted out of the f first ever footage shot inside of a hurricane of and it was done by a drone equipped with specially designed hurricane wings, enabling it to operate in extreme wind conditions. The sail drone collect is actually a, a boat drone. And the sail drone collected key data on Hurricane Sam. And you can watch inside the hurricane because the, the, the eye of the hurricane is several meters wide hundreds of meters wide i guess or 100 meters wide and it's just sailing around in the center of the eye of the hurricane and you can see the waves on the ocean and everything pretty wild evan sends one in that says from daily mail why havana syndrome is a global experiment in mass suggestion is it a sonic weapon or CIA officers just having an off day? Expert Dr. Robert Bartholomew reveals why Havana syndrome is a global experiment in mass suggestion. Is it all in the mind? How the mysterious Havana syndrome is a global experiment and not targeted attacks, experts claim. It says all in the mind um, and not targeted attacks experts claim there are cases around the world but experts say it's all in the mind targeting a huge hotel with sound waves defies the laws of physics 
mass psychogenic illness documented as far back as the Middle Ages. The Philippines government used Katy Perry songs to break up a riot. Is Havana Syndrome really just a case of hearing cicadas and crickets? What has the Cold War, dog poo, and mosquitoes got to do with all with it all? And it says, Jesus Christ, they're not even the same physical medium of transfer. One's <laughs> electromagnetic, the other's fucking pulse pressure pulses. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Since Havana Syndrome emerged in 2016, the U.S. government has made the mysterious phenomena an intelligence priority and spent tens of millions of dollars investigating potential microwave weapon attacks for, by foreign adversaries. But medical sociology expert Dr. Robert Bartholomew is so convinced it's a case of mass delusion. He's co-authored a book on it with Robert Balo, Havana Syndrome, Mass Psychogenic Illness, and the Real Story Behind the Embassy Mystery and Hysteria. The unexplained illness, which was first recorded in Cuba, has since spread to U.S. embassies around the world, and some in Canada. With a reported 130 cases, symptoms include hearing loss, severe headaches, memory issues, dizziness, and brain injury. Dr. Bartholomew doesn't mince his words. He means what he says, and he says what he means. There is more evidence for Bigfoot than there is for Havana Syndrome the U.S. expatriate who is based at the University of Auckland told Daily Mail Australia. The evidence overwhelmingly points to mass hysteria, or as it is commonly referred to by scientists, mass psychogenic illness. Havana syndrome is the result of incompetent government officials and bad science. I would go so far as to rename it Havana syndrome delusion. The absurd belief in the wake of persistent evidence to the contrary that diplomats are being targeted with an energy weapon. He says it is possible to use noise as a weapon, just not in the way Havana Syndrome victims maintain that it is. In the Philippines, the government blasted Katy Perry music to break up a demonstration. Which, by the way, that's cruel and unusual punishment, by the way, according, isn't it? By, they could use Bieber Be- 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 and they would flee all of them. Yeah, but that would be, you would, you would go to The Hague for that. That's kind of, that's, I mean, that's essentially what the Nazis were doing, wasn't it? So, the other than that, it doesn't work w- very well because of the laws of physics. And worked on Manuel Noriega. <laughs> Dr. Bartholomew says there are four theories as to what's causing Havana syndrome. Number one, a sonic weapon. The first theory that popped up was that it's a sonic weapon that uses sound waves to make people sick. This one is really far-fetched because these people in Havana weren't targeted in the embassy. They were targeted in their homes and mainly in two big hotels. To target somebody in a huge hotel would defy the laws of physics. 99% of the sound waves would bounce off the outer wall. It just doesn't work that way. Number two, pesticides. The second explanation was that it was pesticides that were being sprayed to kill mosquitoes that were carrying the Zika virus. The problem with this is that there's no neurotoxin in the world that only affects American and Canadian diplomats (laughs) and their families. Number three, fray effect. The third explanation is this microwave stuff, the fray effect, an auditory phenomenon where microwave and radio frequencies generate clicking sounds inside the head. This gained popularity after the National Academy of Sciences came out with their report and said it could be the fray effect, but they weren't sure. If you look closely at the report, it was just a guess. The person that identified the mechanism in the fray effect is Ken Foster at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a bioengineer. I contacted him, and he said it's definitely not the fray effect. 
Number four, mass psychogenic illness. So you're left with only one plausible explanation, which is mass psychogenic illness. The first people in, infected were intelligence officers on, a, on, a, on the same small station. This is a defining feature of mass psychogenic illness. It follows social networks, and it usually begins in these small, cohesive groups and spreads outwards. And that's exactly what happened. These people all belong to a common work environment. There's a high degree of stress. They're in a foreign country. They knew they were being surveilled 24-7. It's a classic setup for mass hysteria. Dr. Bartholomew says mass has, the mass psychogenic illness has been found around the for centuries in various forms. It used to be called mass or epidemic hysteria. In the past three or four decades, it's been called mass psychogenic illness. The phenomena has been around for millennia. There are clear cases dating back to the dancing mania of the middle ages and beyond i have collected about 3500 cases going back to the middle ages it started in a small cia unit in havana cuba in late 2016 and that's exactly what you would expect from mass psychogenic illness it starts in small close-knit groups and then spreads from there usually to people of lower status which is exactly what happened here and so you have these cia officers walking around near their houses noticing that there are these strange sounds at night and then one day one of them felt unwell, felt they had dizziness, ear pain, and they went to the clinic at the embassy, and the guy made an observation that, you know, it was almost like somebody was pointing a device at my head. This should have set off alarm bells in the medical community, but didn't. After that emerged, they heard from two other officers from the same unit that they had heard these strange sounds as well. Then a theory emerged that they were being harassed with some secret weapon. It turns out there's a long history of Cuban agents harassing American diplomats in Havana that went back decades. All of the diplomats... Uh, one second. All, all of the diplomats that were sent to the new embassy in Havana that opened in 2015 had been briefed about it. Ah, so it was, it was a pre-planted concept. Because during the Cold War... Cuban agents were notorious for harassing diplomats. They would sneak into their houses at night while they slept and throw dog poo on the floor. Open up all the windows so you get mosquitoes, all sorts of things. So when they went over there, they were paranoid. They were on the lookout for this stuff, and they know they are being surveilled 24-7, so you've got this sense of anxiety already. Dr. Bartholomew says, Belief in Havana Syndrome amounts to a global experiment in mass suggestion. What happened in the U.S. State Department issued a warning to their embassies all over the world to diplomats and intelligence officers to be on the lookout for anomalous health incidents that may or may not be accompanied by strange sounds. What do you think is going to happen? Now people all over the world are on alert for unu anything unusual in terms of health. People have mysterious health incidents all the time or just health incidents in general. So now it gets redefined as, oh, it must be Havana Syndrome. Dr. Bartholomew is fired up and passionate in his criticism of Havana Syndrome as a non-existent condition. It's a big waste of money. It's an international wild goose chase that has wasted tens of millions of dollars by the U.S. government, gotten people needlessly upset, wasted valuable time and resources during the pandemic and during a time in the world when we're fighting global warming and this money could be used better elsewhere. All they had to do was follow the facts. They didn't follow the facts. You can summarize this case in one sentence. When you hear the sounds of hoofbeats in the night, first think horses, not zebras. The State Department looked for unicorns. They were going the most exotic hypothesis, which 
with some kind of sonic weapon, why in the world would you think you were being targeted by some kind of sonic weapon? Yes, some people heard noises, but the noises weren't the same. They were high-pitched noises. There were low-pitched noises. They were all over the place. They were all having ear pain. Well, it's not uncommon to have to hear noises and have popping sounds in your ear. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. Go ahead. Yeah, the thing is, I actually have another theory. We have weaponized drones. Why not weaponized chicadas? Go target that fat English, <laughs> that fat American over there, and annoy him. This 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 neglects this neglects the science, right? That RF is already used in radio ablation. There's a company called Novacure that's not related to Evanesque, which is you know uh, already doing radio ablation. And like, so we know that microwaves affect brain tumors. We know by fact that microwaves affect mitosis. So, you know, this guy is just, this is an agenda based article, to be honest. He's in Australia. You know, they're, they're trying to find proponents in Australia for China. I'll leave it at that. Hmm. There you go. There is, there is really a lot in that article to consider though. And um, there's, the, um, I, uh, I don't know if you, you come across um, in Sweden, Tyler, resignation syndrome. Have you, have you come across that in, in Sweden? And it, it's um, resignation syndrome. It affected particularly hold on. refugees. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold Katarina on. Katarina just sent me a DM. And, and so basically, Katarina, Katarina's right? DM. Katarina's yeah, DM I got it right here. Completely confirms everything Yes, I said. here we go. This Evanesque is... is working at 950 megahertz. 950 is nowhere near 2.4 gigahertz. And that's microwave. And it's been proven to affect mitosis. Here we go. So like this is just total bullshit from this author. I'm sorry. So Katerina just found the receipts right here from Penn Medicine News from University of Pennsylvania, which has one of the best medical uh, universities programs around. And it says advanced neuroimaging shows brain matter alterations in U.S. government personnel who develop neurological symptoms in Cuba. Images reveal key brain differences, particularly in the cerebellum between impacted patients and healthy individuals, which may, which may underlie clinical findings previously reported by the Penn team. Brain imaging of 40 U.S. government personnel who experienced a host of neurological symptoms after possible exposure of an unknown source while serving in Cuba revealed significant dif differences in brain tissue and connectivity when compared to healthy individuals, according to a new report from the researchers of the University of Pennsylvania's School of Medicine. The findings were published today in JAMA, JAMA, a, a leading medical journal. The areas Im implicated in the patient's brains, namely the cerebellum, as well as the visuospatial and auditory networks, align with the neurological symptoms that were observed in the patients, says lead author Regina Verma, PhD, a professor of radiology and head of the Diffusion and Connect uh, Precision Healthcare Research Imaging Lab at Penn. These differences persisted even when people with some history of brain injury were excluded from the analysis. There you go. So it's not, they're not imagining it. It's not hysteria. They actually have brain damage from it. Hey, Tyler, Chris Sorry is like to get so genius. fired up. No, he's right. I was about to say, Chris is a genius in this area. An absolute genius, because I've 
you know, had back channels with him on this stuff. He's a genius, and we should all listen to him on this because he really knows this stuff. I mean, it's I don't, amazing. I don't, I don't, no, just to point it out, I don't know it. I'm positing a, a theory, and I'm positing a theory based on my expertise in RF and other things. And so that's all I can say. I'm not a genius. I don't know the answers. I'm positing a theory. Yeah, that's close enough, Chris. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, a distinction without a difference right there. <laughs> and then th th thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Because in this article, it's also written uh, that uh, this is just um, happening and on an average uh, populace. When you test the brain, you will find some um, change of the white matter. But of course, I was suspicious also about this thing. But it's at least it's published uh, from the Springer Scientific Press. And then it's a really bad case of peer review because uh, this is a scientific um, uh, publishing company. And uh, I wonder what's going on, really. And um, of course, this, this is something um, which is interesting for the people and they will buy the book probably, maybe because someone says it's all hysteria. And I just found an interesting uh, Wikipedia page, a list of um, uh, mass hysteria cases. You can just Google it up. And I, I remember one in Japan about uh, sickness of men where they were so convinced um, Maybe even some got very sick from the um, imagination, uh, but I don't remember the case exactly. I didn't didn't find it on this on this Wikipedia page. It's uh, cases of mass hysteria, and then it's it's funny to read. And so you are right, Chris, that um, this could all be totally different because uh, you can do a lot with microwaves, for instance, if you have the sender on on, on different locations and you're fo focusing it on people, then uh, it's hard to detect maybe only on the location where you are um, have your focus of the microwaves. Uh, and so it's it's still an open case. And I, I would say, let's just be careful and not close the case. Uh, this this is just one book. And for me, the, the case is not closed. That's my point. Thank you. So Katerina also sent in an, an additional point um, about a paper from the NIH, which is National Institute of Health, uh, Pathophysiology of Microwave-Induced Traumatic Brain Injury. Studies have shown microwaves in the frequency range of 800 to 1,000 megahertz can penetrate the cranium and that 40% uh, of these can reach the deep brain. Absolutely, because if you put your brain into your head, into the microwave oven, uh, you will just be killed after a while because this is heating uh, the uh, organic uh, tissue, the water, the H2O and all that stuff. And so it's, of course, a question of the dose, uh, the um, how, how much um, how much intensity of the microwave, and then it will just kill you. And uh, the military uh, did already use it to, uh, for instance, to, for riot um, uh, um, to to protect or to fight against riots, uh, because uh, then people feel like burning and so on. And so it's it's still a speculation what's going on and could be half true because. 
maybe in Cuba it started with microwaves and later it ended up in uh, mass hysteria. This uh, hybrid story uh, can also be, and just to be clear to Chris and all the others, uh, I don't like the Chinese government. Yeah, I'm not here to defend anything or or also the Russians because, uh, you know, Cuba is um, historically uh, more connected with uh, Russia with Putin. I, would I wonder what the that that doctor Bartholomew would say to the the article showing the that there was brain damage. So here's the other thing that's mechanically different. So 2.4 gigahertz, the unique phenomena of that frequency is it causes water to polarize and start wobbling. That's why we have the ability to heat stuff with the microwave. Specifically, 800 through 1,000 megahertz is more focused on anti-mitosis, meaning preventing cellular replication. So when the cell goes into cellular mitosis, goes into telophase, I believe, it stops it right there. So bodies can't, the cell, the brain cells can't replicate. And that's why they're looking at it for brain tumor treatment for glioblastomas and other things. And just to add one more point, you know, I am working with the NIH. I have been since last year and, and on a completely unrelated issue. But the people I work with are at CDRH and they do work on brain imaging and other things. And so I brought um, Evanes to their attention because it is a different technology than Novacure's technology. And, you know, this is double confirmation from many sources that, in fact, RF is used for radio ablation of brain tumors. So there's no denying that RF can destroy brain cells. And, and, that, and that's just a fact. And so that's where I leave it right now. Absolutely. And there's also an article on Wikipedia. It's not a microwave weapon, but it's a, a huge article on it's called directed energy weapon. That's the umbrella term. And this is very interesting because it's fascinating to have a weapon without a bullet and just with radiation or from uh, like the Star Wars thing from the from the satellites. And you can just point to the enemy and kill him or um, paralyze them. And so it's, of course, a huge, um, interesting uh, innovation field, just to, to say. And um, yeah, as I said, I, I, I don't know much uh, enough about it, sorry. Uh, so I, I leave it open what's, what's happening, but this will not be probably the last book about it. Thank okay. you. So quick question, Will uh, and Chris. What about 5G? I mean, are, all those are conspiracy theories or there's some, some reality to it because it's so much forceful in terms of the actual RF signals. I, I would just say this blanket statement. Um, we don't fully understand the electromagnetic spectrum. I'm just going to say that. And it's not, I don't mean that as a tongue in cheek. It's just <laughs> to believe that we know everything would be arrogant. <laughs> so if I can add 5G is supposed to be safer because it's harder to go through the cranium, the wavelengths. It's not, the strength is not necessarily the, you know, what makes it harmful. It's also to have the right wavelength to pass the cranium and the hair. For example, near infrared would be really great to treat all kinds of inflammatory um, related disorders in the brain, such as cleaning up plaque and stuff. Um, and it's really strong, right? But um, it's really bad because you can't, the hair, disperses it and also it does it doesn't have the right wavelengths to really pass deep through the tissue 
So the strength is one thing, but you have to have the right wavelengths to actually pass. And 5G is actually has been shown to pass less through the cranium than other um, than others we um, um, like 3G and stuff like that we had before. So. Okay. Thank you. For yeah, that. exactly, exactly. And uh, even uh, I think it's not uh, going through the skin that deep, like the older um, waves of the mobile um, of the mobile spectrum. I'm not quite sure, but I think it's uh, even it's not so deep into the skin. Just to make clear that um, there is also s some uh, gossip around five uh, G. Okay, so Nalormi sends in an article uh, about a VR full body suit in which you can now feel rain in VR with a full body suit. Somnium Space and Tesla suit partner to bring full body haptics to social VR so you can uh, really get immersed in the uh, VR space, yeah? Until we get those yeah, cables. Tyler, I actually... Until we get until we get yeah, the brain computer interface, you know, properly mapped onto the tactile <laughs> parts of the brain, uh, we're going to need a suit. Yeah, I actually tested that. Uh, I think back in 2019, that was the test phase of it. Um, they only had like about 50 suits at that time, um, and my goodness, it was just like you know, true life experience, pretty much. So you can. Well, uh, I mean, were you were you doing the... were were you doing VR porn with the suit by chance? <laughs> yeah, it was uh, you know in their language it was kind of like close to that. But I, for the um, record, he, Your the... Honor, for the record, he didn't deny it. Go ahead, Grom. <laughs> no, I was in the, in between like maybe five thousand, ten thousand people. So obviously, I couldn't do that. But uh, just quickly feedback on that particular point, especially on the Tesla suit. Um, I wasn't expecting that it would be so close to the reality because um, although they didn't have all the sensors, I mean, pretty much all over. I mean, it, it had that on the back and the front, uh, your stomach and, you know, your chest a little bit. Um, and, um, you know, on your legs, your thighs and, you know, shins. So it wasn't all over. But the feel you get um, while just like having it and then just playing a game like where you were actually going through the jungle and then you were just driving a car and it just feedback is just so real um, just out of this world pretty much so okay, yeah well, I tested that and I can testament to that speaking of out of this world Tan in the audience sends in this one that we need to figure out how to have sex in space for human survival and well-being. Houston, we have a problem. Love and sex need to happen in space if we hope to travel long distances and become an interplanetary species. But space organizations are not ready. National agencies and private space companies such as NASA and SpaceX aim to colonize Mars and send humans into space for long-term missions, but they have yet to address the intimate and sexual needs of astronauts or future space inhabitants. This situation is untenable and needs to change if we all hope to settle new worlds and continue our expansion in the cosmos. We'll need to learn how to safely reproduce and build pleasurable, intimate lives in space. To succeed, however, we also need space organizations to adopt a new perspective on space exploration, one, of, one that considers humans as whole beings with needs and desires. As researchers exploring 
the psychology of human sexuality and studying the psychological aspects of human factors in space, we propose that it's high time for space programs to embrace a new discipline, space sexology, the comprehensive study of extraterrestrial intimacy and sexuality. And so this is why you guys may or may not love me. But do you remember Spaceballs? And they had that kind of like Dr. Ruth like uh, <laughs> virgin alert. <laughs> to move forward, space organizations must stop avoiding sexual topics and fully recognize the importance of love, sex, and intimate relationships in human life. Accordingly, we encourage them to develop space sexology as a scientific field and research program, one that not only aims to study sex in space, but also design systems, habitats, and training programs that allow intimacy to take place beyond our home planet of Earth. We further propose that given its expertise in the political climate of Canada, the Canadian Space Agency is ideally positioned to become a world leader in space sexology we have what it takes to pave the way for an ethical and pleasurable space journey as we continue to boldly go where no one has gone before. Okay. The next one from Jeff G from the Wall Street Journal. The Colorado River is in crisis. The Walton family behind Walmart, the richest family on the planet, is pushing a solution. The first ever official shortage on the Colorado River has intensified a debate over how to provide water for 40 million people across the southwest of America. And so what are the Walt? The Walmart heirs have spent heavily to promote their view that water markets are the best way to deal with a dwindling supply. And they're correct on that. Let's hope it happens. So tweeted that one out. The next one from Evan is a photo, actually kind of a video of the first electric flying taxi from Airbus. And it's actually looks like an advertisement, actually. And it's, as you might suspect, from a huge budget company like Airbus, absolutely gorgeous so you can now add airbus to the list of honda and hyundai and a dozen other companies all battling to be the electric vertical takeoff and landing it's coming my god there's a whole lot of companies with a whole lot of money all pushing these flying cars of the future i can't wait the next one and in, and in may it, and in may, it was like a pipe dream to even think this was coming right a year <laughs> ago yeah this now. this in the past year the amount of progress that's been made with this is astonishing yeah, yeah even in the last six months yeah school one for the pandemic workers and uh, yeah a lot of people but do we really want like flying things over our heads hell yeah like, we do then flying into each other damn right like yes. the quality of life Yep, and I don't know if I want like my kids to walk on the street and an idiot is what looking at his phone and crashing into some other idiot yes. watching Netflix. Yep, we do. Yes, the the answer is absolutely. So the next one's from Eric I O from the Times. There's been a seven hundred eighty-seven percent increase in a particular disease diagnosis over the past 20 years, particularly among women. And I think you know what comes next. I think you know what sound I'm reaching for. There's been a 787% increase in what over the past 20 years, particularly among women. I read it, so I'll keep quiet. Okay.
fibromyalgia. Cariz? I don't know. Autism. Autism? Yeah. 787% increase. So about a 10x increase. Or or a 7.8% increase. Oh, no, a 7.8x increase, nearly 8x increase. Yeah, but is that diagnostic? Um, is that is that like a better diagnostics or an actual increase? Yeah, there's there's two sources of this. And, and what you're referring to is called ascertainment bias. And so as you better learn how to diagnose milder and milder cases, all new diseases are originating from the most extreme cases, and then you expand the definition, you expand the diagnosis. That's the natural history of a new diagnosis. And so that has absolutely played a role. But there's also evidence in addition um, that the number of cases along the entire spectrum is increasing. So it's it's a real concern. Okay. So to my knowledge, the one, the one thing that's been found consistently to um, to have a direct impact on whether or not you're like uh, to increase the odds of your child having uh, autism is the age of the father, which is why you tend to find these like bedroom communities that have increased amounts of autism. It's not the water or fluoride or whatever it is. It's because it's like the guy's second or third family, and it's these young, you know, the like it's a lot of. This is really biased, but the there's a typical wife that tends to really like this very, you know, the like, no, I don't want medicine. I'm going to put garlic oil in my ear to get rid of an ear infection, whatever the hell it is. Right. And this community tends to see it more, mostly because they are second and third spouses on second. And like, it's an older guy who's successful and is now living in Westchester or whatever. And there's a typical pattern that, that is, uh, that is happening, but I don't know that anything else has been found consistently to um, increase the likelihood of autism. So yeah, old guys that, having sex is the reason. Well, the, you know, the, the age of the sperm has been strongly correlated uh, with the risk of autism, as well as a, a number of other diseases. Um, the, the other circumstantial piece of evidence is if you look at uh, uh, people of Somalian origin, and there's a huge community in Stockholm, there's a huge community in Minneapolis-St. Paul, and there's a huge community in San Diego. Um, the thing that is remarkable is that their uh, incidence and prevalence of autism is way higher than any other uh, uh, immigrant population. And there are many families with two and three autistic children in the same family. So no one knows why that is, but it's probably not coincidental that Somalia has served as the dumping grounds for toxic waste for major industrial nations in the region for decades, and that the piracy that emerged off the coast of Somalia was actually a second-order effect of the initial uh, fishermen uh, from the villages going out and attacking the ships that were dumping toxic waste um, in their near shore waters and killing the fishing industry. So there, there is in fact a potential connection between toxic waste and autism. Um, there's no other explanation that I've heard proffered for the very, very high incidence in Somalian descendants.
But couldn't it also be that if they are staying within their community and marrying, there's cro- there's like gene concentration and crossover. The same thing happens with nomadic Arabic populations. And there's other groups where they have very intense levels of uh, what some diseases that are considered rare. And primarily it's just because of intermarriage, right? There's just not a broad enough gene pool that's uh, that is in a particular area. So they end up having, you know, multiple strains of the same thing which increases the likelihood of being of having a, a, an issue that that's a real phenomenon but the parents of these children are first generation immigrants okay next up david crace sends in one from the washington post it says um workers are putting on pants to return to the office only to be on zoom all day Pandemic era safety procedures have created a new dynamic at work in which many employees say they're operating at work the same that they were at home. And David sends in this one from Quartz that a new website is vying to be the go-to resource for the burnout generation with over 500,000 pages of resources. Find Center aspires to be the Wikipedia for the world's wisdom. Flash your mics if you've been at Find Center. So this is clearly a paid for PR piece. Okay. The next one's from Evan, and it's basically photos of an off-grid solar-powered shipping container, tiny house that has it all. Plug-and-play off-grid. It has never been easier. You just have a container delivered, and it's a solar-powered shipping container home. Now you just need water and and a garden. And then you've got, this is very cool. I'm tweeting it out now. Wannabe supervillains rejoice. You can now 3D print a robot dog army. Boston Dynamics gives us a robot dog. Yeah, so you can 3D print the parts. There's now a, a plan you can download to print your own 3D uh, robot dog. And why stop with one? Why not make a a pack of dogs? Make your own sharks with lasers. <laughs> with lasers, freaking lasers. And Discord, which had copied Clubhouse, now retires the discovery interface for its Clubhouse-like audio broadcasts. Hmm. They've decided to kill what they call the stage discovery. Hmm. The first one to go down of the clubhouse clones and California. Wait, um, but for that's, it's surprising about discord discords, uh, group discord has grown exponentially over the past year because it is the primary place, um, for, well, blockchain communities tend to migrate there. It used to be, telegram but now it is uh discord discord is the core community finder for um for like not only any nft group but also any group that um that wants to have like it's like slack like communications um and different channels right so they've got channels and stuff like that um so it's grown a lot and then the grape uh network just started that grape protocol brings the um it brings Discord and Twitter, I think, into blockchain. So it's only going to get bigger. It's on Solana, and it, that's what shut down Solana. 
that that offering was because uh, it's huge. It's going to be it's going to be really big. So I'm surprised um, unless what they're doing is they're not going to focus on doing something like this. They're going to just going to go all in on this community building rather than audio app. Yeah, like my thing with Discord, and I remember the conversation I think we had about two weeks ago on Discord again. It's like um, there's a lot of communities that I'm part of, like whether it's been football or like um, fashion or even like SpaceX, right? Um, that the live discussion feature on Discord has always been like a major use for Discord, especially when people are all either watching football or even like watching fashion shows or whatever it is, right? So I can see a very straight line between the evolution of the live discussion feature to having a clubhouse level feature. However, I don't understand where they probably went wrong in the discovery of those because that could have been really powerful for people to want to see more live discussions based on the community size as well. So that could have went well, but it seems like they may have um, you know, launched it inefficiently. Maybe they'll integrate a different one. Like maybe they'll provide like clubhouse integration. Maybe they'll take an API from, you know, from Spotify or something and add that in. I could see that happening. Yeah. I don't know why they would kill it because it's, it's another community builder and they're doing great with that. So I don't know. Okay. Next up is California gives Cruise and Waymo okay to charge for their fully autonomous taxi rides driverless robo-taxi service in and around San Francisco. Get there, here it comes. Get ready. Clubhouse, Vimeo, Double Verify, and others set to sign up to beefed-up disinformation code in the EU. Audio Social Network Clubhouse, video sharing platform Vimeo, and anti-ad fraud startup Double Verify are among a, a clutch of tech companies and organizations Pardon me while I open the Apple news article here. Uh, are among tech companies and organizations preparing to sign up to a beefed up version of the European Union's Code of Practice on Online Disinformation, the Commission said today. Back in May, the EU's executive said it would be strengthening the voluntary code with which is aimed at driving joined up industry action to counter the spread of harmful disinformation online. It called on smaller digital services and ad tech firms to sign up, saying it particularly wanted broader participation, not just the usual platform giants. Facebook, Google, Twitter, and Mozilla were among the first clutch of tech platforms to sign up to the EU disinformation code back in 2018, while TikTok joined last summer. Eight newbies are said to be preparing to agree to the beefed-up code now. In addition to the three aforementioned startups, the commission said organizations that provide specific expertise and technical solutions to fight disinformation, such as a bunch of companies you never heard of, are preparing to join. Substantial additional efforts are needed to reduce the flow of harmful disinformation, as illustrated by the recent electoral campaigns and the signatories' reports of the COVID-19 disinformation monitoring program. The EU says, among the shortcomings the Commission has said it wants the revised code to address are inconsistent and incomplete application of the code across platforms and member states, blah, 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 a bunch of legal bureaucrat talk there. But while the intention is to beef up the code, it will remain self-regulated. 
For large internet platforms, there will be, if not literal fangs, then some threatening growling as compliance will with the beefed up code will be taken into consideration. And if self-regulation still fails to move the needle on harmful online disinformation, like COVID uh, vaccine stuff, um, the commission could still propose legislation. However, it seems reluctant to do so. In a statement on the eight new prospective signatories who have joined the revision process, um, they said, I am pleased to see new actors on relevant sectors answering our call. And yeah, the EU commissioner for the markets says, I welcome the fact that more and more pl- online platforms are, are joining whatnot. So interesting. Next up is from Karam. The earth is dimming. It's due to climate change. Warming oceans cause fewer bright clouds to reflect sunlight into space, admitting even more energy into the Earth's climate system, warming ocean waters even further. This is the downward spiral that has begun. Yeah, it says roughly about uh, half of what per square meter has been reduced in past 20 years. So effectively what it means is that whatever is coming our way, if it's not getting reflected, which is about 30% has to reflect back, it's going to stay here. And if it stays here, then yeah, we can do the math. And and that that heat, yeah, part, part of the change in albedo or the reflectivity is permafrost thaw as well as uh, Greenland ice and uh, Antarctic ice and Arctic ice melting. And as we heat up, that melting get, gets worse. So this process feeds on itself. And then Eric sends in this one from MIT Tech Review that an AI intelligence could predict 10 years of scientific priorities if we let it. And Chetna sends in two articles back-to-back that play together very nicely. The first one says, from BBC in the UK, What bosses really think about remote work? Many managers are itching to get staff back to the office despite employees championing alternative setups. The second article from The Guardian in the UK (laughs) says employees are accepting pay cuts to keep working from home. (laughs) But should they? And Netta sends in this one from MIT Tech Review. Artificial intelligence is learning how to create itself. And Craig Nielsen from Sweden sends in this one that a New York congressman wants the Treasury to print a trillion dollar coin to pay off the U.S. debt. (laughs) The Treasury Secretary can mint a $1 trillion platinum coin to avoid defaulting on our debt, but it could potentially spook the market. Does anybody, does anybody think that, that like the lack of understanding of how money works (laughs) is always shocking to me. Did you see what Venezuela did? I didn't, I didn't message it to you, but. Venezuela now has decided to do digital money and the digital money that they've done, it's not necessarily a CBDC as we know it. It's literally just like a digital, you know, Venezuelan peso, I think is what they have. So because their inflation rate is about like 5,000%, I think, 
um, they, they just decided to create this digital money and they just took off zeros. So instead of paying 5 million pesos, you pay like, you know, like 500 or something like that. And the, the idea that somehow this digital thing is more valuable because like they could just deem it that way. It's like, I just, I always get really scared. Like people here that don't understand it. Okay. It's not your job. It's okay. I mean, I hope it's not your job. But when it's like government officials or people in the treasury or whatever who come up with these ideas, like you know, I'll just I'll just draw dollar bills in in my basement. No, but Alexandra, there's a constitutional basis for this platinum coin. Okay, there literally is. Okay, because the treasury and it's 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 a stretch, but it was even considered during the Obama administration when they had the, the debt ceiling crisis. Also, is that the the treasury. And it wasn't intended for this. It was intended to like, to print commemorative coins. It has an unlimited ability to pr- uh, to print uh, coins, but not bills, but coins without anyone's permission. So the theory is if the Congress won't do it, you, you print a coin, and you say it's worth a trillion dollars, and then they take the coin and they deposit it at the Fed, and then they can borrow from the Fed, and then they can, and then they can you know – pay off the you know our u.s uh debt obligations that's the theory nobody wants ah. to do it because okay nobody wants to do it this because it probably no spook the market. because it makes no sense right it makes no sense then if there's say a trillion dollars available to satisfy the coin like the, a va- the value of that to satisfy that coin or that debt could be satisfied through assets that plus the circulating money that is currently available, right, which would presumably all come from the same pool, there's just not enough, right? So that would be essentially me drawing a big picture of $1 trillion in a coin with a happy face on it and saying, okay, this is worth $1 trillion. But hey, it doesn't what, mean anything you laugh, unless but it can actually you, be. You laugh, but if you did it as an NFT, it might work. Well, then I would get a million dollars because I, I am amazing and could do that because I am. I'm just saying, looking NFTs. looking at the price of NFTs lately, we could get ourselves out of this problem with a few, you know, cartoon drawings. Leo from the audience also mentions that Venezuela's uh, coin is the Bolivar. But for them, what they're doing is just. Uh, it, th- this is something that Brazil tried to do before. There are several countries that have tried to do this where they literally try to recalibrate their economy by recalibrating their money. It doesn't work. And I'm not really sure, like maybe there's no history books that they've read or whatever, but it doesn't work. I'm not really sure why they're trying to do this, but all it does li- literally is make math easier when you're trying to figure out how much like a conversion rate is or whatever, but that's it. It doesn't do anything. You've not changed at all the amount of debt that uh, the debt to asset ratio for the government, you haven't done anything to it. So, but they're right, that, but what Venezuela is talking trying. about is, is, is different than what they're talking about printing this plat- platinum coin. They're two completely different things. They are the two completely different things. I just mentioned, did you see the thing that happened in Venezuela? And that is how I merged okay. into that story. Okay. And then does anybody else, when everyone says this giant coin, do you see like a coin the size of a Pazuki from BJ's or something like that? <laughs> I see, I see Saturn's rings, personally, but yeah. Okay, next one from RCC. I, I was thinking Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> uh, some Walmart shoppers have accused Walmart of killing Christmas after it's replaced its traditional layaway program with a buy now, pay later service that not everyone can use. 
There's no hidden or late fees with Walmart's buy now, pay later service, but some customers end up paying interest rates of 10% or more. You killed Christmas, Walmart. And in Portugal, there's virtually no one left to vaccinate, according to the New York Times. Portugal is among the most highly vaccinated countries in the world. And yeah, there's there they have vaccination rooms and vaccines, but no one left to vaccinate. They're done. Well done, Portugal. The next one's from Lucast from ftfinancialtimes.com. Britain's winter blues, Christmas shortages are now a certainty. From petrol, gas, and food supplies to hospitals under pressure, the UK could face a series of overlapping crises, which is why they're telling you to buy your Christmas presents now because they won't be around in December. And this one... Wait, can, yes. Oh, before you do that, can we just uh, really quickly, the the buy now, pay later versus layaway. This I was asking a question about this, I think it was yesterday or the day before, um, in this room about like the difference between layaway and, and buy now, pay later. If if this excludes, if, if people are no longer going to be able to have access to their their preferred payment type or the payment type that they can get access to, uh, I think that that's a problem. I think that the prevalence, if it's going to squeeze out the ability of people to be able to pay over time for goods and services that they have been using and they don't qualify for the new method, um, even though they did fine with the layaway thing, it's not like a bunch of people who partially paid and then ran off with the goods, right? So I, I'm 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 concerned about that. I think that would that should be something that people consider. Um, you know, maybe there's a benefit to doing buy now, pay later for some companies, but in addition, I think they should probably continue to offer layaway. I don't, I don't think that it's, I think that that would be troubling. That would basically pull a bunch of people out of the marketplace. Okay. Uh, speaking of UK shortages, Tan in the audience sends in this one from the UK and independent UK petrol stations sell out at two Two pounds sixty-eight pence per liter, about which is what now three, just over three dollars a liter. If someone can do the dollar per gallon on two point six eight pounds per liter, so that our American friends can get a an equivalency. Um, as shortages send fuel prices soaring, prices rising even before supply crisis. Does the article do the calculation? Oh, we could do it in Google here. Let's do it like this. So how much is it, Kyler? I got it. Two, uh, it's 2.68 pounds per liter, so we need dollars per gallon. 2.68? Yes. Pounds. My goodness. I thought like it was 133. In USD per gallon. It's $13 a gallon. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit. My goodness. Order the Tesla. It's nearly 14. 13.74. Sorry, Tyler, just to confirm that, is it is are you saying that on the gas stations it's selling as 2.86 or 68 whatever it is? 2.68 pounds per liter. 
is it an official price or is it a black price and the people are actually getting on a higher price? That's the price at the pump. Is that, gonna, right. is that going to translate to the U.S. at all? Because that would totally change the market here. That it did in the 70s and it'll change it again. Is that going to translate limited to Europe? Uh, it says... Uh, no, that's the so, only problem. That's so the way the UK uh, pricing works for, for, for petrol at the gas station, um, it's based on, on, on competition. So some, some, some uh, suppliers will bring it in at a lower price and some, sometimes you know, there's supposed variations in the type of fuel. But, um, in, and, and for service stations, for instance, on the motorway, they typically charge more. For service stations in the, in the city centre, they typically charge more because there are less of them. Um, and then, you know, people kind of know where the, where the service station is to get the best price. So that might be um, uh, price gorging in the, in the typical sense, given so shortages. Okay, here we go. Next one. Katarina sends in this one that former Google executive warns that AI researchers are creating God. Hold on. Where, where's my uh, uh, suspense? Former Google X chief business officer Mo Gawadit says that the AI developers are creating God and that humanity is in trouble because of it. I think let's, let's have a little looky look into this article, shall we? Dire warning. According to former Google executive, the singularity is coming. And what's more, he says that it poses a major threat to humanity. Mm, hold on. We got this is absolutely X-Files, Reb. Mo Gawat, formerly the chief business officer for Google's uh, organization called Google X, issued his warning in the new interview with The Times. In it, he says that he believes that AI, or artificial general intelligence, AGI, the sort of all-powerful sentient AI seen in science fiction films like Skynet from The Terminator, is inevitable. And that once it's here, humanity may very well find itself staring down an apocalypse brought forth by godlike machines. He told the Times that he had his frightening revelation while working with AI developers at Google X, who are building robot arms capable of finding and picking up, picking up a small ball. After a period of slow progress, Gadot said that one arm grabbed the ball and seemed to hold it up to the researchers in a gesture that, to him, seemed like it was showing off. And I suddenly realized this is really scary, he says. It completely froze me. The reality, the reality is, he added, we're creating God. There's no shortage of AI fear mongers in the tech industry, Elon Musk has repeatedly warned the world about the dangers of AI someday conquering humanity, for example, but that kind of speculative outlook somewhat glosses over the real hazards and harms linked to the AI we've already built. For instance, facial recognition and predictive policing algorithms have caused real harm in underserved communities. Countless algorithms out there continue to propagate and codify institutional racism across the board. There are problems that can be solved through oversight and regulation, but you wouldn't know it. Know that if you, like he, think of AI development as inevitable birth of a vengeful god.
and vertical. Yeah, and Tyler, so, didn't, you, didn't you cover this uh, human, um, this UN Human Rights Commissioner about the moratorium? Yes, didn't we did cover this? last yes. week. Yeah, no, so it's a bit connected. Well, the 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 Google's not in the uh, EU; it's a U.S. company. So, although it was a UN uh, person, UN, yeah, 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 but That's, it wasn't. The, there, the, it, it was the, nobody of any power or whatever. But yeah, no, no, it's it's a, the fear of super intelligence yes. is the root of this. Well, this yeah. is somebody who's actually working on it now, uh, saying this, and in fact, is the former chief business officer at Google X, which does these very you know, forward looking, uh, efforts. I like his example that he gives though. So, so the thing is, uh, you know, AI only gets the power over humans that humans give it. Um, we could develop really smart systems and contain them. Uh, that's a different pathway though. There are, you know, debates and issues, uh, connected with that. But, uh, the thing is that, one thing that I strongly agree with uh, in, in what you read is that it could be upon us much sooner than we expect with very little warning. And well, that's where the big problems Well, lie. here comes the warning. Next article. Neuralink, Elon Musk's Neuralink co-founder predicts that humanity will get wrecked. Neuralink co-founder Max Haddock has a pretty grim view on the fate of humanity. The robot uprising is inevitable and they will leave humans in the dust. <laughs> Judgment day. Judgment day. So this is two folks who are at the top of their game, both claiming it's inevitable. They both use the words inevitable. It's only inevitable if we make it inevitable. Humans are still in charge of this. Well, let me counter that thought, Eli, very, in a very friendly way with the following uh, realization that that process of atoms uh, in, after the Big Bang, when the atoms combine to form molecules and the molecules combine to form cells and the cells combine to form tissues, and the, then every layer, you know, combines to form a far more complex layer where chemistry creates biology and biology creates society and society creates technology. This seems to be a predetermined pattern at play here. That we ourselves well, might not be aware of our unknowing. I mean, as much as we think we, we have conscious agency and free will over this issue, perhaps we don't. Uh, well, certainly we don't if we decide that we don't, right? Uh, if if we see it coming and we just kind of stand around like a deer caught in the headlights without uh, good reaction times or estimation of how quickly it's approaching, then then well, yeah, we're 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 kind of doomed. But uh, we don't have to be. Well, here's an, here's another thought that there are. By the way, I've had dinners with some of the people named in in these past two articles. And their belief is that we were put here to make it and they're seeing, they see their life's mission as to enable it. 
So if so, so that that comes from from uh, this view that like evolution works in a super in, in, in a particular way, and its it, intelligence is always uh, superior. Uh, a, a very unintelligent virus is kicking our ass, by the way. Um, yes. there, my point is, is it, it's, it's that, much yeah. Evolution is much more postmodern. Yeah, my point is, is that when there are the the leaders in these fields believe that it's their they've been put on this planet to precisely create these AIs, it's going to be hard to stop it. Well, that, yeah, you're right. That is a separate issue as opposed to the validity of, of like evolutionary destiny. Um, and uh, that actually is probably a discussion that should be brought out in the open and uh, made very publicly visible, especially uh, in connection with like killer robots and uh, other developments that are happening at the same time so Neuralink I mean that's exactly why Neuralink is developed right by Elon Musk because he also believes that and he says only chance humanity has is to basically merge um, yes that's to be, to be cyborgs that's that's a vision and it's also cited uh, the mission statement I and I got to the uh, Twitter uh, to the tweet of uh, Elon Musk it's if you can't beat them, join them. But this is not a success principle. Sometimes you can um, join your own uh, murder. And to Eli, I like your optimism. And I always like, Tyler, your realism. Uh, you have so much experience uh, in all kind of domains and are yeah very clear in your words. And here it's about... Um, just the definition of superintelligence. If it's uh, more intelligent than us, then it's hard to contain Eli, yes? And this is um, already done in scenarios like from Bostrom. And I just made a, a talk last week about it. And some minutes ago, I post, I pinned it on my, on my Twitter stream. I, I made it a, a pinned tweet. Uh, because it's so important. It's uh, from KPMG. They had four extreme scenarios. And one is that we are a red button society in 2040, maybe even earlier. Uh, and we don't understand the AI, but we are totally dependent. But we have, we have a red button and always push it and are a bit angry about this super intelligence because we are just stupid like animals. And then we have the other case that they totally control us like gods, yeah? And this is a two times two scenario uh, with four extremes, which can happen. Like the first one is uh, the land of milk and honey that we are in partnership with the robots and AI. And it can go totally wrong. That's, uh, that's just a possibility. And this is why that scenarios are built by KPMG, for instance. Uh, because we want to decide now in the presence, we can only, we live only in the presence. And so we need to understand what will happen in the future uh, to be uh, cautious in the presence. But as humanity is, um, yeah, is constructed in the moment and the political and economical elite, I think uh, all the siren song of it will go just right. <laughs> Don't fear uh, the dystopia, just let's go this way. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's going a bit like this in the moment. And there might be happen a very extreme event like 
robots killing indeed people uh, unexpectedly uh, that people can wake up. I don't hope that will happen, but uh, this this is history. It could happen like this. And for Eli, your optimism, already the Greeks um, did make this narrative of, of Oedipus killing his own father. So a son can be smarter than his father, right? A son can be more evil than his father, and a son can kill his father. And so why shouldn't our creatures of AI kill us? This is just logical, not impossible. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was arguing that point, not not against it. Um, but I, I just, just want to go quickly to Neuralink. Um, I think Musk uh, is is completely wrong about that being a strategy, because rather than than putting us in charge of AI, um, that just will make us more inured to being dependent on it, more inured to going through life on autopilot. And, and in the bargain also will give AI uh, human rights, civil rights, economic rights, and political rights. And this is, this is like giving a, a computer virus a backdoor. Well, I would, so if you look at evolution, the, the eukaryotic cell, we have mitochondria, right? And without them, we wouldn't be able to be good, um, you know, uh, multicellular organisms and do all this stuff. So, um, and there are certain, certain things that AIs or, you know, uh, Turing machines are not good at. And one is they need way too much energy. So they kind of fits that model. And the other thing, they can't really um, feel emotions in the way we will or we can. So there is kind of a symbiosis possible because you also want a certain quality of life. If, if, if AI at certain point feels like it's alive, it must be a horrible and very depressive life to not have emotions um, like we have. So there is a way to um, kind of have a symbiosis there and become like a better, more superior organism. And there are things in evolution that happened that way and are quite successful and still existing. I think it's just very interesting that, um, you know, and there's any talk at all of like, well, you know, can, if we can build it, should we build it? This is the problem. Humans have terrible self-control terrible it's horrible like how many times has an ethical an ethics committee come in and said you know you really shouldn't do that because it could go wrong and the people who were researching it said oh good idea let me stop like what's the worst that can happen is the is the sentence that precedes every horrible thing in history you know oh you know we elected that little crazy man you know, who, who, with the beer pooch, you know, he's, but he's going to be fine. What's the worst that can happen? World War II, right? genocide, things like that. You know, it's like, oh, well, we'll put some, you know, some sugar and fat and we'll, we'll make it so that it's as addictive as possible. What's the worst that can happen? An obesity epidemic. People, if once people find out they can do something, they, well, we all are compelled maybe not individually, but as a group, you know, individuals can be smart. Mobs are dumb as hell. As a group, we all are like, got to build, must build, must do. And then we do it and we're like, oh, fuck. So, I mean, that's just humans. I, I think it's interesting for us to debate it. But the mere fact that there's uh, this idea that it can be built means it's only a matter of time before it is built. 
it's just a problem of our technology and, and our ability to create outpacing our understanding of what we create. Yeah, just very short to Katarina. I think that I can assure to the, you, the, I totally can assure you. Sorry. I think, sorry. She, I think you eloquently proposed the uh, kind of subconscious nature of the, the, the kind of divine like uh, <laughs> drive towards some inevitable future that, uh, that the, both of those people in those previous articles allude to. Willie? Yeah, uh, just, just short to Katarina, I can assure you that uh, uh, this. Um, AI we currently have has no suffering in any way. Yeah, we are in not in the position in science, in natural science, in hard science, to have a real theory about consciousness, how it is created by the brain. We have a lot of knowledge. We have incredible, huge knowledge about the brain, the perception, all this. Yeah, no doubt about it. But there is no theory because that's my guess that physics is not adequate in the moment. At the same time, the Newtonian physics was not adequate for having um, quantum physics. We have progress in physics. And so it's, it's very natural that there is a next stage. We have anomalies in physics. We don't understand why certain neutrinos behave like they do and uh, there is a lot of gaps in physics still about dark matter dark energy and so my guess is we will have a next physics in five or ten years or later and then we will instantly understand the consciousness like we now understand magnetism magnetism is fully understood even long decades long and so uh, the idea uh, sometimes propagated by for me a bit weird people that um, already some cognitive systems we create have kind of consciousness is just a misconception uh, it's, it's about knowledge and patterns and reactions and so on uh, but it's not about what we call um, qualia consciousness phenomenological consciousness uh, and this is not a bug but it's a feature because this and every investor in robotics will be happy about it you can treat these creatures what however you like that the idea that they suffer comes when you look at for instance a boston dynamics robot which is kicked by someone and then it gets balanced again and you think oh this looks like an animal who is kicked by someone and then you think you could not behave to a robot like this it's, it's nasty but this is just stupid. It's not an uh, animal. It does not feel anything. Absolutely yeah, nothing. Pain receptors. You actually have humans without pain receptors, and they die actually pretty fast because they don't have pain receptors. They um, don't feel like they have a broken bone or any, you know, cut off something, and then they get an infection, and then they die the, of the, infection. The, you have they may not suffer, but they experience harm. harm. Yeah. Well, they don't suffer in the form of pain, but maybe uh, on another level, they also have. So, so what? So, are they not uh, conscious anymore just because they don't have pain receptors? I would argue not, and I would be careful because then you put people with disabilities or genetic disorders into a non-human uh, subcategory. No, 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 not at all. No, no, no. And then no, the no, other no. thing I would add 
we don't even are able to test consciousness reliably on animals. So I think you just didn't have the tools to test your hypothesis that when you generate something that has intelligence, that it's not conscious because we don't even know what consciousness is, not even in human. Okay, we got we're getting off track. So yeah. The Faraz just sends this cheerful one in that the top UAE official warns on risk of Cold War between China and U.S. His Excellency Anwar Gargash, uh, in the words of the American Ally Glow, in the word of the, a top official in the UAE has sounded the alarm about escalating tensions between China and the U.S., delivering one of the starkest warnings of Cold War. Um. Uh, delivering one of the starkest regional warnings yet about the competition between the two powers. We're all worried very much by a looming Cold War. UAE presidential diplomat advisor Anwar Gargash said Saturday at a conference in the capital, Abu Dhabi. That is bad news for all of us because the idea of choosing is problematic in the international system, and I think this is not going to be an easy ride. A geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China is testing the loyalties of countries in the oil-rich Gulf, despite decades of close cooperation with the U.S., including by hosting military bases. China has emerged as a major economic counterweight to America. It's now the biggest buyer of crude oil from the Gulf. This is going to be a big challenge for all of us, he says. For us here in the UAE, the United States is our predominant strategic partner, but China is our number one or number two with India economic number is our number one or two with india economic partner the uae is a crucial u.s ally in the middle east has been under pressure to reverse a push for a stronger military economic ties with china which is seeking increased influence in the region he quote uh the quote says china will continue to be extremely important while America's direction is something you can glean from various readings and conferences and discussions, understanding China's directions, I think, is more opaque. The Biden administration is pressing the UAE to remove Huawei technologies from its telecommunications network and take other steps to distance itself from China, raising the risk that the country's purchase of some $23 billion of F-35 jets and drones may be at stake, Bloomberg reported in June. The U.S. is asking the UAE to remove Huawei equipment from its networks within the next four years before it's scheduled to get the F-35 fighter jets in 2026 or 2027. But Emirati officials have countered that they'd need longer plus an alternative that's as affordable. Yep, the the two bullies who are going to fight after school are... Asking everyone to choose a side at the lunch tables. And he's right. And he no doubt has factored in the fact that if China wants to buy oil from the UAE, as it is currently doing, those oil transports are currently being secured by the American Navy. Those Chinese oil tankers are only able to buy that oil because the U.S. Navy secures their voyage home. So I think this might not be as difficult of a decision as you pretend it to be. It's actually incredibly simple. (laughs) Good luck, China. Good luck. So the next one is from someone with the Twitter account, New York News Network. And the title is, 
uh, an inconvenient truth about AI. AI won't surpass human intelligence anytime soon. So we get a nice little counter measure here. And this is from IEEE Spectrum. And it's got a crazy pop-up ad, but that's okay. It says, we are well into the third wave of major investment in AI. So it's a fine time to take a historic perspective on the current success of AI in the 1960s. And for context, who's writing this, actually? IEEE Spectrum is actually a fantastic publication. It's being written by Rodney Brooks. It might be relevant to check out Rodney's LinkedIn profile before we give him too much credit for... <laughs> uh, this article, if he's a tech journalist who isn't, you know, if he's a historian, that's one thing. Anyway, let's let's just skip to the last paragraph here. Sometimes we are in a loop even, even when the consequences of failure aren't dire. AI systems power the speech and language understandings of our smart speakers and the entertainment and navigation systems in our cars. We, the consumers, soon adapt our language to each such AI agent, quickly learning what they can and can't understand in much. He's talking. No, this is. No, no, no. You're you're taking the wrong approach here, my friend. Uh, you're you're approaching this from a consumer approach of the devices in their houses, which is very different than what's happening in the labs. Okay, but I tweeted that one out. There it goes. And thank you to whoever tweeted that in. And then we've got this one from Hassan, which sends in a video of a human-powered helicopter. No, no fuel needed. It's a man on a bike. The, and this is just wild. You have to see this. This is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I can't believe this is even real. I just tweeted it to the Tech News Twitter account. It's a human-powered helicopter. The person figured out a way to convert a bike into a helicopter, and he's flying. Indoors, with no wind. Inside of like a sports arena. And he broke a record-breaking 64 seconds of flight time at a height of 3.3 meters. That's the most unbelievable machine I have ever seen. That is truly phenomenal. It's at the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. That's wild. The next one is from the New York Times, uh, from QS CSQ. Somebody with the Twitter account CSQ tweets this one in. Via New York Times, uh, the headline says, Lithuania versus China. A Baltic minnow defies a rising superpower. Lithuania has enraged China by advising officials to scrap Chinese phones that it says contains censorship software while cozying up to Taiwan. And they also welcomed the Taiwanese office, the first Taiwanese office in, in the EU, uh, while cozying up to Taiwan and quitting Chinese-led regional forum. It was never a secret that China tightly controls what its people can read and write on their cell phones, but it came as a shock to officials in Lithuania when they discovered that a popular Chinese-made handset sold in the Baltic nation had a hidden, though dormant feature, a censorship registry of 449 terms banned by the CCP. Lithuania's government swiftly advised officials using the phones to dump them in raging China, and not for the first time. Lithuania has also embraced Taiwan, a vibrant democracy that Beijing regards as a renegade province, and pulled out of a Chinese-led regional forum that it scorned as divisive for the European Union. Furious, Beijing has recalled its ambassador, halted trips by a Chinese cargo train into the country, and made its nearly impossible 
and made it nearly impossible for many Lithuanian exporters to sell their goods in China. Chinese state media has assailed Lithuania, mocking its diminutive size and accusing it of being the anti-China vanguard in Europe. In the battleground of geopolitics, Lithuania versus China is hardly a fair fight. A tiny Baltic nation with fewer than 3 million people against a rising superpower of 1.4 billion, Lithuania's military has no tanks or fighter jets, and its economy is 270 times smaller than that of China. But surprisingly, Lithuania has proved that even tiny countries can create headaches for a superpower, especially one like China, whose diplomats seem determined to make other nations toe their line. Indeed, Lithuania, which does little trade with China, has caused enough of a stink that its fellow members in the European Union are expected to discuss the situation at a meeting next week. Nothing could be worse for Beijing than if other countries followed Lithuania's example. For Lithuania, the threats and tantrums from Beijing haven't weakened the government's resolve, in part because China has little leverage over it. In, in an interview, the foreign minister said that the country had a values-based foreign policy of supporting people supporting democratic movements. Other European countries declaring fealty to democratic values have rarely acted on them in their relations with China. Mr. The, the foreign minister's party, however, has made action part of its appeal to democratic voters. Its pre-election manifesto, manifesto last year included a promise to maintain the value backbone in foreign policy with countries such as China. Lithuania's small size, the foreign minister lamented, made us an easy target for China because their calculation is that it's is that it is good to pick enemies way, way, way below your size, draw them into the fighting ring, and then beat them to a pulp, eager to avoid getting pummeled. The minister visited Washington this month and met with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who pledged ironclad U.S. support for Lithuania in the face of attempted coercion from the People's Republic of China. Despite its puny size, Lithuania looms surprisingly large in Chinese calculations, says a uh, political analyst in Beijing, partly because of its role as a transport corridor for trains carrying goods from China to Europe. Exactly. The, it's a critical link in the Belt and Road to get goods in and out of Europe to China. And that's why China's freaking out over that one. But uh, it also commands Chinese attention because, uh, because of its oversized role in the collapse of the Soviet Union, a drama that China has studied in hopes of heading off similar centrifugal forces at home. China regards Lithuania as a museum to save itself from a Soviet-like collapse. Yeah, it's interesting because <laughs> Lithuania is a bottleneck for the Belt and Road train that goes through Russia down through Finland and China's trying to pay for the bridge between Helsinki and Estonia. And even the co-founder of uh, Angry Birds, the parent company Rovio, Peter Peter V, as we call him, um, is trying to push the, the let China make the bridge. And Finland's debating and Estonia's debating, should we do this? Because it would enable... China to do trade with Europe via train, which it must do because it doesn't have a navy to support its uh, shipping containers, ships. So it knows that if it tried to do its trade of import and export through the shipping containers that it's currently using, America will withdraw its navy and then it has no ability to do import and export. So it's dependent on land and trains. That's why it's doing the Belt and Road Initiative. And that's where Lithuania says, we got you by the balls, Uncle G. 
because you got to go through Lithuania to trade with Europe. Good times. So the next one's from uh, Evan. It's from Vice, and it says, Instagram is still promoting eating disorders and unproven diet pills to teens. Oh, boy. A damning new report shows that Instagram is awash with posts promoting eating disorders, unproven diet supplements, and skin whitening products. And Instagram better remove that shit a lickety split (laughs) before it finds itself in a regulatory quagmire. And then David Craze sends in this one that 85% of bank transactions are now happening on mobile phones. 85% of banking is happening on mobile phones. And that's your daily reminder that the big old legacy banks are dinosaurs and fossils waiting to happen as all of that mobile banking is being done by a whole lot of little fintech apps. And but Tyler, some Banking is on larger banks too. They also have apps. And, you know, Wells Fargo has an app. You know, Bank of America has an app. So when the, you get a statistic like that, it includes the big bank apps also. Let's let's look at that. I would happily look at that breakdown. Brain cleaning sleeping cap gets U.S. Army funding. Evan, what kind of? Hocus Pocus is, oh my, this is the best illustration. You got it. That, that one's, this article's worth it just for the illustration. Everybody knows sleep is important, but there's still a lot we don't understand about what's actually does to the brain and how it benefits, could, how it could be boosted to investigate. The U.S. Army has awarded researchers at Rice University and other institutions a grant to develop a portable skull cap that can monitor and adjust the flow of fluid through the brain during sleep. And it looks like a very interesting device that can do signal acquisitions of all of your brain states during sleep and make adjustments in real time. Brain cleaning sleeping cap gets U.S. Army funding. That's wild. Thank you for that one, Evan. And uh, Evan also sends in this one. That so com- uh, on on the previous yes. one, um, I think that this the the reason they're interested in it is that you know during parts of sleep, uh, um, the the gunk that builds up in the gra- in the brain gets cleaned out, and when that doesn't get uh, when that's not efficient enough, that contributes to things like Alzheimer's. But I think they are very interested in in uh, jacking up that process so people could uh, function on twenty minutes sleep, for instance. So the next one here from Evan is a company called Perfect Day uh, announces animal-free cream cheese. Cheryl, you're going to eat the animal-free cream cheese? The proceeds from the round tied to the largest single fundraiser. They raised $350 million. Here come the lab-grown cheese alternatives. And believe it or not, we have made it through yet again, as we do every Saturday, all the tweets. We're now caught up. Here's the last one I'm throwing in as a freebie. I just found this one myself from Dr. David Sinclair at Harvard University, who leads one of the world's leading researchers on not only longevity, but reversing the aging process, ladies and gentlemen, as he claims to have done in his lab with rats. 
So, or mice rather. Here's his recent tweet from a few minutes ago. In the race for COVID drugs to reduce symptoms, how about a simple approach? A study of nearly 4,000 patients shows that those who are physically active and eat more fruit and vegetables and fish are relatively protected from COVID-19. There we have it. We did it. We did it yet again, everybody. Thank you for another week of Tech News Around the World. Have a wonderful week. Tyler, yes. Your question. Huh? So I could just, uh, I'm looking to the answer for your question on mobile banking. Yes. And as I'm doing it, I haven't the answer yet. But Bank of America alone had 31 million people use their mo- mobile banking app in, that, in 2020. Yes. That's a lot of people. Yes. Thank you. Already. There we go. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks, Tyler. We'll see y'all Monday. Do we have, do we have health news tomorrow? Yes. We do? Sure. Click. Okay, I don't know. Plus, schedule about, oh, yeah. Just, just uh, look up the calendar tomorrow. Okay. Bye.